It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. The David Feldman Show To get your ears on right Buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say And he's coming your way It's going to be one of those days, Dan. Welcome to the mop-up for August 16th, 2021. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 93 degrees and partly cloudy. Coming up on today's show, a very special guest, Dr. Juan Cole will be joining us. Dr. Juan Cole, thank you so much, Professor Adnan Hussein. At 8.30 tonight, Eastern Standard Time, we will be joined by Professor Juan Cole, historian and editor of Informed Comment, and we'll be talking about Afghanistan throughout the show. Thank you, Professor Adnan Hussein, who will be conducting the interview. Dr. Juan Cole at 8.30 p.m. here on The David Feldman Show. Very special guest. Well, as you know, Afghanistan. This is the, the big story that we'll be talking about. This is, uh, this was the news. Back with more breaking news out of Kabul. We are getting updates every few minutes. We're going to bring them to you just as soon as we can. CNN's Kylie Atwood now reporting the American flag at the U.S. Embassy in Kabul has been taken down. She says this marks a final step in the evacuation of the embassy. Uh, she's citing a source familiar with the situation. We don't have pictures to show you out of Kabul now. It is nightfall. We cannot see what's happening at the embassy. But Kylie says the withdrawal of uh, embassy personnel is happening, quote, incredibly rapidly today. And the process is now expected to conclude by this evening, she says, uh, minus the small number of diplomats who will stay at the Kabul airport for now. Yes, well, it would be nice if uh, oh, it's going to be one of those days. You think Kabul is having, I shouldn't say, I'm just, it's so sad. It's so sad. Yes. Uh, so Professor Adnan Hussein and will and uh, Dr. Juan Cole will be uh, talking about Afghanistan. Dr. Juan Cole on Saturday said about Kabul, Kabul, the news on Saturday came like a gut punch, like a gut punch. Those poor people. That was Dr. Juan Cole. 
the war is 20 years old and we have forgotten where or what Afghanistan actually is. At informed comment, Juan Cole gives us a quick refresher course. He writes, Afghanistan is multi-ethnic. You have your mostly Sunni Pushtana who speak an Eastern Iranian language. You have your Sunni Tajiks north of Kabul who speak a dialect of Persian called Dari. And you have Sunni speakers of other Persian dialects in the West near Iran. You have the Persian speaking Shiites in the center of the country, the Hazara who often have an East Asian appearance and in the far north, you have Sunni Turkic speakers, Uzbeks and Turkmen. What could possibly go wrong? Why couldn't we unite that country and make them safe and free? Uh, I doubt we would be thinking uh, this would ever work if the American people re read informed comment, if perhaps our generals read informed comment. Certainly, if the American people knew any of this 20 years ago, they would know this is an impossible situation and we wouldn't have allowed this war to drag on for 20 years. Maybe if we had a draft, we'd pay more attention and we would try to end what President Barack Obama considered the good war. We forget that Barack Obama called Afghanistan the right war. He ran in 2008 saying, America took our eye off the ball after 9-11 when we went into Iraq and that we needed to focus on winning in Afghanistan. That's how Barack Obama ran for president. I will bring you war to Afghanistan. By the way, that's the only reason he ran for president is because he got Iraq right. He was a, a legislator in Illinois who didn't have to vote on the war. And he warned us that Iraq would be a disaster. And somehow we believe that he was prescient. He got it right because he didn't have to cast a war authorization vote in Washington, D.C. yet. He wasn't serving in Washington at the time of the 2002 war authorization. So we thought, oh, my God, Barack Obama, he knows everything. He knew Iraq was wrong. And yes, we'll go in there and vote for him and, and win in Afghanistan. That's how he ran for president, bringing common sense to our foreign policy. He didn't run on the economy. He was going to be a foreign policy president. The, the financial collapse happened a month before the November election. Suddenly he had to worry about TARP and bailing out the, the, uh, the banks. But most people voted for him because he was going to get Iraq and Afghanistan right. And he was going to hold the Republicans accountable for Iraq and for dropping the ball and on Afghanistan. That was his campaign message. It was, I'm a corporatist. I love war. Vote for me, Barack Obama. I love war, just not the one in Iraq. I love the war in Afghanistan. So this is why uh, Howie Klein wrote this over at Down With Tyranny this weekend. He wrote, 
well, that's not what I wanted to show you. I'm learning new technology, so I, I apologize. This is what Howie Klein, <laughs> Jesus. All right. Uh, this is what Howie Klein wrote about Afghanistan. He said, over down with tyranny, we lost. Who lost Afghanistan is a stupid question, a stupid partisan question that will no doubt be an election issue for morons. This is Howie Klein writing over down with tyranny. Whose fault was American policy in Afghanistan might be a better question. And I know the answer. The fault lays entirely with three men, three men for whom the buck stopped. George W. Bush, Barack Obama and Donald Trump, not Biden, the other three who perpetuated the senseless, actually insane war for two decades. All three should be dragged to The Hague in chains to face trial as war criminals and never see the sky again. This is how we climb. The U.S., like the Russians before them, had no right to ever occupy Afghanistan. It was a tragic, pointless mistake. That's Howie Klein riding over at Down with Tyranny. He will be on the show at seven o'clock, by the way. This is a pretty great show. Uh, Joe Biden announced the pullout earlier this year. And for the time being, and I... I guess I salute him now. I think this is an impossible situation that we have to extirpate ourselves and the Afghan Afghanistan people out of. We don't we don't belong there. I have no moral or intellectual certitude about any of this. Joe Biden announced the pullout uh, earlier this year, and for the time being, he is sticking with it. He's sent four thousand troops back in to uh, protect Americans. Uh, so they can get out of there. This is what he said about Afghanistan over the weekend. He said, I was the fourth president to preside over an American troop presence in Afghanistan. Two Republicans, two Democrats. I would not and will not pass this war on to a fifth president. It's hard to pull out, especially when... Americans don't like to admit that they've lost a war, which we seem to be doing ever since World War II. We, we seem to lose wars because we can't admit ever that we lost the war. And then we depend on the stab in the back theory. This is what happened after World War I. The Germans were convinced that they would have won World War I had they not been stabbed in the back by the socialists, the, the Jews, and of course, the Jews. So uh, Biden is trying to distance himself from Afghanistan. What he conveniently leaves out is that he voted for the war authorization in 2002. And he used to say, I think we can get this right in Afghanistan. And then he was vice president under Obama in the situation room. The, the hubris, the arrogance that he thought he could get this right. We can get this right. You can't get something right that is wrong from the beginning. So Biden over the weekend didn't take the blame. He said on Sunday, when I came to office, I inherited a deal cut by my predecessor. He's talking about Trump. 
which he invited the Taliban to discuss at Camp David on the eve of 9-11 on 2019. We don't negotiate with terrorists. Taliban will negotiate with, we did on the eve of 2019. That would be Mike Pompeo and President Trump. Biden goes on to say that left the Taliban in the strongest position militarily since 2001 and imposed a May 1st, 2021 deadline on U.S. forces, which, you know, he can't possibly reverse because he's just the commander in chief. Uh, Shortly before he left office, Donald Trump drew U.S. forces down to a bare minimum of twenty five hundred. That's Joe Biden blaming uh, this all on Donald Trump. Uh, So he blamed the other administrations. And then without mentioning Trump, he blamed Donald Trump. This is the longest war America has ever fought. We have spent trillions of dollars. I don't want to mention the lives that were lost. And one would think that after 20 years, American military intelligence would know Afghanistan, right? You would think our intelligence community would know exactly what to expect from the Taliban. They've had 20 years to get to know the terrain. They're constantly spying on us, our intelligence agencies. We have the best intelligence agencies in the world. They know everything. They have drones hovering every hovering over every nook and cranny of Afghanistan, which is why Joe Biden was able to make this promise on July 8th. He said the Taliban is not the North Vietnamese army. There's going to be no circumstance where you see people being lifted off the roof of the United States from Afghanistan. It's not at all comparable. Yeah, I think uh, we read at the top of the show from Dr. Juan Cole's informed comment where he explained all the separate groups that live in the country, Afghanistan. No, it's not at all comparable. Vietnam is capable of uniting behind one army. This is this is a bloodbath. Uh, so that's what our president, Joe Biden, said on July 8th. Uh, too bad he didn't read Howie Klein, who wrote on June 23rd, 2021. This is what Howie wrote. The Wall Street Journal reports that the Afghan government could collapse within six months. Wall Street Journal was getting information fed to them by our intelligence agencies who say, you know, the the government could collapse within six months. Howie goes on to write, my guess, having spent a great deal of time there twice and not just in Kabul, is that the inevitable collapse will come closer to six weeks than six months. That's what Howie Klein wrote on June 23rd, 2021. The inevitable collapse will come closer to six weeks than six months. Amazing, isn't it? Howie Klein knew this, but our president with trillions of dollars in intelligence at his disposal thought 
the government in Kabul could last six months. By the way, these people die because of these mistakes. Americans, Afghanistan people die because of these mistakes using our tax dollars. And somehow, somehow people can skate. Somehow people can just get away with giving bad predictions. This is Katrina Vanderhoevel, who uh, eight years ago took on Bill Crystal. I always play this clip because it proves that nobody can ever admit they're wrong. Katrina Vanderhoevel, publisher of The Nation magazine, who went after Bill Crystal because he didn't want to pull out of Iraq when Obama was president. Nobody will ever admit they're wrong. Sitting next to Bill Crystal, man. I mean, the architects of a catastrophe that have cost this country trillions of dollars, thousands of lives, there should be accountability. We should not, if there are no regrets for the failed assumptions that have so grievously wounded this nation, I don't know what happened to our politics and media accountability, but we need it, Bill, because this country should not go back to war. We don't need armchair warriors. And if you feel so strongly, you should, with all due respect, enlist in the Iraqi army. That's a very cute line. Katrina. No, no, people, but it's real. A million, a million look, look Iraq, at the displaced thousands of people being killed. Can I just make a point? A million Iraqis have been displaced. You yes. read that story, humanitarian aid for what we have done to that country is a crime. We have done and to that should, country. We have done to this country no accountability. And of course, Bill Crystal, now on MSNBC, the bastion of democratic liberalism, Bill Crystal gets to opine about what we should do in Afghanistan. There's no accountability in this country. And yet we have 2.5 million people behind bars. No room for Bill Crystal, none whatsoever. The intelligence community completely botched Afghanistan. And so did our news gathering organizations, the mainstream media. This is uh, this is uh, Martha Raddatz, who I like. You know, she's a defense correspondent. Sometimes she hosts George Stephanopoulos's this week on Sunday. This is what Martha Raddatz said on Sunday. She wrote, the training mission of those Afghan forces, $83 billion worth. It clearly failed. The negotiations with the Taliban clearly failed. And you also had a really massive intelligence failure here that the U.S., did not realize how quickly the Taliban could take over. And we have been there for 20 years. We know the Taliban. We have people on the ground. And yet the U.S. was caught unaware and completely off guard. How does that happen? How does that happen? Hmm. How does that happen? That our CIA, our NSA, we, we just can't seem to figure out a war. You would think... You would think after 12 years of doing this podcast, I would get better at it and I get worse. And the same applies to our intelligence community. 20 years in Afghanistan and they got worse. They got they got worse. Here is a CBS correspondent, David Martin, who's been hanging in there. You know, he's over at CBS. I remember him from September 11th, constantly reporting as a stenographer for the generals. Here he is talking about the fall of Kabul. You know, last week started uh, with this alarming estimate that uh, the capital could be under threat in 30 days. And here we are 
seven days later and the Taliban is at the uh, gates of Kabul and it's looking very much like the Taliban will be back in power on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Wow. Let that sink in. Let that sink in. This, the way it sunk in in Vietnam, after Vietnam, it sunk in after Vietnam, the way it sunk in after Afghanistan, the way it's going to now we'll never make the same mistakes that we made in Afghanistan, right? Why didn't our intelligence agencies give us any intelligence? Maybe because of, instead of gathering intelligence, our CIA fights secret wars. In fact, the CIA had bin Laden in 2001. George Tenet, the head of the CIA, they had bin Laden in the crosshairs right after 9-11. But Donald Rumsfeld, the war criminal who just passed away, uh, he was defense secretary at the time, he told the CIA to stand down. Do not kill bin Laden. We got this. We got this. Because it wouldn't look good if the CIA killed bin Laden. That's a job for the Defense Department. Nobody's really supposed to know that instead of gathering intelligence, our CIA is fighting wars. Remember the Bay of Pigs? That wasn't an intelligence gathering operation. That was the CIA working with Cuban refugees and the mafia to overthrow Fidel Castro. That's not intelligence. That's war that the CIA is engaging in. So maybe that's why our intelligence capabilities are, are so shoddy. Maybe it's because the CIA, instead of uh, doing research, is firing missiles and hiring warlords to do what? I don't know. So again, Donald Rumsfeld didn't want the CIA to get the collar for killing bin Laden. And uh, Donald Rumsfeld said, we'll get him. And then 10 years later, Barack Obama finally killed bin Laden in, uh, in Pakistan. So what was the role that the CIA played in Afghanistan? They obviously weren't gathering intelligence. You know, I thought that's what, what we were paying for. This is what, uh, what Dr. Juan Cole said. He's going to be on our show later on tonight. This is what Juan Cole wrote over at Inform Comment. The CIA denies fostering al-Qaeda, but it certainly fostered the conditions under which the organization became a major player in Afghanistan. It did support the hardline fundamentalists such as Golubin Hikmatyar and his, his Islami, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, giving them sophisticated training in guerrilla tactics and covert tradecraft, which they passed on to their al-Qaeda allies. That's from Deja Vu all over again. The last time Mazar al-Sharif fell to the Taliban, there were massacres. That is uh, Dr. Juan Cole writing about the CIA working with the Mujahideen when the Soviet Union uh, was in Afghanistan. They, the CIA was not gathering intelligence. They were aiding Osama bin Laden and inadvertently training 
Al-Qaeda. That's, uh, well, uh, Juan Cole <clears throat> also doesn't have <clears throat> kind words for uh, our friends on the left. This is what uh, Juan Cole writes about our friends on the left. He writes, during the 1980s, a million Afghans died in the fighting between the Soviets and Afghan rebels called Mujahideen. Mujahideen. The U.S. government stirred up and funded the latter, that was the CIA, taking revenge on Moscow for the Vietnam War. So this was a, a proxy war. Three million Afghans were wounded. Three million were displaced to Pakistan. Two million to Iran. And another million or two were displaced internally. The Soviet troops conducted ethnic cleansing campaigns of defiant villages and bombarded particularly recalcitrant ones. The U.S. fringe left that is always yelling about casualties of imperialism has never had a word to say about this massive Soviet atrocity. The left mysteriously silent about how the Soviets exterminated the people of Afghanistan. So in the end, what was this all about? I have some sneaking suspicions. Why? Why did we spend 20 years fighting for people we didn't know or care about? Uh, Brian Kilmeade over at uh, Fox and Friends, I think was pretty honest, if I can find this. He explained why we, we were over there. Uh, he was talking to a gold star, gold star husband who lost his wife in Afghanistan. And then Brian Kilmeade from Fox and Friends articulated what many on the right and many in the Democratic Party believe about perpetual war. This is what he said to a gold star husband today. Their plan has always been to leave our troops into harm's way and to continue these wars. We need to get out. The day that we leave, the Taliban returns. That has always been the fate of Afghanistan. That is the history of that region. It's the graveyard of empires for a reason. It's absolutely ridiculous that we stayed this long. Right now, the priority has to be to get all of our people out, use whatever yeah. force is necessary. I respectfully disagree. I, we need an eye on the terrorist movement. That's going to be terrorist university. And now we're not even going to have intelligence there. But I appreciate all you guys, your insight uh, and your sacrifice. And we'll just stand by and watch the horror unfold. Thanks, guys. That's going to be terrorist university. Yeah. And, and who filled out the applications for all the students? The United States. When you destroy a country, you create a failed state where terrorism arises. That is what some people believe. They believe we need a, a permanent state of war because nature pours a vacuum and if we're not killing everybody some other country is now trump wanted to pull out of afghanistan and they wouldn't let him they would not let him he was negotiating with the taliban in 2019 he wanted out it's one of the reasons he got elected and lindsey graham explained to him you're not getting out and trump said well when does this end? And Lindsey Graham said, it never ends. 
we're fighting the Nazis. And Trump said, but, but we, the war with the Nazis ended. And Lindsey Graham said, Islamo-fascism never ends. We will be fighting them all over the world forever. So why would Lindsey Graham say that? Well, partly because he believes it. He believes that America uh, just has to keep fighting and fighting and fighting. Uh, I like what Warren Gunnels wrote. He's the senior policy advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders. I think he explained Afghanistan pretty well when he said, the only thing that we accomplished by going into Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan was to put trillions of taxpayer dollars into the military-industrial complex and destroy millions of lives, period, full stop. It's time to stop repeating the, the same mistakes over and over again. That's Warren Gunnels, that's uh, Bernie Sanders' advisor. He's a senior policy advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders, who President Sanders would have talked to us as adults and just said, it didn't work. We made a big mistake. We're coming home. We blew it. But Americans can never, it's, it's, a, it's a, a, a pathology. America can never admit it's wrong. And there are still Americans who believe we've never lost a war. They just conveniently forget Iraq, Afghanistan, Korea, and of course, Vietnam. It would really save a lot of lives if our leaders talked to us as adults. And I know that, that uh, Howie Klein, who, is, who did not vote for Joe Biden, I know he supports the pullout. And Jerry Brown, who I voted for in the primaries, uh, he ran against Bill Clinton in 92. I wanted Jerry Brown from California to be president. He talked to the American people as adults, you know, became governor again of California. I know a lot of criticism of Jerry Brown. This is what he said about Joe Biden's decision to pull out. He was on CNN on Sunday. He said, Biden was very courageous and there's so much hypocrisy. Look, the Afghan war, very soon after we went over there, it was over. We took out the Al-Qaeda, we chased after bin Laden. We stayed there way too long. Bush should have gotten us out. Obama should have gotten us out. Trump. But they were all afraid of exactly what's happening. They didn't have the courage to, to pull out. And that's uh, Governor Jerry Brown praising Biden for doing the difficult work of, of pulling out because it's not easy. We're, this is a wartime economy. We spend at least a trillion dollars a year on defense. The American people, we don't pay attention to Afghanistan. Nobody could tell you who the leaders are of the Taliban, who the leaders were of the, the government we were supporting in Afghanistan. But we expect that if we throw a trillion dollars at a problem, unless it's poverty, it can be solved. That's the American way. If we spend unlimited amounts of money on defense will win every war. Uh, but if we spend unlimited amounts of money on the poor, there's a, some kind of moral hazard. It makes them poorer. I, I 
think that's how it how it goes. And uh, so the uh, Republicans are, have been, uh, you know, very supportive of, of President Biden because this is a tragedy. And after 9-11, we all came together the same way we all came together after Pearl Harbor. We're Americans and we come, our hostility stops. Our hostility towards each other stops at our nation's border. When it comes to war and tragedy overseas, we unite because in the end, Republicans know that, that this is about our troops and the people of Afghanistan. And this is why Donald Trump uh, tweeted this. And I thought this was very supportive because he, he's been there. He sat in the Oval Office. He sat in the Situation Room. He knew what it's like. He knows what it's like to make those difficult decisions. This is what he said about uh, pulling out of Afghanistan. It's time for Joe Biden to resign in disgrace for what he's allowed to happen to Afghanistan, along with tremendous surge of COVID, the border catastrophe, the destruction of energy independence, and our crippled economy. It shouldn't be a big deal because he wasn't elected legitimately in the first place. That's what uh, Donald Trump said yesterday, a sign of support. You know, it's kind of like Michelle Obama and George W. Bush sharing a lozenge at John McCain's funeral. When when there's a national tragedy, we come together and share a breath mint. And, uh, and Donald Trump got behind uh, Biden's decision to pull out. It's strange that he's come out against pulling out of... Uh, of, of Afghanistan because he, a month ago, was taking credit for bringing the troops home. He wanted to bring the troops home. He was trying to bring the troops home, but he couldn't stand up to the military. And so he was worried at his last rally that Joe Biden would get all the credit for taking, bringing the troops home from Afghanistan. This is Donald Trump last month taking credit for the troops coming home from Afghanistan. They started the process, all the troops are coming back home, they couldn't stop the press. 21 years is enough, don't we think? 21 years. They couldn't stop the process. They wanted to, but it was very tough to stop the process when other things were out. Yeah, thank you, thank you. It's a shame. 21 years by a government that wouldn't last. The only way they last is if we're there. What are we going to say? We'll stay for another 21 years and we'll stay for another 50. The whole thing is ridiculous. So we're bringing our troops back home. We're bringing our troops back home. What did I just do? Hang on. Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, come on, Feldman. Uh, we're bringing our troops back home. And, and Donald Trump... Uh, taking credit for that last month. Now he's saying, I knew it was a bad idea. He, he knows everything. Uh, yeah, the Republicans have united around uh, our president because you don't play politics with our troops. You don't play politics with difficult decisions. And that's why uh, Congressman Mike McCall, a Republican from Texas, said this. They totally blew this one. 
<laughs> they completely overestimated the strength of the Taliban and they didn't listen to the intelligence community because every time I got an IC briefing assessment, it was probably the grimmest assessment I've ever heard on Afghanistan. And yet they, the State Department, Secretary Blinken, the politicians in the White House wanted to paint this rosy picture that somehow these peace talks in Doha were going to deliver a rabbit out of the hat at the 11th hour. Well, guess what? That didn't happen. And now they're sending 5,000 troops in to try to save our embassy personnel. That's uh, Congressman Mike McCall, Republican from Texas, blaming our commander in chief and asking why Joe Biden didn't have the intelligence to know that Kabul was going to fall so quickly. We all knew it was going to fall so quickly. Everybody knew this. Everybody knew we couldn't prop up the government. There's some things you just can't fix, uh, especially when you're the one who broke it. Maybe some other country can go in there and rebuild Afghanistan but it's not going to be us. So that's uh, Congressman Michael McCall uh, blaming Biden. And then, of course, there's uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who uh, negotiated with the Taliban. He's running for president of the United States right now. He said in Iowa two months ago that this is a Judeo-Christian nation and that if he's elected president, he will make sure that the message is clear that we are a Judeo-Christian nation. This is Mike Pompeo. So he was on Fox News Sunday with uh, Chris Wallace, and he was asked about the fall of Afghanistan. And this is what Mike Pompeo said. He, he had this job like seven months ago. This is, this is who he blamed. What do you think the fall of Afghanistan is going to say to our allies and to our enemies? And what do you think it's going to mean for our image of ourselves? Hey, Chris, that's a very important question. I think weak American leadership always harms American security. So this is in the context of a Biden administration that has basically abandoned the global stage in favor of climate change. Right? They've been focused on critical race theory while the embassy is at risk. That didn't happen during our four years. I do think there's a real risk here. I think our soldiers, sailors, our junior enlisted soldiers have done amazing work along the way. But I think the senior military leadership that had 20 years to build out these coalition forces, the Afghan National Security Forces, has to fundamentally rethink the training that they provided them, the weapons they provided them, how they were thinking strategically about handing this battle off to the Afghan people. And we had a president in Afghanistan who wasn't prepared to do the right thing for his own national security, for his own country. I think that political failure and that military failure is something that we're going to have to take a long, hard look at to make sure that we are always securing American freedom. You know, the Republicans are like every bad wife I've ever had. They just refuse. It's never their fault. This was former head of the CIA under Trump, former secretary of state under Trump. And suddenly it's Biden's fault that Afghanistan fell. Why? Because Biden is too focused on teaching critical race theory 
and trying to put an end to climate change. According to Mike Pompeo, we lost Afghanistan. We were stabbed in the back. Remember, that's how the, the Germans, who gave rise to Hitler, explained why Germany lost World War I. We were stabbed in the back by the intellectuals, the socialists, and the Jews. That's what the, the Nazis claimed. And uh, we would have won, but for the socialists, the intellectuals, and the Jews. And here's Mike Pompeo out of office for a year. Afghanistan falls really on his watch. It would We'd have a successful government in Afghanistan, but for the Democrats insisting and focusing on climate change and critical race theory. That, that is uh, truly stunning, truly uh, ignorant. It's, it's hard to believe that somebody could be that craven. But then anybody who says America is a Judeo-Christian nation, I would expect no, no less from an ignoramus like Mike Pompeo. Uh, let's watch him pray in Sacramento, shall we? Is it time? It's time to pray. This is a, a nation that's grieving uh, COVID. We, we've lost in Afghanistan. I think we should join uh, Mike Pompeo and uh, pray with his pastor in uh, in uh, I believe this would be in Sacramento. You know, Mike Pompeo wants to be a uh, be our commander in chief. I trust him after watching this clip. This is this is who Mike Pompeo surrounds himself with. We pray that you would do something now, Jesus, please, in our nation's capital. God, we give you, Father, right now. We do not wish ill upon Joe Biden whatsoever. We pray that you would heal him, that you would save him, that you would open up his eyes to your saving grace. And the fact that it is Jesus who died on the cross for his sins and ours and rose again from the dead. It is the gospel of the living God that can cause all men and women to be changed. Lord, we pray. And I must, I, Lord, you know my heart. I'm not being funny. But God, please forgive California. Lord, forgive us for allowing abortion. Lord, forgive us for sending people with antichrist worldviews to office like Nancy Pelosi and, and Kamala Harris. They don't, they don't want you, they don't honor you, and it breaks our hearts. But Father God, we pray that you would take back this government from the brink, whatever that means to you. We don't, it's your business. You hold the heart of the king in your hands. And Father, we pray that you would strengthen our leaders in Washington. I know some of them will be here at the next service. Strengthen them. And Father God, that you protect America while we're in this vulnerable moment. And Father, that you would visit Sacramento. And God, that we have labored hard and long. And we pray that you'd honor our feeble little efforts to do what's right. Give us, Lord, a good leader whom you select. And Father, above all things now, we thank you so much for this statesman. Yes. 
Mike Pompeo, we pray for his future. Bless him, Lord God. Bless him and Susan. In Jesus' name and all God's people said. God bless you. That is, uh, that is unbelievable. That is, that's Mike Pompeo praying with his minister in Sacramento. This is, this is what uh, we're up against. This is a level of depravity I have not seen in my lifetime. An entire party taken over by crackpots. Uh, and I'm talking about the Democrats, by the way. It's hopeless. Uh, yeah. Hey, uh, Peter B. Collins is going to be joining us in a, in a few minutes to talk about Afghanistan. I wanted to bring you up to speed on some other things that are going on in the news. A right-wing Catholic cardinal, his name is Raymond Burke, has been hospitalized in Wisconsin. He was a bishop in Wisconsin from 1994 to 2005, and he's now getting breathing assistance from a ventilator because uh, he's got COVID. It's very sad. Of course, he told his flock not to get vaccinated or wear a mask. He uh, was very skeptical about the vaccines. He said that uh, the uh, vaccines have a chip inside of them. And he uh, told his followers to uh, don't worry about social distancing, don't get a vaccine. Uh, it's the Wuhan virus and it's perfectly safe. We have nothing to, uh, to worry about. He's now on a ventilator. Uh, Roger Stone is getting sued by Larry Klayman. Uh Larry Klayman, uh is a lawyer and he uh, is suing Roger Stone for defamation because Roger Stone says that Larry Klayman molested his children, not Roger Stone's children. Larry Klayman uh, molested his children. And uh, Larry Klayman likes to sue a lot of people. He founded Judicial Watch, Freedom Watch, and uh, he likes to sue. He sues Democrats. He's sued his own mother. Hmm. Are you allowed to sue your own mother? He is suing China, accusing uh, China of giving us COVID. And uh, he, he has defended George Zimmerman, who murdered Trayvon Martin. And uh, he's got a long history of suing people. Anyway, he filed a lawsuit in Palm Beach County on Monday, arguing that uh, Roger Stone made a false statement uh, about his uh, molesting his own children. And uh, we'll talk more about that later on in the show. Let's play some music from, I, I wanna do one more thing and then, then we'll wrap it up. Uh, AOC gave an interview about January 6th. And she said during the interview, that when they were storming the Capitol, she was afraid she was going to get raped. And this was Tucker Carlson last week talking about AOC's fear of getting raped by the insurrectionists. Sandy Cortez wasn't even inside the Capitol on January 6th. But she and Lindsey Graham are on the same page. We know that because 
Occasionally, Sandy Cortez tells us about her lived experience on January 6th. During a recent special on CNN, Sandy Cortez, did she ever stop talking about herself, by the way? She explained she wasn't simply afraid of being murdered by Ashley Babbitt. She was also worried about being raped. There's a lot of sexualizing of that violence. And um, I didn't think that I was just going to be killed. I thought other things were going to happen to me as well. So what sounds like what you're telling me right now is that you didn't only think that you were going to die. You thought you were going to be raped. Yeah. Yeah. I thought I was. Sexualizing? Get a therapist, honey. This is crazy. These people are mad because they thought the election wasn't fair. Now, you may disagree with that, but it wasn't about you. Surprise, surprise. Sexualizing the violence. I was going to be raped by Ashley Babbitt. Imagine some Republican lady saying that about a BLM riot. As thousands of rioters descended on neighborhoods and burned businesses all over the country. Kenosha, Portland, Georgetown, Green Bay, Wisconsin. Well, first off, uh, honey, referring to her as honey. Secondly, uh, there was no BLM violence in Kenosha. The uh, Washington Post did a study on this. Kenosha, two people died in Kenosha. Kyle Rittenhouse shot them with his assault weapons. Uh, so BLM was peaceful in Kenosha until Kyle Rittenhouse showed up. And guess who's paying for Kyle Rittenhouse's legal bills? People like Tucker Carlson. He, he paints last summer with this broad brush of violence coming from Black Lives Matter, when in fact, BLM was completely, completely innocent. They didn't do any looting. They did no shooting. The Washington Post studied this in the fall and concluded that all the violence came from counter protesters like the Boogaloo Boys and the police. So that's the first thing. But to trivialize AOC's fear of getting raped on January 6th uh, just belies the misogyny that runs so deep over at Fox News. How would you not think that those subhumans who stormed the Capitol, why would you not assume they were rapists? They were ready to hang Mike Pence. They were ready to kill Nancy Pelosi. They were gouging police officers' eyes. But when it comes to... Uh, sexual hygiene, normal, healthy sexual appetites. Yes, they, they, that's why they stormed the Capitol, because they have a very healthy relationship with women sexually. That's, that's why they get guns. That's why they don't shave or bathe. That's why they're so angry, because they have very loving relationships with women. So there was no danger of, of any uh, women getting raped on January 6th. Uh, well, let's get a, 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 I'd rather listen to Jesse Lee Peters on this. This is my new, uh, my new go-to guy. I, I think he can set us straight about what AOC was thinking on January 6th. Jesse Peters, he's a, a, a Christian talk show host. This woman, Cortez, must be mentally ill or something. She seemed to be mentally ill, all the light, she's there, but the lights are not on. The lights are on, but she's not there. No one's home. It was reported that she wasn't even at the building 
but she thought she was going to be raped? Is that wishful thinking or what? Maybe she wishes she was at the building so she could possibly get raped. Maybe. I don't know. It's just crazy. Yes, that's a, a Christian talk show. Can you? Are you even allowed to talk that way anymore? That That is, uh, this is uh, Jesse Lee Peterson or Peters. Uh, here he is on uh, giving advice to the lovelorn. I've said over and over again that one of the worst mistakes that this country has ever made was to educate women. And that a man should never, ever, ever, never, if he want a family, never, ever, but if you just want to have sex, you can marry a woman with, with educated. But a man should never marry a woman who is educated. She would never, ever, ever make for a good mother and a good wife. A good wife and a good mother. Yeah, he's kind of right, I guess. Well, when we come back, we will talk more about Afghanistan with Peter B. Collins. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. And coming up at 8.30, this is big, we have Professor Juan Cole. He will be joining the brilliant Adnan Hussein for an hour at 8.30 p.m. Dr. Juan Cole, historian and editor of Informed Comment, joins us. This is huge. He, uh, I'm a big, we're all a big fan of Dr. Juan Cole. We will be back with Peter B. Collins. But first, let's listen to some music from the brilliant Professor Mike Steinel. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. Fifteen bucks an hour, five days a week, fifty-two weeks a year. 32,000 years I know it's a long time Honey To 34,020 But when I get there babe I'm gonna be in the money I'm on my way To be a billionaire Now you can make fun of me But I don't really care I have a plan To get there By and by as long as I stay healthy and I never die All I really need is a second job or a third Lift myself up my boots and join that elite herd Of the 600 billionaires in the USA Who make more in a second than I do in a day I'm on my way, yes I do I'm on my way I'm on my way Oh, yes I am I'm on my way To be a billionaire 
Professor Mike Steinell, you're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Please go to my website and sign up for office hours. If you would like to sit in our Zoom room, hit the attend a live taping menu. I'll send you a link and you can come right in. Coming up is Peter B. Collins, who recently was inducted into the Bay Area Hall of Fame. Looking forward to talking to him about Afghanistan. And we also have a very special guest at 8.30 tonight, Dr. Juan Cole, historian and editor of Informed Comment. Thank you, Professor Adnan Hussein. Uh, Professor Adnan Hussein, the host of Guerrilla History, will be conducting that interview. And I'm really looking forward to talking with Dr. Juan Cole from Informed Comment. Peter B. Collins is a retired syndicated radio talk show host and podcaster. He was recently inducted into the Bay Area Radio Hall of Fame. And I am thrilled to have you. I really am. Thank, welcome, Peter B. Collins. David, thank you very much. And I love the intro. I have joined you later in the program. And I got a subway wall. That is so cool. You got the subway wall. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, I, uh, it's the summer. I'm learning After Effects because I 
you know, why have relationships with human beings when there's technology that you can never use uh, that you should be exploring? How are things in the before we get to Afghanistan? How are things in the Bay Area? Are you are you're in the Bay? You're in the Bay Area, right? I am. I live just north of San Francisco in Marin County. And our skies are a little smoky. Uh, we're quite a distance from the Dixie Fire, which is in the northwest part of the state, closer to Mount Shasta. And it continues to rage. They say the containment is 25%, but I think there's some wishful thinking there. And uh, there is a major fire in Oregon that has been declared uh, uh, over, uh, extinguished. But it's it's hot and dry in the West this summer. And of course, we're on uh, self-imposed water rationing. But I did sneak in a shower just before the show. I appreciate uh, that. I didn't want to say I, anything I, about last week. But uh, <laughs> uh, is your microphone scraping against your collar? Let me stop that here. I'll wrap it around my glasses. And that will uh, prevent that. I, I think uh, I apologize. That's my little OCD there. Uh, that's and, OK. OK. No, that's. Oh, I think it's working now. It, it'll probably work if I don't shake my head too much. Right. And don't blink, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is, before we get to Afghanistan, there is a recall election coming up next month. It's already started, I believe. Gavin Newsom is being might be recalled. Who is up against him? Well, let me first uh, just explain that the California recall uh, measure was passed by uh, reformers 100 years ago. And it's uh, it's faulty in two ways. One is that it, it doesn't require any wrongdoing by the governor. There's no Me Too claim. There's no fraud or, you know, serious malfeasance. There are policy differences that people have with Gavin Newsom. The other big flaw is that the voters are given two, a two-part ballot. One is, should the current governor be recalled, yes or no? And then there are 43 people uh, listed for you to choose from. But uh, it is not required that any single candidate on the second list achieve a majority. And so uh, we could have a Republican governor who wins with 25% of the uh, the actual vote. So this boils down to turnout. Do Democrats see a significant threat to nonpartisan voters like me? We're called NPP, no party preference. Do we see uh, this as a power grab by Republicans who uh, are doing this because they're so desperate they know they couldn't defeat Newsom next year when he is up for reelection? So uh, it is a little scary because the polls show that Democrats are kind of blasé about it. Well, it's hard and, to get behind Gavin Newsom, isn't it? Well, not actually. I mean, I, I have some issues with him, but I've known him since he was uh, on the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco. Then he became mayor. He slept through two terms as lieutenant governor while Jerry Brown stiff armed him. And, uh, you know, then he, he got his shot. He is a fairly progressive, but he's a pro-business guy. And uh, he has uh, disappointed progressives on environmental issues because he talks a green game, 
but he first imposed a moratorium on fracking. And then when COVID distracted people, he permitted 100 new uh, fracking sites in the state. He's now sworn off it, uh, but it's by executive order. The legislature is at fault as well. Uh, while it's democratically controlled in both houses, the corporate influence is quite extreme, and uh, Chevron in particular, uh, among the oil giants, has outsized influence in Sacramento. And so the legislature has failed to send him bills to restrict fracking, even to uh, put uh, zones around it to prevent fracking from occurring in residential areas uh, and, and things as simple as that. So uh, we, we do have to share the blame with the Democrats uh, in both houses in Sacramento. That said, uh, Gavin Newsom entered office and issued a, a moratorium on the death penalty, which is something uh, I support him for. Uh, he overall did a good job uh, in managing the initial onset of the COVID crisis. He did grab some power, uh, but there was a vacuum because the legislature basically <laughs> abandoned the state capitol. So uh, they ceded power to him and he took it. That became the pretext for the angry Trumpers who gathered the necessary signatures and they have legally qualified this, uh, uh, you know, recall election. So the top Republicans are Larry Elder. I, well, let me ask you about Larry Elder for a second. Sure. So well, Larry Elder to people. He's an African-American conservative radio host who has operated from Los Angeles for many years. And he does get good ratings. He's a right wing shock jock who refuses to release his tax returns, which speaks to what we were talking about last week. There was an article in the Los Angeles Times about Larry Elder historically not telling us where his money comes from. And they interviewed in the Los Angeles Times a consultant who said radio talk show hosts can be purchased. They're paid to do uh, to do advertising reads yes. and then uh, they are also paid uh, enormous speaking fees and, and book deals and book deals. Mm -hmm. I maintain that this is payola, that Larry Elder is I, I have no evidence. This is just my theory about AM radio, that people like Larry Elder are parroting talking points as though they're commercial reads for like Campbell's soup that he mm -hmm. just puts into the his dialogue, his monologue. But it's paid for by the same people who run the Cato Institute and the Heritage Foundation, and they pay him in other ways. Speaking fees. They There's clearly grift and graft. And technically, it does rise to the level of payola. Because the legal definition of payola is money that is received that is not, not properly declared. So, for example, if he declared, I took 100, 100 grand this month from the Heritage Foundation, and I'm going to now read six talking points from the Heritage Foundation website 
that would actually be legal. <laughs> right. But because it is undeclared, and technically the radio stations are supposed to put it on the commercial log, that uh, it's, a, it's either in-kind or cash received in exchange for the delivery of a message. I, I'm always amazed that nobody's looking, well, I'm not amazed anymore, that nobody's looking into how radio talk show hosts are paid enormous speaking fees and uh, then suddenly parrot the, the so you, you got a problem with success? Yeah, I do. I do. You want to penalize successful people in this country? Well, these are the same people who wanted the minutes of Hillary's speeches before Goldman Sachs. <laughs> but suddenly they won't tell us who's paying them to uh, to speak for ungodly sums of money. OK, Afghanistan, sir. I'm going to assume that you saw this coming 20 years ago. Can I go back even further, David? Because um, when I was 11, my father took a trip to Afghanistan and dad was a, a successful businessman. He, he sold beverages. The family started with spring water. They had and lost an Orange Crush uh, franchise during the Depression. He bounced back after World War II, where he served in the Middle East. Uh, he ran supply trains from Basra to Crimea. Uh, and uh, his bounce back was he was an early uh, developer of frozen concentrated orange juice. So he sold that business to Minute Maid, which was owned by Coca-Cola. And part of the deal was uh, included a Coca-Cola bottling franchise in a small town in, in northwest Ohio. He was also an active Democrat in a Republican machine town. I grew up in Cincinnati. So he kind of stood out uh, in that respect, and he wrote checks to JFK, and he wrote checks to LBJ. And uh, his friend became the Secretary of Commerce, and he went on a junket to Kabul in 1965. And he was offered the opportunity to open the first Coke uh, bottling shop in Kabul. So he came back and consider I'm, I'm 11 or 12. All right. There were two key things that he told me. He said, Peter, this country is way too corrupt. I could never do business. there." So in America or Afghanistan? Afghanistan. Oh, OK. <laughs> but a good question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and his second point was that it is not really a country. It is a group of warlords who have shifting control over certain geographical zones. So that was my first exposure. And I had to go to the Rand McNally and look up, you know, where the fuck Afghanistan was. And today, I think many Americans uh, would have to look it up on their Google Maps because most people don't have a clue. Uh, so. It has been a country that was in the dark ages and has only had moments of exception. One of those was when it was controlled by the Soviets, where it wasn't a, a free country, but uh, women were not discriminated against because communism promotes atheism. Uh, the Muslim aspects were suppressed. Women didn't wear burqas. Uh, but the tribal influences uh, were what 
together with the U.S. support of the Mujahideen, uh, brought down the Soviets uh, when they had to lumber out of Afghanistan in in 1986 or so. And uh, I want to point out on, on Sunday nights, I'm a recovering DJ and I post a bunch of songs on Facebook. And last night I posted a, a satirical song by one of my favorite British uh, post-punk bands, The Stranglers. And they did a series of songs about a mythical character named Vladimir, who was a Russian soldier. And the song that I posted last night is called Vladimir and the Beast. And anybody can find it on YouTube. And it, it mocks uh, the Russians for their failure to understand the culture of the country. And Vladimir becomes hooked on uh, hashish uh, while he's there. Uh, so it, it has an element of, of humor. But what it points out is that uh, the U.S. repeated the same failures that we could have learned from the Soviets if we wanted to have a successful occupation. And that, of course, is a a misguided mission to begin with. But uh, the failure to understand the cultural uh, factors there, including what we capitalized on when we invaded to get Osama bin Laden in late 2001, what was the first thing we did? We hired a warlord named Dostum who proceeded to gun down uh, a bunch of his Taliban uh, enemies. He put them in... Uh, uh, shipping containers and then just, you know, drop grenades or use machine guns to slaughter them. This is, it, it will not be forgotten. Uh, and the Taliban what won't will be, be oh, it'll be for, It won't be forgotten in Afghanistan, but, right. in, but in America, revenge, it's not even known to forget. Right. But the revenge will be extracted and the ability of these warlords and their fighters to shift alliances overnight is really the fundamental reason that the Afghan army cratered so quickly uh, and made Joe Biden look really stupid for those rosy predictions that he made back in July after he met with Ashraf Ghani for the you're on your own kid meeting, which was in June. So, uh, Yes, this was predictable. Like everyone else. Now, has uh, Ghani told the Afghan people that they're on their own as he left? <laughs> he left. Yeah. We, we don't know his whereabouts. Uh, he didn't leave a message. Uh, maybe he tweeted, but I don't follow Twitter. I think he anymore. went to Harvard. I think, I'm pretty sure he went to Harvard. Well, he's a World Bank guy. Mm. Uh, and uh, a professor at USF, Stephen Zunas. Uh, posted an op-ed that Ashraf Ghani posted in, uh, oh, around 1989, uh, saying that the puppet government, the Soviet-backed government, uh, had uh, vanished and had left Afghanistan. Uh, so that's a, a pretty interesting little well, relic they, they of say history. That, they say that Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires. Are we going to have such luck? Do you think that we... We'll give up our imperial ambitions now? No. 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 And, and particularly, let me parse this a couple of things. First of all, uh, like any human being, 
I feel the suffering present and impending of uh, the people who were liberated in Afghanistan, many of whom uh, sucked millions, if not billions of dollars in U.S. taxpayer money uh, as they educated their daughters and uh, lived a a much more modern and uh, evolved uh, lifestyle. And they are going to suffer. And it's it's brutal. Uh, The scene of that uh, U.S. transport plane taking off in Kabul today with hordes of people hovering around it on the runway, the people who got locked out of this flight, including two people who climbed onto the plane and then plummeted to the ground as it took off. Almost as bad as Spirit Airlines. Sorry. (sighs) I know. I know. Sorry. It's too early for that, but I join you in the spirit of your comments. (laughs) I hate spirit and I will never fly it again. Uh, But the this is a highly predictable event. This is a deferred outcome because Bush wouldn't do it. Obama not only wouldn't do it, but he surged twice in a hopeless effort to turn things around. And we knew that the claims of 300,000 armed Afghans under the control of the Kabul government was bullshit. Uh, We knew from the Washington Post expose over the last several years that was based on the SIG-INT, the Special Inspector General, who exposed the, really it's hundreds of billions that we squandered uh, in training up, paying and arming the Afghan military. And it's a mystery to me why we gave up the keys to the Bagram Air Base before we actually got out. Uh, But we're now consigned to using the commercial airport and the Taliban is is running checkpoints of these desperate people who are trying to get on the next American flight out. Uh, But we knew that the 300,000 number wasn't real. There were plenty of people who were getting paid for ghost jobs. And again, coming back to the culture of Afghanistan, it's predictable to anybody. And I'm delighted that Professor Cole is going to join you tonight. I've been talking to Juan Cole for over 15 years, starting with uh, during the Iraq war. He's at the University of Michigan and I visited him there for interviews. A brilliant guy who really has a deep understanding of the landscape. And the the other thing that I want to credit Juan Cole for, uh, uh, even before I learned that he was going to be on your show today, I had read his uh, six winners and losers from the Taliban uh, reclaiming Afghanistan. He is the only commentator who has pointed out the critical role of Pakistan. Pakistan is where the Taliban was invented. It had a long history aligned with the ISI, the uh, CIA equivalent in Pakistan. And while there is a derivative group with a slightly different name, uh, Professor Cole calls them Tariq-e-Taliban, the linkage between the Afghan Taliban and the Pakistani Taliban is uh, they are brothers in arms. And... The governments of Pakistan, uh, you remember the Perv, uh, Pervez Musharraf, who was bought and paid for by the United States, uh, and his successors, uh, 
they have continued to tolerate uh, this cross-border alliance of, of Taliban groups. And you don't hear about that in the New York Times. CNN doesn't talk about that aspect of it. Uh, Pakistan is expected to absorb uh, many refugees, uh, even as they're going to be largely supporting the new government in Kabul. So the misreading by the U.S. of these historical and regional factors is really just the latest colossal blunder. And David, if I may, I took a quick look uh, after the stock market closed today, and Wall Street is still bullish. Lockheed Martin was up $2.27, General Dynamics up 2 bucks, Northrop Grumman up uh, $5.50. Raytheon, which produced uh, General Austin, the current uh, defense secretary, and, and his previous. predecessor. Yeah. The predecessor under Trump, Mark Esper, uh, they were off only 11 cents. Hmm. Uh, and the only loser today was Boeing, which owns McDonnell Douglas, and they were off five bucks, about 2%. So uh, the market is, is okay. The human misery, uh, the colossal blunders uh, don't really affect the, uh, the capitalists. We're dealing with a large segment of the population who believe war is a constant in nature and that if our knives aren't sharpened through war, they become dull and we become vulnerable. There are people I, who believe we always have to be fighting. I agree, David. I, I do want to slightly counter that with uh, my Facebook news feed, which is populated by a lot of smart and uh, left-leaning people, shows that even average folks know the business aspect of this. They know who the profiteers were uh, from this war. Uh, even average people know that we had to get out and that it wouldn't be pretty. Uh, it's even uglier than anybody expected. Uh, but these are beyond the control even of, uh, you know, a big military and uh, empire entity like the United States. Well, what, looking at it from way up in the sky from a satellite, Peter B. Collins, I, I, I have worked for people who were friendly with arms dealers who took money uh, writing for arms dealers, doing shows for arms dealers arms dealers who, who supported the war in Iraq, who believe that America needs to be killing people overseas to keep us safe here, and also believe that the military industrial complex is a, a benevolent force in the world. I'm being, I'm, I'm being serious. They, they think that you know, they keep us safe and there's some bad actors uh, out there. I know people. As you, as you know, words matter. And uh, until the 1950s, the Pentagon was the War Department. Right. And we we euphemized it during the Cold War uh, about, you know, calling it defense. And of course, we now characterize uh, preemptive killing of people with drone strikes as a, a matter of defense. And so the language that is used has led a lot of people 
to accept it. And I also would say that uh, Barack Obama, uh, I I believe it's an unintended consequence. I I don't want to overly uh, demonize him as an individual. He does a pretty good job of that himself. He presided over a shift of the Democratic uh, base from being against Bush's war to being in favor of Obama's uh, uh, broad use of drone strikes to kill people, including a lot of innocents who are bystanders, uh, the messes that Obama created in Syria, in Libya, uh, and uh, you know we we have seen the shift to where the Democrats are now uh, a pro-war party, particularly if if you can find a cause to take on Russia. Uh, and, and so that is a stunning shift that is one of the big surprises of my lifetime. From 30,000 feet looking down, can you understand how people like Rumsfeld, Cheney, Obama, although he won't admit it, believe that war is a permanent, that it's just a, it's a state of nature? Well, Rumsfeld that there are always enemies. There are always enemies out there, right? But Rumsfeld and Cheney are in a special category uh, of neocon hawk, uh, and and Obama is more of a pragmatist. But he clearly campaigned as a a peace candidate and uh, presided over a, a a very hawkish administration, and many people find that very hard to accept when you say it they're shocked uh they they think that you're making things up uh but the reality is uh, pretty clear to me yeah the mistake i keep making is thinking they're gonna get it like they're gonna understand they're finally going to understand our way of thinking they're, they're gonna come around and i'm gonna play you i, I play this over and over again because it it's why people throw punches. Uh, this is Bill Crystal with Katrina Vanderhoevel, who we love, right? We, we're we're fans of hers. Generally, yes. <laughs> uh, not maybe not her family. I think she comes from the the Wasserman fortune, the MCA fortune. I think she married into Lou Wasserman's family. Uh, we'll end on this. Uh, this is Bill Crystal being challenged on uh let me just fix something here uh let me find it i can watch this over and over again because it explains to me it, it bill crystal's reaction to all this just explains everything to me Sitting next to bill crystal man <laughs> i mean the architects of a catastrophe that have cost this country trillions of dollars thousands of lives there should be accountability we should not if there are no regrets for the failed assumptions that have so grievously wounded this nation i don't know what happened to our politics and media accountability but we need it bill because this country should not go back to war we don't need armchair warriors and if you feel so strongly you should with all due respect enlist in the iraqi army that's a very cute line Could no you, no people, but it's real a million a million look, look Iraq, at the displaced thousands of people being killed can i just make a point a million Iraqis have been displaced. You yes. read that story, humanitarian aid for what we have done to that country is a crime. We have done and to that should- country. 
it's a we're a nation of ex-wives is what we are who <laughs> refuse to admit <laughs> we're, we're wrong uh, it, what what are we up against here i mean what, what these people there's nothing you could say to bill crystal that would give him a sleepless night you're right no he he is beyond reach david before i go i would like to just uh invite your listeners and viewers to watch the coverage on the PBS NewsHour, because they made a rare exception and brought on an important voice, a conservative man who I have a lot of respect for, and that's Andrew Basevich. He's a retired. He's been on the show. Yeah, I've had him on the show. Professor of history from Boston U, and also now runs the Quincy Institute. Gold star dad. His his son passed away. Didn't pat, in got, killed, got killed in Iraq. Didn't get passed. Yes. Yeah, you're, you're correct. And I've I've had many great conversations with Basevich and the news hour, you know, I have a lot of criticism of because they particularly in recent years have left out uh, critical voices. But he was uh, presented tonight in a a panel with one other uh, person and uh, he came through very strongly and he is a critic of this long arc of American interventions and regime change operations. He comes at it from the conservative and pro-military perspective. He just wrote a book about conservatism, as a matter of fact. He's a a conservative. Yeah. 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 So I I just want to recommend that because it's a rare moment on the news hour where I think an important voice is heard uh, at the moment, it needs to be heard. Great. Will you come back next week? I love having you. Thank you, Tom sure, Weber. It's, it, it is an honor to have you on the show. Peter B. Collins. Go to it's Peter my B. Pleasure, Co- David. I enjoy it very much. And I'm getting a lot of good feedback from uh, people who are your fans. Yes. And my arm is tired from writing all those letters. <laughs> I have uh, PeterBCollins.com. Thank you so much, Peter B. Collins. What a night. What a night this is. We are about to have, and I'm being serious, a world exclusive. This is huge. Please welcome the host of Tell Your Friends, the world's greatest podcast comedian, my buddy, Liam McEnany. Now, we have a world exclusive. You did something that is truly incredible. I, I've, you, you sent me the link. I sent it to my friends. You and I have had a little problems in the past. Everything right. that you've done to me, what you did to my mother, <laughs> uh, throttling my father on the ventilator, all forgiven. What you did is absolutely incredible. Thank you. Yes. Um, I want to say before we start, Af- I don't consider we Afghanistan lost till we send Rambo in because Rambo won us Vietnam in the 80s. And I think he can win us Afghanistan in 2020. Yes. Yes. I've- Hi. So Rudy Giuliani has hit. Rudy- oh, so let me let me explain before you start. Uh, so Cameo is this website. And this is what David wants to introduce. Cameo is this website where. um where like people who are washed up celebrities or people who are famous, but you know, 
uh, turn out to be traitors to their country and are fighting uh, seven legal battles at once and have very expensive lawyers and need cash, they go and they record personalized video messages uh, for you and your friends. It is one of the most sad things about living in 2021 is this is just like this parade of like ex wrestlers, uh, wash up athletes and former like second bananas in sitcoms. Uh, so my buddy Caleb and I have just been as a gag. Well, let me play year. because a lot of people, but my mother doesn't know what cameo is. So let me play right. you uh, a clip of Rudy Giuliani making a pitch for you to hire him for yeah. cameo. This, you know, Gilbert does this, Jackie the Joke yeah. Man, and all then the stars, all the stars of all, my show, all the former world leaders. And it's anywhere. I mean, some people do something for five bucks. Right. And so, OK, so Rudy Giuliani is having financial difficulties right now. He's being sued right. for a billion dollars by <laughs> Dominion. <laughs> and he may be going to pretty. He's broke. Divorces, yeah. everything. He is. Right. He's broke. And it's really sad because all he wanted to do was destroy our democracy. This is the, this is this should not be happening to an innocent man who simply wanted to bring down 250 some odd years of constitutional law. So here he is. Trump won't pay his legal fees, correct? No, no. Trump won't pay his legal. <laughs> Trump. Uh, Trump has trumped him again. Trump. That's what Trump does to every one of his friends and former business associates is he gets them in trouble and he just strands them. Right. OK, so this is this is real. This is cameo. This is Rudy Giuliani asking you to hire him to give a personalized message. Hi, it's Rudy Giuliani and I'm on cameo. If there's an issue of concern that you want to discuss or a story you'd like to hear or, or, or share with me or a greeting that I can bring to someone that would bring happiness to their day, I would be delighted to do it. It can be arranged and we can talk through the magic of cameo. Thank you. You know, he will bring joy to your day. Who, who wouldn't want to pay? So what now? What is he charging? OK, so, so here's the thing. I'm a very active cameo user. Uh, I buy them for my friend's birthdays. Um, my buddy Caleb and this is this is leading up to this. My buddy Caleb and I just send each other washed up celebrities all, like we've been doing that for a year. The best is the last. So my friend Caleb sent me one that just made me laugh like crazy. It was a ten dollars is Australian comedian. And his message was like, hello, Liam. I understand you're turning 11 today and you're going to turn into a big, strong man one day like me. You're going to be a big, strong man like me. He did that for three minutes. Um, so so uh, so I got an email from Cameo one night that said, Rudy Giuliani's on Cameo. And I looked it up. And at the time, it was only two hundred dollars. And I was like, two hundred, two hundred, because I thought it was three fifty. So he's upped it since then. Oh, but what okay. these guys what these guys usually do is like they get on cameo and they start a little low and they start getting business and I think they're like, "Oh my god, I'm more popular than I thought I would be. I could be charging a lot more than that." Mm -hmm. So he um so he, <laughs> so so I was like, "For $200, I will absolutely buy this uh, for my buddy Caleb." Wow. Yeah. 
And then I was listening to your terrible, terrible show last week. Just, just awful. Just, yes. This is, I don't know what's happened to the show, but, uh, but I heard you talking about Giuliani on cameo. And I was like, let me send this to David. I've been sending it to everyone. It made me so happy. Well, do you mind? We're going to play it. This is a world exclusive. This has not been featured on anybody's podcast. No. Is that correct? Nobody wants it. Nobody gives a shit but you. But this is the greatest thing you've ever done for me. It's, you didn't, it's not directed towards me. So this is a cameo that Rudy recorded for your fake friend. Is that correct? No, no, he's real. But but the, the information you gave. Oh, oh, OK. So the, that's the other thing. So cameo. Normally, you only get like 200 characters, like you only get like 90 words to explain what you want. But this one had five, like four different fields with all these different questions you could answer. And so I started answering all these questions. And the more questions I answered, the more I was like, all right, Giuliani's going to know I'm goofing on him because a lot of these celebrities on cameo, they're like usually pretty sharp. And they're usually like, okay, this guy's making fun of me. I'm not going to record this. So either Giuliani's not that smart or he's really, really desperate for money and doesn't care what he records. Okay. So in other words, you give him the information. You, The money goes into an escrow account. If he doesn't record it, you get your money. I get my money back. Yeah. Okay. And so he recorded assumed, this. It took him four days. I assumed he wasn't going to do it. And then I got the email from Cameo that said, your Cameo's ready. Now, just so we know, your friend, who is your friend? What is the truth about your friend before we show this? My friend Caleb uh, used to be a TV writer. Now he lives in Arizona and like he's, in a, he's pivoted into a different business. Um, and that's like, there's nothing true about about Caleb in what, in what Giuliani says. There's nothing true. This is complete and utter fiction that you made up about your friend Caleb so that Rudy Giuliani could record a cameo. Let us now watch Rudy Giuliani, this world exclusive. This is your greatest work, Liam McEnany. <laughs> I hate to say you might be right. Hello, Caleb. It's Rudy Giuliani. Your friend Liam asked me uh, to give you a, a call, and um, he told me a few things about you. He told me that your priorities are, number one, America, the greatest country on earth. We share that intensely. Number two, your pickup truck, Missy. It <laughs> must be a heck of a pickup truck. And beer-battered shrimp. Well, that seems like a good set of priorities, and you seem like you're a really regular guy, the kind of guy yeah. I'd like to get to know. Now, sounds like you had a tough year last year. We all did. We all we certainly all share in common, those of us, I think, okay. who look at the country the way we do, a great loss and in, in the loss of the presidency uh, in an election in which I, I don't think we've yet heard the final story on exactly what happened. Uh, but we will. Don't, don't have faith. It's all going to come out. The truth always does. And uh, and you had a personal uh, uh, issue with your wife leaving you for your, for your business partner. So what do we got to do? We got to recharge ourselves. You know, I've been through, I've been through a uh, thing similar to what, what you've been through and kind of think I've been through everything. I guess September 11 was beyond anything I, I imagined. And 
the worst thing that ever happened. And in some ways, the greatest in terms of the heroism and the good things that people did for each other. But you learn, you learn that uh, you got to focus on the good things in life. And with those priorities that you have and the kind of regular guy you are, I, I think I think you're the kind of guy that's gonna you're gonna do you're gonna do just fine. You're gonna do just fine. God, God uh, does things uh, for a reason and for a purpose, and there's a reason and purpose here. First of all, on the political front, it just means we got to fight harder in 22 and 24, and keep our eyes on uh, <laughs> keep our eyes on theft, among other things, and be a lot more vigilant about it than we were last time, in advance rather than later. And with regard to you, uh, I'm sure it's going to open up a lot more opportunities for you to find someone that's going to complete you and just be wonderful. So you just keep being optimistic. That's what makes America such a wonderful country because we've always met a country that's optimistic. We may be going through a tough time now, both as a government and personal, but we keep our eyes straight ahead and we're going to be fine. We ask for God's help and we get through, we get through things, um, get through things that other people maybe that don't have the kind of freedom and the kind of liberty and the kind of background that we have in this country gives us great strength. This freedom we have gives us great strength, which is why we have to protect it and it'll help you with the hand of God on you to get through whatever personal issues exist. And you're going to do fine. God bless you. Love to meet you. Take care. He did that in one take, I bet. Let me ask you a question. Yes, sir. How great was September 11th? It was great. Really? In some ways, it was the best thing that's ever happened to America. <laughs> I still hate him. I, I, I can see I'm going to have to watch this again because I want to feel sorry for him. I hate him. I want nothing but bad to happen to him because um, of the threat, because of what he said on January 6th and because what mm-hmm. he said in the lead up to January 6th, he is an enemy of democracy. He well, is David, the worst of the worst. And I want to feel sorry for him, but I have nothing but contempt for him. I don't know if you noticed, but in this video, he kind of announced that he's going to try to steal the election in 22 and 24. In advance, in advance. In advance. In advance, we have to really think about theft in advance this time, not try to steal it on the day. <laughs> did you ask but him? Steal it. Did you a- no. did you did you ask him to talk about the election? OK, so I did you ask him, him to talk about 9-11? OK, so I, I told him that my buddy was depressed about two things. <laughs> One, the way the election went. Good. And two, uh, his wife leaving him for his business partner. <laughs> In one of the other fields, I did say that uh, he that my that Caleb really respected his leadership on 9-11. And I was hoping that he could show some of that leadership in getting him through this difficult time. Um, I certainly did not say 9-11 was one of the greatest in some ways, one of the greatest things that ever (laughs) happened in America. You were dancing. I remember you you called me on 9-11 and said, (laughs) 
I was in Jersey City. I was dancing on a rooftop. You were dancing on a rooftop. <laughs> I have to play that again, if you don't mind. I, no, no, I just want to say, I also want to know what the thing he's been through that's similar. Uh, like, he said, I've been through, you'll see, I've been through something similar. Bad, bad marriages, bad prostate. His cousin wouldn't call him back. His cousin. He's got that idiot son who's running for governor. <laughs> Let, let's play it one more time, because I, I, I think if I watch it one more time, I can start to feel sorry for him. This this bears I have to watch this like the Zapruder film over and over and over. OK, this is uh, this is Rudy recording a cameo <laughs> for our friend, Liam McEnany's friend. Here we go. Caleb. Caleb. Hello, Caleb. It's Rudy Giuliani. Your friend <laughs> Liam asked me uh, to give you a, a call, and um, he told me a few things about you. He told me that your priorities are, number one, America, the greatest country on earth. We share that intensely. Mm. Number two, your pickup truck, Missy. <laughs> must be a heck of a pickup truck. And beer-battered shrimp. Well, that seems like a good set of priorities, and you seem like you're a really regular guy, the kind of guy I'd like to get to know. Now, sounds like you had a tough year last year. We all did. We all we certainly all share in common, those of us, I think, who look at the country the way we do, a great loss in, in the loss of the presidency uh, in an election in which I, I don't think we've yet heard the final story on exactly what happened. Uh, but we will. Don't, don't have faith. It's all going to come out. The truth always does. And uh, and you had a personal uh, uh, issue with your wife leaving you for your, for your business partner. So what do we got to do? We got to recharge ourselves. You know, I've been through, I've been through a uh, thing similar to what, what you've been through and kind of think I've been through everything. I guess September 11 was beyond anything I, I imagined and uh, the worst thing that ever happened and in some ways the greatest in terms of the heroism and the good things that people did for each other. But you learn, you learn that uh, you got to focus on the good things in life. And with those priorities that you have and the kind of regular guy you are, I, I think I think you're the kind of guy that's going to you're going to do you're going to do just fine. You're going to do just fine. God, God uh, does things uh, for a reason and for a purpose. And there's a reason and purpose here. First of all, on the political front, just means we got to fight harder in 22 and 24 and keep our eyes on uh, <laughs> keep our eyes on theft, among other things, <laughs> and be a lot more vigilant about it than we were last time in advance rather than later. And with regard to you, uh, I'm sure it's going to open up a lot more opportunities for you to find someone that's going to complete you and just be wonderful. So you just keep being optimistic. That's what makes America such a wonderful country because we've always been a country opti that's optimistic. We may be going through a tough time now, both as a government and personal, but we keep our eyes straight ahead and we're gonna be fine. We ask for God's help and we get through, we get through things, um, get through things that other people maybe that don't have the kind of freedom and the kind of liberty and the kind of background that we have in this country gives us great strength. This freedom we have gives us great strength, which is why we have to protect it. And it'll help you with the hand of God on you 
to get through whatever personal issues exist. And you're going to do fine. God bless you. Love to meet you. Take care. I think he got it in one take. Well, Liam, I have a treat for you. I'm going to go out on a limb before you before you show me your treat. I'm going to say he probably wouldn't love to meet my friend Caleb. He'd love to meet you. He would love to meet you. He's just a regular guy. He's just a regular guy. All right, Liam. Mm -hmm. I got my friends together and Uh Rudy has lowered his price to twenty five dollars. And. 100 of my friends chipped in a quarter and we got we got Rudy Giuliani to record a cameo for you, Liam McEnany. This is this is a cameo that uh, we got uh, Rudy Giuliani to record for Liam. Hey, Liam McEnany, your friend David told me about how you thought you had to pass gas on the number four bus, but it turned out to be more than gas. Man, Liam McEnany, that has to be (laughs) tough. Wearing white shorts on a Manhattan scorcher smack dab in the middle of rush hour with your girlfriend standing right next to you. I feel you, (laughs) Liam McEnany. I really do. But it's a reminder of how precarious life is. One moment you think you're taking your lady downtown to your favorite Korean barbecue, and suddenly one blast out of your leaky balloon knot, and poof, everything changes in a second. Poof. It's all over. Poof. Ronnie Bilge, dripping down your legs, Liam McEnany. You look for your girlfriend. Poof. She's gone. In the blink of a balloon knot. Won't even return your phone calls. I feel for you, Liam McEnany. Reminds me of 9-11. Beautiful fall day. I was planning a walk in the park with my second wife, Judith Nathan, who turned out to be a voracious harpy. And the next thing you know, well, I don't have to tell you what happened that day. It's all in my book. Leadership. I guess the point is, Liam McEnany, never take anything for granted. Cherish each moment. You never know. You just never know. One day you're with a woman who you can't figure out where you end and she begins. And then poof, intestinal air completely betrays you by turning solid. Poof, she's gone. Poof, all that's left is a memory. Okay, take care, Liam McEnany. And next time you're riding the bus in white shorts, remember to exercise constant vigilance. Because... Things don't always turn out the way you planned. Bye, Liam Nakanini. You sound like someone I would like to get to know. 9 11. That is so nice of uh, Rudy Giuliani. I love the way he signs off. 9-11. Who dares say this isn't the greatest country on earth? Oh, well, that was uh, $25. That was uh, <laughs> Rudy Giuliani recording. A you know, I'm, we're going to do more of those. 
every week. Here's, here's the thing. Rudy knows not only am I a regular guy, I'm an extremely regular guy. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that was Robert Smigel. Was that really? Yeah, that oh, my God. That was great. I was talking to him, and your thing <laughs> comes up. Your thing, and we started laughing so hard. And then <laughs> we go, we, but it was like, it's still $350. And I said, the hell with that. We'll just record our own. <laughs> it's cheaper. <laughs> well, you know what? We should undercut Rudy Giuliani. What's he charging for three fifty for? for I think it's five, up to for five dollars. What? Maybe up to four or five hundred at this point. Oh, he's such a genius, Michael. He really is. Really, like anything he touches, is a. That was really funny. He is a genius. He is. A can you send me? Can you send me a copy of that? No, that's about three hundred fifty okay. bucks. Okay, well that's that's okay. Fair. So that's fair. I said to you, I called you. And I said, come on the show. I promise you, I'm going to make you happy. Did I make yeah. you happy? You made me exceptionally happy. That, that was, was very funny. That was perfect, wasn't it? <laughs> I hope you guys, I genuinely hope you guys do that every week. <laughs> My wife, Judith Nathan, who is a of the voracious Harvey. It made me so happy. Uh, now you're in. Oh, let me. Uh, so you're in. You're in Socrates. Take a moment. Take yeah, a moment. Um, I am in. So I am in Socrates. Actually, I'm in Claremont State Park right now, off the Hudson. What are you doing? Uh, just honestly trying to uh, relax and enjoy nature. Um, also visiting my friend Carla, who lives nearby. Right. She's uh she she used to be a ventriloquist, and now she's pivoted, and now she's like a an acclaimed wildlife photographer. Wow! Like six years ago, she bought a camera and learned how to shoot animals, and now she's like in the New York Times and National Geographic and and uh, Autobahn, I think all that shit. All that shit. So and so all that shit. And you're in the middle of Saugerties has a big rich comedy tradition. I think like. Isn't Goldthwait from Saugerties and Kevin Mean? There's a whole, I think, uh, uh, Tom Kenny. There's a whole comedy mafia from Saugerties. Yeah, the, uh, the I, I don't know. Honestly, I just, I know this is where Woodstock took place. Um, and if you go to, if you go to the town of Woodstock, there's rich people who dress like hippies. But that's, uh, that's really all I know about the area. Yes. And uh, are you going to be in New York at all? I was just in New York for a couple of weeks, David. Um, and I specifically did not ask if you wanted to get together. I hope you noticed that. Okay. I made, I made it a point of not asking if you wanted to get together. Have you seen Alex? I have not seen Alex Brazil. We exchange texts once every six months, but that's about, that's about the extent of he's the busiest man in show business. He's yeah. climbing his way to the top right now. Is he doing well? I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> right, isn't he your producer? Yeah. Shouldn't you be in touch with your producer at some point? <laughs> Although, let's be honest, what are the odds he listens to this show? And what are the odds? I mean, <laughs> this, what, like this audience is going to believe that anybody produces this shit. 
I don't think he does. I honestly, I, I genuinely, I'll ask you off Mike, but I genuinely am curious how much work he does on the show now. My show? Yeah. How much work do I do on the show? That's the question. No, I watched it last week and you threw to a guy who introduced his mom running a segment. Mm-hmm. That's the laziest thing I've ever seen. Let me let me throw to a guy whose mom is just going to take over the show for an hour and do my job for me. We're a small little show doing important work. We have. Quick- <laughs> what did you do for that hour? What do I do for you that? Take I, a first nap. Of, first, it was a half hour. You jerk off. No, you I, jerk I, off. Like, I, what were you I doing? Change my truss. <laughs> you had to write your kids out of that truss. Uh, yes. Uh, are you doing any stand-up now? Uh, I am not actually. Uh, so I was in Louisville last time we talked. I just oh, hit yeah. Louisville. Right. I was I was exhausted that day. That was a bad segment. This is a better segment because I'm much awake. Better, yeah. Um, but, uh, but I was in Louisville. I'm, you know, I've got this side gig just producing uh standup for Sirius XM. Like I'm a freelance producer. I don't work directly for them, but I, there, I get a lot of content on their air. So it's just at the comedy caravan in Louisville recording standup comics. And now I'm just kind of taking the rest and of was, the summer off. Was anybody off. funny down there in Louisville? Uh, yeah, of course. David, I mean, I think we both know that the road is full of nothing but exceptional talent who really uh, shoot, you know, that's for the (laughs) there were some really good comics on that show. Um, And there was there were a couple of middle of the road stand ups who will probably uh, do very well in their careers. Um, But uh, but there was actually some really down in Louisville. There were. Are they wearing um, masks? What's that? Are they wearing masks at the comedy clubs? Oh, yeah. Oh, in Kentucky? Of course. Um, I would say my friend Margaret happened to be on a road trip and happened to be coming through Louisville that night. And I was like, yeah, come hang out and watch the show. She was literally the only person in that club wearing a mask, including me, by the way. I don't know why I didn't wear a mask. Uh, It was very dumb. I went to the Grand Ole Opry a couple nights later. And uh, fucking, I I walked in, and when I was in the theater, I realized I wasn't wearing a mask. And I looked around, and I realized there were like three other thousand people at the Opry not wearing masks. Uh, so I don't know why I'm not dead of the Delta variant right now. Yeah, wear a mask, get a vaccine. It's that yeah. simple. It's that simple. Well, Liam, only- we're, we're going to wrap it up. Thank you so much, Liam McEnany is the host of Tell Your Friends the World's greatest podcast great job thank you thank you come back next and by the way thank you for that smigel video send me a link or something i have a friend that wants to see it i'll send you all right thank Thank you you. buddy you are listening to the david feldman show davidfeldmanshow.com and i hope he's here howie klein are you there I am here. In fact, that applause made me start applauding also. I, oh. I never realized applause makes you want to applaud. My friend Liam McEnany had $250, and he hired Rudy for Cameo. So we played it. Fantastic. It's really funny. It is, I'll, I'll send you a, uh, a copy of it. 
Well, Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC, which raises money for progressive candidates around the country. And he also writes Down With Tyranny. You, uh, you know, we, there's accountability in this world, Howie Klein. And I, I, I'm, I'm going to hold you accountable. Okay? Okay. All right. This is what you wrote about Afghanistan uh, on June 23rd. No, that's not it. Uh, this is what you said. And uh, I want to know if you want to take this back. This was a tweet you have. Uh, June 23rd, 2021, Howie Klein. The Wall tweet. Street. I'm sorry? A tweet. This is a tweet, but it's also from uh, Down with Tyranny. Oh, okay. Because usually I, I only tweet when I'm drunk. Well, you were drunk tweeting. I, I want to know if you still stand by this. This is your tweet from June 23rd. This was six weeks ago. Okay. The Wall Street Journal reports that the Afghan government could collapse within six months. My guess, having spent a great deal of time there twice, and not just in Kabul, is that the inevitable collapse will come closer to six weeks, will come in closer to six weeks than six months. Six weeks later to the day. Why would I take that back? I am very proud of that. <laughs> I, I think you're going to get and a Biden visit. me as his national security advisor. <laughs> I, what did you know that the CIA didn't know? Well, that you know what, David, honestly, that scares me. And uh, and I've written about being scared about that. Uh, first of all, they had to have known. It's impossible that they didn't know. It, it, I mean, it's like not like I'm like Einstein or something like that. Anyone would know. That this the there was the Afghan army was a shell, and they certainly knew that they, the generals have been telling well some of the colonels I don't know about the generals have been telling them that there's no Afghan army for real, uh, you know people like Ghani and, and everyone below him who could get away with it was stealing the money. You probably heard this already today, but he tried to steal so much money on his way out. Uh, uh, yesterday in a helicopter that it couldn't all get stuffed into the helicopter and they left stacks of money on the tarmac. Hmm. That's our money. That's American taxpayer money. They weren't paying the soldiers. Why would, why would the soldiers fight for them? There was like no reason to, to, to keep continue fighting for them. Yeah, it looked really bad. Um, but it's surprising because Ghani seems like a reliable partner. You're joking, of course, right? I think he went to, didn't he go to Harvard? Isn't he like some interloper? I don't know where he went, but he does not seem like a reliable partner. He seemed like a, a fast-talking crook. Well, but, you know, Afghanistan, I, I've been, as you know, I've I got in a Volkswagen van in 1969, and I drove all over Asia. And the societies that I came across are, are beyond belief how corrupt they are. I mean, I, I, one of the things I remember, standing in line, for a really long time uh, at an Indian post office. I wanted to send, there were no cell phones then. You, if you wanted to call your home, it would it cost you like, you know, like a, a week's salary or something. Uh, so, so I wasn't in touch with my family. I was away for, you know, so many years and never spoke to them. But I used to send them postcards. So I was in this Indian post office. First of all, people would just cut the line. You know, if, if they were important or of a high caste, they would just go right to the head of the line. And no one thought, 
you know, anything about it. But that, so that low level of corruption was in, inbred into the society. Then when I got to the front of the line, finally, I had to have an argument with, with the, um, you know, the person behind the counter about how much it costs to send a postcard. I mean, it's not like, you know, it weighs something that's different from, <laughs> from another postcard, you know, and, and, and the guy was trying to cheat me. He was trying to pocket a few cents for himself. And that is, that's natural. And I realized that I was, you know, breaking into their uh, way of life it, everywhere in Asia. The corruption is, you know, it permeates society. Now here, there's a lot of, by the way, Peter B. Collins, but Peter B. Collins was on earlier and his father did business in Afghanistan said exactly what you just said about the corruption. Well, you can't miss it. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, you know, it's it's part of the culture though. It's not always evil. Like I I I, w- I learned pretty quickly. I don't know if I've ever told you this or not, but I I actually learned this um, in Morocco when my girlfriend and I uh, first got to Europe, uh, and and the idea was is we were going to you know get the van and then we we're going to drive down to Morocco, and then she was going to go back to America and I was going to go on my happy way. Uh, but we, we picked up her parents who, who detested me. They totally hated me. I mean, I think her, they were both psychiatrists and her mother must have like, you know, known before I did that I was gay. Uh, but we picked them up and we spent a couple of weeks of misery with them. But one of the things her mother was, this, they had just come from Morocco. We, we picked them up in Denmark or something. And they were, um, they had this really nice thing. I don't remember what it was. And, and the mother said, yes, I bargained and bargained. And she was like a Lower East Side Jewish lady. So she knew what bargaining was. She said, I bargained and I bargained and I bargained. And I finally got this for $50. It took me three hours. And we went there. We found the same thing in the same town. And they started the, they started the price because we looked like two uh, impoverished hippies. Whereas the mother looked wealthy, they started at fifty dollars. Where the mother got it down to, and we got it down to twenty dollars. Right. But that's when I started learning that in the East, it's part of the the uh, the pattern of life and the rhythm of life is bargaining everywhere. And I remember when I went to Afghanistan is, is when I started getting serious about like actually spending some money. Every now, sometimes I had no money at all. Sometimes a shipment of hash that I sent from these places would get through America, and and uh, and all of a sudden I would have real money. And, and in Afghanistan, I remember at one time I wanted to buy, and this, uh, I, I, want to, I, uh, I wanted to buy a, a rug, a beautiful uh, Afghan handmade rug. For Frank and, Luntz, for Frank Luntz's head. No, not that kind of oh, rug. Okay. I still have this one in my bedroom, as a matter of fact. I love this rug so much. It's so beautiful. I mean, this is like 1969 that I bought this rug, and I still have it and love it and cherish it. In any case, it took me three days of bargaining, of, of sitting down and having tea, walking out in anger. I'll never come back. I'll, I'll you know, I hate you. Uh, then going back the next day. And it took three days for me to get the rug at a reasonable price. I learned in Afghanistan that if I showed up anywhere in my shiny new Volkswagen bus, I would pay five times the cost of, of what someone who looked like a disheveled hippie would pay. Now, so I would have to, like, you know. What were you doing? You've ta- years ago, you talked about this. You drove 
from Europe to Afghanistan in a right. So, so yes. So like I said, my girlfriend had another year of college. Uh, I figured I'd spend some time. I had graduated. I didn't, you know, just foot free, foot free and fancy, whatever it is, <laughs> whatever it is. I figured I would just uh, drive to wherever. Didn't have any real plan, and I also didn't have any money at that time at all. Um, and um, so what I did is I, I would go to the American Express office where hippies would go to cash their American Express traveler's checks. Probably people who are listening don't know what a traveler's check is, but in those days it was a big deal. Everyone who's hearing this story who has any interest at all should go to Netflix uh, when you next time you go to Netflix and, and watch this, sh- this TV show that I just watched called The Serpent, uh, which is about this. Uh, kind of. In any case, I would go to American Express and I would, there would always be signs like, I'm looking for a ride to, you know, wherever, uh, Kathmandu. I'm looking for a ride to Goa. And I would, uh, eventually I assembled a crew and there they had to pay for the gas and any kind of tolls or anything like that. And I would give them a ride for one day. And then if I liked them, I'd give them a ride for another day. And eventually I found the whole crew. So I, I yes, I drove. Uh, I didn't know where I was really going to go. Were you held at gunpoint at one time? Oh, that's yes, yes, I was held at gunpoint. That's a long time later. But meanwhile, I drove. You, are you telling me to get to the get to that? And forget no, no, I'm just and- I'm just remembering that you <laughs> talked about this like five years ago, and I'm having the same reaction, which is well, why, I write, why I would anybody why would anybody do this? That cannot be safe. No, no, it wasn't safe. But I was a teenager. And when you're a teenager, you don't know any better. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine doing something like that now, but I was a kid. And, you know, I was having a good time. And, uh, you know, you, you think you're immortal and nothing's going to happen. And these guys are standing with, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't think they had Uzis then, but they were standing with some kind of dangerous looking thing. And they were going to shoot us. I was with a bunch of uh, other hippies overlooking uh, Kabul in Afghanistan. And, you know, and you see what these Taliban's look like now. That's what these guys look like. And, but it turned out one of the guys was tripping on acid. This Australian guy was tripping on acid at the time. And, you know, after them holding us with our hands over our heads for, and, and babbling away in their language and, and nothing was happening. We're just standing there with our hands over our heads and they're making sounds that they're going to kill us. Um, the, the guy on acid started laughing and took his hands down. He put his hands down and they, at first they would start going crazy like they were going to shoot us all. And then eventually they started laughing too. And then we all sat down and smoked a bowl of hash. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it was a different kind of world, I guess. <laughs> I guess. Right, right. So, but, uh, yeah, I, 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 Afghanistan is one of the countries that I really, really loved, that I absolutely like, thought was better than any other place. It was Morocco, Afghanistan, Nepal. Those are my three favorites. Can't go to Nepal anymore because the, pol- the pollution is so beyond belief that uh, you, you need an oxygen tank to walk around there. Uh, you can still go to Morocco, and obviously uh, you're not going to go to Afghanistan. Well, you know, what I was, I was thinking, thinking about this a few minutes ago. That I was reading how there was there were 3000 american residents or american citizens or americans left in afghanistan these are non embassy employees these are just americans who live in afghanistan and they're stuck there and i'm thinking what do they have shit for brains how is it that they didn't get out of there two or three or four or five days ago or a month ago what what what's, what's going on with them how how is it that they're still in afghanistan that it seems in, in it seems insane. Afghanistan 
is, is, has always been a very, very, very dangerous place. You never see a male. You never see any females, or at least in my day, you didn't see any females. But you never see a male without a gun. And I don't mean a, a, a pistol. I mean a, a long gun. Every you wouldn't a male wouldn't walk out of his house without his pants, and this, the likelihood of walking out of his house without his gun is the same as walking out of his house without his pants. Impossible. Never right. happens. Right. One of the one of the things um, that was interesting for me, uh, you know, most most Americans would just go to Kabul and hang out in Kabul. It was always a an expat community there of you know mostly transient on the way back or forth from India. It was a great place. You could get any. You, I mean, obviously you get hash, but you can get any, any drug. You can, you, you know, cocaine over the counter, heroin under the counter. You can get any drug you wanted in, in a pharmacy in Afghanistan and anything else you wanted in Afghanistan. It was an amazing, amazing corrupt country beyond belief. In fact, I, I'm, I'm going off a tangent here now, but way off a tangent. But at one time I got stuck, I got caught at the border with 50 kilos of, of the best Mazari Sharif hash. And I was arrested. And they seized my van, and they and they took my hash, and they threw me in a hole in the earth. Uh, this is really it. yes, but I I luckily my partner in this enterprise was a rel- was the postmaster general of um, Kabul, and he was the son of a, of a re- kind of a relative. I mean, yes, a relative of the king's, not a close relative, but a relative of the king, and. Um, and he had me out of there uh, in one. I don't think I would have lasted one night. He had me out of there before the night. Wow. <laughs> and the next day, I had my van and my hash back. And they said, "You're not going to be able to take this hash out of the country." I said, "All right, fine." But they let you keep <laughs> your hash. I had the hash back. Yeah, they didn't keep it. No, they gave it back to me. Wow. So, I had, but I had to sell it in the country. I, I, you know, I had to sell it. I had, you know, basically, I didn't sell it at a loss. But you know, if I would have gotten, my plan was to get it to Scandinavia, where I could have made, you know, you know, ten, twenty, thirty times more than I paid for it. But instead, I sold it back in Kabul to people who weren't going to go up to Mazar, and this was the best hash in the world. This this hash is so good that you could you could take one tote, and three or four hours later, you're getting higher. That's that's how. <laughs> Um, anyway, what I, but what I was going to say is that most people just hung out in Kabul, which, and I've hung out plenty in Kabul also, but, but at one point I, I, I went everywhere in the country. And at one point I went with some Canadian friends up into the Hindu Kush, which is very, there are no roads. That's, and we went by horse. And, and when I say there were no roads, I, I meant there were no roads. I mean, none, there's nothing. There's like paths of, <laughs> of dirt paths. And we, we, the village, well, I, I fell off the horse. I kind of broke my ankle uh, bad enough so that I couldn't ride. It was winter was coming on. They went back to Kabul. I'm in this little hamlet with basically two families in it. And one of them took me in and I became really good friends with, with this kid. Uh, we, you know, we totally bonded. And no one had ever heard of the United States. Literally had never heard of it. They had never heard of Europe either. I mean, there was a kind of like a, a, an awareness that there was something out there that was different, but they didn't, they didn't know. They, no one had experienced electricity. No one knew how to write. Uh, I don't know if anyone knew how to read or not, but, but there was no, no implements for writing in the, in the little, uh, in the little hamlet. My best friend got married while I was there. The wedding was like amazing. Uh, but there were, but I, I, there was not only did, there were no women at the wedding, no bride, no mother of the groom, <laughs> no women. There, we all ate these big 
platters of food, which the women had prepared. And after, after we got to eat it, then, um, you know, like the big chunks of meat that were in uh, the, the, the rice, um, the dogs would get fed from the platter. Uh, the servants who were actually slaves would get fed from the platter. And then what was left after that got that brought into where the women were in the back of the house. But I never, I lived in that house. I never saw his mother, his sisters, or his wife ever. And I lived in the house with them for a whole winter. Wow. So, you know, I remember in Kabul, one time I was, I was walking along and a, a Mercedes, which was all rich people had Mercedes there. And a Mercedes pulled up and these two properly dressed women, they weren't wearing, uh, you know, the whole, you know, hooded outfit. They were, but they were covered up pretty well. And they got out of, they both got out. They were, it was a, at, near the bazaar. They were going to go into the bazaar and buy something. They had obviously been educated young women who are home visiting their family. They all, all the Afghan families who had wealth were, would all send their kids to Europe, mostly to France to, to be educated. And these women got out of the car and immediately within, before their feet were touching the ground, practically there were these mullahs all over them spitting on them. Like I'm, when I say spitting, I mean like, like gobs of phlegm were coming out and being spit at these poor women who started screaming and jumped back in the car and the guy uh, rode off. But it it, it was such a primitive, primitive society. And, and, and then the Russians came in and there was kind of a renaissance and, and, and the Russians did amazing things for that society. And women suddenly were able to go in the streets and able to, you know, walk around without, you know, being completely covered head to toe. And, um, and then the Taliban took over. I was writing to well, the, I, was I writing, would assume when the CIA was funding the Mujahideen and yes. Os- Osama bin Laden, that the CIA said, we're not going to help you, Osama bin Laden, if you're going to be uh, sexist or misogynistic, right? No, no, oh. they, they, they didn't care about that at all. Our and, CIA? And, and, yeah, not the CIA. Uh, American policy doesn't care about that. You know, now people are making a fuss about it, but only for their own uh, partisan goals. It's you know, I remember once having this like big fight with a congresswoman. Uh, this was like, oh, let's see, I think 2010, so quite a long time ago, and and she was saying how we can't, you know, she was a peace person. She ran on peace and that, you know, we, we were all for peace in Afghanistan and withdrawal, but, but she, but she didn't really want to get out. She didn't think it was right for the troops to get out now because we had to save the women first. And I said, what does that, what does that mean? Were we going to turn around thousands of years of history and we save the women? I, I don't even know what save the women means. You're never going to save the women. You want to save the women, give them all knives and tell them to kill their husbands in the, in the middle of the night. That's the way you're going to save the women. Otherwise, forget it. And she never spoke to me again. Yeah, I'm not sure that's the the correct answer. Let me read you something you wrote about Afghanistan, if you don't mind, and and we'll talk about it. You I said, write about Afghanistan almost every day. I don't I want to, and I'm I've been impelled to. But go go ahead. This is what you wrote. I believe it was yesterday over at Down with Tyranny. Who lost Afghanistan is a stupid partisan question that will, no doubt, be an election issue for morons. Whose fault was American policy in Afghanistan might be a better question. And I know the answer. 
The fault lays entirely with three men, three men for whom the buck stopped, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump. Not Biden, the other three who, per- who perpetuated the senseless, actually insane war for two decades. You go on to write, all three should be dragged to The Hague in chains to face trial as war criminals and never see the sky again. And you know, I've never, have I ever said anything nice about Joe Biden? No, on your that's show? why I was so. What do you but think about Joe his- Biden made the right decision? <laughs> I mean, here I am making, saying something nice about Joe Biden, but he was right. There was, America should not have been there. I mean, even Trump, when he wanted to get out in his stupidity, but he still wanted to get out of there, he was right also. America has no place and will never have a place in Afghanistan. That's the way it is, and that's the way it'll always be. There is no other place like Afghanistan. I've been everywhere in the world. There is no other place like Afghanistan. It's, it's like it's literally you're, you step back into the, into the biblical times. You, you, it has to be a kind of amazing when you see like a wheel. Right. <laughs> it's just like, it's just so, so primitive. And the right. people are so primitive that it, it's phenomenal. Now, on, on some level, when you become friends with these primitive people, it's wonderful because they're not, they're not, they're not duplicitous. They're, they're literally, I mean, they, they, some of them can be, but in the countryside, you, you, you tend to not meet, meet duplicitous people. You meet, you meet open, honest, hardworking people. I, 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 and that's why I loved Afghanistan so much. People say, what'd you like about Afghanistan? And well, I like the scenery. Sure. I like the food. I like the music, but, um, it really was the people that, that, and that's what it was. It was just, okay. but accountability. let's talk about accountability. It goes back to Rumsfeld, Tenet, Cheney, and Bush. Uh, Dr. Juan Cole will be coming up in about an hour, hour and 10 minutes. Oh, good. He knows what he's talking about. He does. And I want to read you something he wrote as an explainer about Afghanistan. Let me read this to you and ask you what this sounds remarkably similar to. This is what uh, Juan Cole Uh, wrote about Afghanistan over the weekend. Afghanistan is a multi-ethnic state. You have your mostly Sunni Pushtuns who speak an Eastern Iranian language. You have your Sunni Tajiks north of Kabul who speak a dialect of Persian called Dari. And you have Sunni speakers of other Persian dialects in the West near Iran. You have the Persian-speaking Shiites in the center of the country, the Hazara, who often have an East Asian appearance. In the far north, you have Sunni Turkic speakers, Uzbeks and Turkmen. Uh, I, I, I don't want to criticize your guest who I respect and, and, and like he didn't get that 100% right, but it doesn't matter. Why? Point it it is, reminds me. Dari is really a, a, like an archaic form of Farsi, the language of Iran. And I know that because I learned how to speak it. Okay. It sounds like invading Iraq. The kind of thinking that. Well, one, there was, there, no, uh, Iraq was a relatively modern society. But I'm talking uh, about the divisions, the sectarian conflict, the potential. To, to, the, the, there was no way you can bring these people together unless you're. Well, I don't want to say it, but what kind of thinking 
went into this invasion of Afghanistan? Why, why were we, did, did Cheney, Bush, and Rumsfeld really think that they could save Afghanistan united and turn it into a democracy? Well, I don't think they ever thought about that or cared about it. And I don't know what was in the, any of their minds, of course, or ch especially not Cheney's who was in charge. I don't know what, what he was thinking. But I can tell you that what it seemed like to me at the time was what they were, these guys, it was like some guys in Iowa who had never been out of Dubuque County were making decisions and didn't have a clue any about Afghans or, or anything about Afghanistan and, and American policy, I felt, was being set by people who did, had no idea what they were dealing with, like none whatsoever. And, and it still seems to me that to, still seems the case to me to this day, especially when you think of all the Americans who have been there in, in, in the military and, and in related uh, situations have been there for so many years. But then I think about it and I realize, but where have they been? They've only been in Kabul, the, one of the most corrupt places on earth. And in Bagram, the, the, the U.S. <laughs> recently, the, the U.S. air base. Uh, and that's it. They don't go anywhere else unless they're, you know, fighting. And then they're, you know, then it's a different thing. They're going there and fighting. I have a, a, a story, by the way, going up in about 20 minutes about Afghanistan, where I try to expand on the stuff that I've written. And I, and I talk about that a little bit. And, and the, it, it starts off with, a, with Hamid Karzai, who is the longest serving president uh, while it was a puppet state of America. And he very much criticizes the U.S. In fact, I cut out the whole first 10 minutes of the video just to get right to his cr critique of the U.S. Um, there. Now, he was a very corrupt guy also. But but like I said, that's part of the rhythm of life in, in that part of the world. Corruption is our name. That is what it is. No, it would be impossible not to be corrupt. I'm sure people hearing the story about um, Ghani stuffing uh, cash in, into his helicopter would say, so what? Or, or yeah, and what's the punchline? Right. I mean, they, they it's just the way it is there. But anyway, uh, Karzai uh, is, is a corrupt guy too. But it, what shocked me today, I mean, his stuff was interesting, the stuff he says, you, you watch it and you'll see. But um, he, he he's there in Afghanistan with his family, including his beautiful young granddaughters, three of them that were in the video with him. And there, uh, he didn't get out. Now, the Taliban could go to his house in an hour and just slaughter everybody in the house without thinking twice about it. And I, I mean, unless he's already made a, made some kind of deal with them, which is very possible that could happen. And a lot of Americans heard the NPR show the other day that had a, um, uh, the woman who, who came to the U S when she had eight or 11 or something like that. She's and lived in the U S went to elementary school, high school, college in the U S and then went back to Afghanistan until yesterday. She was the acting minister of education and she had an opportunity to get out also. And she, and she didn't take it. She said, you know, unlike most of the Afghan uh, cabinet who fled, uh, she, she said to her husband, and she has young children, she said to her husband, our whole country is here. We are, we are going to leave when our whole country is here. She was, she was in charge of educating girls, which the Taliban isn't a big fan of. And she knew what she was doing. I mean, at the end of it, there was a very poignant moment at the end of this broadcast, uh, which, is, which is available online if people are interested in it, where she says, um, 
you know, I may not be talking to, to your audience again. And that's how it's sung. And she knew that she was a very good chance that she and her family were going to be slaughtered, which I'm kind of guessing is going to happen. But you know something, what I wrote in the piece that's going up in a a few minutes on my blog is this, the people that, you know, Seth Moulton, who's, I don't want to use the word, but he's so fucking stupid. Uh, and others who think they know something because they were on duty in Afghanistan for a minute. They, they, what they don't seem to understand is that the Af- that many of the Afghans, I want to say every Afghan, but many of the Afghans who worked for the U.S. were collaborators. Do you remember, you know, what happened to the people in France who collaborated with the Nazis? Who what happened to the people in Poland and Russia who collaborated with the Nazis when the Nazis were the occupying power? We were the occupying power in Afghanistan. The Afghans who worked for us and did stuff for us and fought for us, you know, they're not all, you know, some wonderful interpreters. They were doing it for the money and they were selling out their country. Now, not all of them. I'm, I'm not saying that, but probably uh, 90% of them is my guess. And yes, there has never been in history a time when collaborators weren't punished when the occupiers were thrown out and the occupiers just got thrown out or walked out. And these, and some of the, I'm not wishing it on anybody, but some of these people are going to be punished. And you know, if Seth Moulton doesn't have the stomach for it too bad. Let him go over there and uh, trade himself uh, 10 Afghan interpreters. Before you go, you already, well, it's, we can go a couple of minutes longer. No, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm talking, going to talk to my old partner from uh, 415 because the, the uh, drummer in Romeo Void passed away. I was just going to ask you about Romeo Devoid. But let me, very quickly, we made a list based on what you provided over Down With Tyranny of all the blue dog Democrats we have to get rid of. And I'm posting the graphic right now. And this is a good primer to remind our listeners not to vote for these Democrats. Sanford Bishop, Caroline Bordeaux, Ed Case, Jim Hooper, Luis Carrera, Jim Costa, Charlie Crist, Jared Golden, our friend, he used to be our friend, uh, Vicente Gonzalez, Josh Godheimer, my sister's congressman, Stephanie Murphy, Tom O'Harahan, uh, Brad Schneider, Kurt Schrader, David Scott, Mike, Mikey Sherrill, Abigail Spanberger, and Mike Thompson. Are those going to be our enemies throughout? Those are the only, those are the blue dogs. That's it. That's the whole blue dog caucus. That's, that's who they are. Every one of them is a blue dog. People should understand that a blue dog is not an adjective. It's, it's an organization. You pay dues. You elect officers. It's a real thing. They have policies. They act together to undermine the rest of the country. Um, and that is, that's them. And are they our enemies? They're my enemies. They've always been my enemies. And if, if you don't like Republicans, there's no reason to like a blue dog. They're basically the same thing. Not exactly the same thing, but on, in many ways, they are the exactly the same thing. But they're the bad guys. They are bad guys. Uh, blue America has a special page called Primary Blue Dogs. And even if you're the kind of person that says, well, they're the lesser of two evils and I have to vote for them against the Republican. Fine. You know, I don't agree, but go ahead and do it. But in the, this is primary season. Help us to get rid of these guys. So you're not voting against the lesser of two evils come November, but you're voting for someone who's really good. Let's vote for 
people who are really good and not for these awful blue dogs. They are busy right now trying to undermine Biden's uh, family plan, uh, you know, which is the best legislation since the New Deal. Right. Right. Written so we will keep this graphic going uh, from now until the primaries and remind people to get rid of the following Democrats. Sanford Bishop from Georgia, Caroline Bordeaux from Georgia, Ed Case from Hawaii, Jim Cooper from Tennessee, Luis Carrera from, is she from Indiana? I believe, uh, Luis no, Carrera, no. no, no, from California. Jim Costa yeah. from California, Charlie Crist from uh, Florida, Henry Quayler from Texas, Jared Golden from Maine, Vicente Gonzalez from Texas, Josh Gottheimer from New Jersey, Stephanie Murphy from Florida, Tim O'Hallahan, Arizona, Brad Schneider, Illinois, Kurt Schrader, Oregon, David Scott, Georgia, Mike Sherrill, New Jersey, Abigail Spanberger, Virginia, and Mike Thompson from California. Know your Thompson, enemy. Isn't that My, Mikey, it's Mikey Sherrill. She, it's a woman. Mikey Sherrill. Know right. your enemy. They're your enemy. Yes. Right? Exactly. Thank you. We'll keep... We'll, the, By the way, I, I asked uh, Marie um, London, uh, not Marie London, Marie Newman. Do you, do you remember her at all? Yeah. 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 So I asked her to join us on the show uh, next week or the week after. Congressman she, Marie Newman? Congresswoman Marie Newman, yes. She won. She, was, she went up against the Blue Dog, as a matter of fact, uh, named Dan Lipinski. She got defeated by big money the first time she ran. She ran again, and she beat him and big money. And she's now a member of Congress and she has totally lived up to everything she promised. And I asked her to come on the show and talk with us about that, about what her promises were and how she has gone about to uh, live up to those promises. Wow. Is that next week? Uh, She's getting back to me with the date. I think it could probably be the week after, but it might be next week. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Howie Klein. Read him over Down With Tyranny. Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue American Pack. Blue America Pack. They raise money for progressive candidates. Thank you, Howie. Thank you, David. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Howie Klein, everybody. You are listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Please subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts. And we have a YouTube channel. Please subscribe to that. And if you would like to sit in our Zoom room, go to my website and I will send you a link. Let us now go to Humboldt, California, where environmental activist, Green Party presidential candidate and attorney, David Cobb is standing by. Welcome back, David Cobb. Thank you, David Feldman. It's a pleasure to be on. And I, it was really exciting uh, to hear you're making the big times, man. You got a, a genuine progressive congressional uh, representative coming on your show. Uh, good, good work, Howie. Yeah, yeah. We don't, ha- you know, I don't, uh, well, I don't have too many politicians come on the show. I, I get them while they're running for office. But it's not a pleasant experience if they come on my show. So they tend not to. They watch the show and they go, I don't think anything good can come from talking to David Feldman. They come on when they're running for office because they need the exposure. But once they're elected, it's a tough sell because uh, 
I've well, given- look, I'm not blowing sunshine up your ass, Feldman. It's because you're a truth teller uh, and you hold these folks accountable, right? And you don't just kowtow to them because they're uh, they're an elected official. So it doesn't surprise me uh, to hear that that is the experience that you have. And I think it's also worth lifting up. Like, look, there are Green Party members who think I'm the devil because I come on to this show and or, and or I say genuine progressive Democrats deserve our support. See, I'm not a partisan anything, right? Like I want to make the promise of democracy a reality in this country. And when an elected official does something that I like or support, that's a genuinely progressive thing, I will cheer that uh, person. And when they do something that I think is against the best interest of working class Americans, when I think they're doing something against the environment, when I think they're doing something against a broad progressive agenda, I jeer, right? Mm -hmm. So to me, I'm not interested in the partisan labeling. I'm interested in the genuine, honest to goodness, bottom up movement building. And that's the kicker, uh, David Feldman. Like this program, I have found to be one of the few places where it's actually sincere, right? Like that, that actually it is about building the progressive agenda and not making excuses for corporate Democrats, but challenging them. And I want to conclude my little rant by saying this. I do believe that it's more likely that we're going to have to ultimately create an entirely new political party uh, based on peace, justice, democracy, and ecology. But I might be wrong. It might be possible to get the Democratic Party to actually uh, become the party to champion peace, justice, democracy, and ecology. So I'm not going to make anybody my enemy, uh, except my class enemies and the fascists that are rallying uh, to the, uh, the 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 side. Right? Like we're we're in a moment, and right. I think we have to have have clarity on what moment we're in. Right. I would assume you would have voted for Nina Turner if you were in Ohio 11. I- Absolutely. And in fact, I don't know if you remember this, David Feldman, but I, on this very show, encouraged people not only to vote for uh, Nina Turner, but to send her money. And I got a lot of grief from Greens for doing that. But it it was then the right position to take, and it's the right position to take now. Okay, let me give you a clip from Howie Klein's Down with Tyranny. He looked at the polling from Nina Turner, and this is what they revealed. This is uh, a piece he wrote called The Data's In on the Nina Turner Chantel Brown Race. I didn't have time to talk to Howie about this. And they've looked at the they've done a postmortem on why Nina Turner lost to Chantel Brown in Ohio 11. The conclusion, based on our polling, we believe Turner's loss in Ohio's 11th was not rejection of progressive policies or a progressive platform at large but rather a result of letting negative advertisements define her, leading to a significant decrease in her net favorability just before the election. In other words, she didn't lose because of Bernie or because she was for Medicare for all or because she wants to put an end to the endless wars or she's for the the Green New Deal. She lost exclusively because of negative advertising. That's it. So uh, I've had a chance to take a look at, uh, uh, not a deep dive uh, on the data, but I did look at the results and where those precincts came in. I'll say 
that is basically my assessment as well. Uh, remember, it was a very low turnout race, right? So uh, the, the, the reality is that negative campaigning actually works. That's the sad reality. Like, uh, that's the reason that, that so many people do it. And the reason that we actually have to get corporate, we, we should have full publicly funded elections, right? Like if we had pure publicly funded elections and did not let any uh, corporate money or any other special interest money come in and instead just had, you know, political discourse, I think that we'd see more progressive candidates getting elected because polling data shows the overwhelming majority of Americans basically agree with the progressive agenda when it's presented just as here's the policies, right? So I want to point out that that negative campaigning almost exclusively came from the neoliberal Democratic Party apparatus. It really needs to be said and confronted that it was not Republican money that came in and undermined Nina Turner. It was Democratic Party money that came in and undermined Nina Turner. And that's a gut check moment for those of you who are still in the Democratic Party. Y'all need to have a reckoning. They can't run on the issues. In fact, take a look at it, right? Uh, the, 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 the Democratic Party, uh, like th there are genuine progressive champions in the Democratic Party. So I'm, I, I am saying that is absolutely true. But for the most part, what happens with, they call themselves moderates, uh, which is just a mealy mouth way of saying the corporatists or those without a, uh, a, a principled progressive agenda, they will fake left run right like so during the primary they'll use some language to try to, to 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 keep people within the democratic party and think that they're uh that they're on their side then they run right uh in the general election so and 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 i fall prey to that why well, not anymore obama was kind of like that in my i knew that obama was a community organizer and what he really wanted was Medicare for all. But, you know, in order to get elected, he's got to say things and be tough on, you know, want to spend money on defense and come across come across as a corporate hawk. But I know once he gets there and it's not true. It's just not, David. I mean, I, I, I wish I did not see with such clarity how this thing actually runs out. And I want to be clear, like like uh, Barack Obama uh uh, it is really important to say in his first term in the primary, he came out of nowhere. Nobody thought that he had a legitimate shot. It was whenever the upset in Iowa that actually, if you'll remember, that's when everybody was like, who is the junior senator from Illinois? Right. Barack Obama ran on a progressive, unapologetic progressive agenda in that election. It was progressive messaging that got him elected. And it was progressive small donor money that funded that campaign. And most importantly, it was progressive sweat equity and shoe leather in those primaries that built a amazing field operation for Barack Obama that actually propelled him. But what is the common denominator? Progressive money, progressive shoe leather, progressive uh, agenda and, and rhetoric. It is a winning strategy. And that's what calls me that progressives are not able to wrest control of their own party from the neoliberals uh, who own it. And 
Again, I'm a Green Party member. I'm proud of that. I work with progressive Democrats all the time and I'm proud of doing that. And at the end of the day, progressive Democrats uh, have to come to terms with the fact that the leadership of their party is actually neoliberal and corporate and that that rank and file members of the Democratic Party are infinitely more progressive than their own leadership. Well, I didn't talk to you last week. The U.N. climate report came out and you are a member of the Green Party. They say that the next 30 years, no matter what we do, are going to be horrific. And we have what, like five years left? We've got five to 10 years to actually like the next 30 years are going to be really bad. Right. Like even if we did everything right, starting now, the window is what it is. We've got about 10, 15 years tops to actually keep from hitting the point of genuinely no return. And what, and David, like, I don't know about you, but I follow the IOC, like, uh, and they are by definition, quote, conservative scientists, right? They stay within the evidence always. They literally issued, quote, a code red, quote, warning to humanity i mean we can go through the the that report it was chilling to me to actually read that because that's like that's like we've never seen anything like that out of that august body before this is a wake-up call and what you know why i'm freaked out i'm freaking out that more people aren't freaking out yes like this is like jesus christ we have just been issued uh like the in the starkest terms an existential threat and an existential warning and almost none of our elected officials including members of the democratic party are actually picking up the call well there's a fatalism now the republicans are lucky because they've been taken over by the evangelical christians who think jesus is coming so it's all good for them on the uh on the democratic side we're just broken despondent and fatalistic and uh, and fighting amongst ourselves. Do you get a sense that that's going on? I mean, I don't know what my algorithm is on YouTube and Facebook and Twitter, but the minute I turn on my computer, it seems to me my enemy are fellow leftists. Is that because I'm you know, just getting a feed to, to hate my fellow? Or is there actual fighting going on? No, I, I think it's... It I think it's both, David. Like we are in a polarizing moment, right? Like I can uh, I can back up and tell you uh, I believe uh, in Antonio Gramsci's idea of conjuncture. Uh, conjuncture is the idea that the the best way to know what's happening today, ninety nine times out of a hundred, just study yesterday, right? Because and if you want to know what's going to happen tomorrow, uh, ninety nine times out of a hundred, study today because history moves in that kind of progression, right? But Gramsci says that's true 99 times out of 100. But then in moments of uh, conjuncture, when there are interstitial space where there's gonna be a big break, right? Uh, that that's where like, like you never know what's going to happen. Fascism emerged in the 1930s, I will argue, because the, the basically the, the, the global economy was evolving from 
a agrarian society to an industrial one. And nobody knew exactly what, like, so there was a lot of confusion. That was a conjuncture and it could have broken any number of ways. We are in another conjuncture, but this is even worse because we have an ecological crisis and another economic crisis because the industrial society, the old ways of organizing economics is basically shifting before our very eyes. Like even if capitalism wasn't destroying the planet, capitalism as we understand it as an economic system will not continue because the capitalists can no longer extract the surplus value of human labor in order to make its profits. That's why we've gone from industrial capitalism to finance capitalism, where it's a casino market, right? And so the capitalists are literally turning on themselves. My point, David, we're in this big conjuncture. And so everybody's fighting. Leftists are fighting with other leftists and with the right. The right are fighting with each other. Like We are in this kind of space where it is polarized. What I'm trying to do is to say, where can we find ways to work together and let's do that. And like where we have to disagree, we can disagree, but we really have to, to, to be building momentum. And, you know, uh, you know that uh, I'm very proud to be sharing with you, David, because I, I dropped you this little bit. But a way that I'm going to be actually trying to to bring some folks together here in California is to try to convince folks to vote no on this Trump-led Republican recall of Gavin Newsom. Now, remember, I'm a green. I'm not, uh, you know, I didn't vote for uh, Gavin Newsom and wouldn't if he, because I don't think he's sufficiently progressive for me. Is there anybody running other than Gavin Newsom who you like? well, listen, there is. Uh, Dan Kapelovitz is the uh, Green Party nominee. He's a criminal defense lawyer. Uh, he's a fantastic human being. So I, as a California voter, am going to get a ballot just like everybody else, which is, uh, one, do you support the recall? Yes or no. And number two, if Gavin Newsom is recalled, who should who who do you want to vote for governor? Here's the thing, David Feldman. The Democratic Party leadership went all in on no on the recall. They don't have a backup. Explain this to me for a second. So you vote no on the recall, which is a vote for Gavin Newsom. Correct. Then if he does get then you have to vote for his replacement and it can't be Gavin Newsom. Is that fair? It cannot be Gavin Newsom because he's the subject of the recall and the Democratic Party is is like double down on they they have no they have no alternative it's it's like gavin newsom uh or they but now is that political malfeasance is that political malfeasance well i think it is i mean i think it's insane uh which is why uh and and here it is i'm going to drop it in the chat for folks because uh i'll tell you who agrees with me and that is cultural icon actor, musician, comedian, Feldman, you'll love this, Tommy Chong. Uh, So I have the privilege of being in a political discourse with Tommy Chong this Wednesday, uh, August 18th at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern, hosted by the California Progressive Alliance, where I'm going to try to generate a vote no on the recall. I'll argue vote for Dan Kapelowitz in the the follow-up if you want, But most importantly, we need to vote no on the recall 
and then build a progressive movement around sane cannabis policy, cooperative economics, and a broad agenda that pushes the entire Democratic Party to the left. Okay, so the thinking in defense of the establishment Democrats is nobody can challenge Newsom if they're a Democrat, so they can't declare their candidacy. Right. You're you're not going to have anybody in the Democratic Party who even hints that they would like to replace Gavin Newsom during a recall. So they're going all in on Gavin Newsom because nobody would have the courage to break from the pack. Well, there are some. I mean, there there are a couple of progressive Democrats that are actually in the race. And uh, I, I would absolutely acknowledge that. But I am going to be voting again, for Dan Kapelovitz, uh, who is the Green Party uh, nominee. But like, again, I'm not gonna like, I'm not gonna fuss with anybody, uh, uh, but the reality is this, because of how the Democratic Party leadership has played it out, it looks pretty obvious that the person who is going to get the plurality of the votes in that second race is a right-wing pundit, right? Like we are very, it's very clear to me how this is gonna go down. And that's, it is frightening to me. It is absolutely frightening because we are looking at um, like it's neo-fascism at best, right? Like what what you're seeing the Republican Party take over and what it has become is literally fascism. It is it is a uh, a merger of corporate ideology and and basic populism, right? Because it's important to remember fascism is not just, uh, you know, uh, authoritarian totalitarianism. It requires a social base. And what has happened in the Republican Party is that the the the, the Steve Bannons, the, the, you know, the real deep thinkers are, are actually now in control of a major political party in this country and are basically ideologically fascist. And I don't have any confidence that the neoliberal Democrats are actually up to the task of challenging what that actually means. How do you how do you how do you challenge fascism? Because one of the problems is we're always fighting the last war. This may be a new war. This may not be fascism. This might be something new that. Well, it is new. And again, remember, I talked about the conjuncture space. Right. Like, that's why this is new, because. We're going from an agrarian society to industrial society in the 1930s. Now we're going from an industrial society to some like almost laborless production. That's why it's not merely industrial capitalism, but finance capitalism. This is a new moment that nobody has seen before. And anybody who thinks dogmatically they have the path forward is very suspicious to me. Right. Because this is brand new territory. I agree with you. I agree with you more. I keep saying shelve your moral and intellectual certitude. This is uncharted waters in terms of what we're up against. And don't fight the last war. It's easy. The one thing that I'll say is this. The one thing that I'll say is this. Where I do have certainty is the only, and I'm going to answer your question, because the only way to overcome fascism is by uniting our class in opposition. And the way that we do that is with progressive populism, right? Like you have to actually articulate if, like, our view of the world will make your life better. 
you know, your your children will will be well educated and have a future ahead of them. The environment will be protected. You will have health care. We will give you uh, we will ensure that the society actually treats uh, housing is a human right. I mean, it's 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 the progressive agenda, Feldman. That's what gets me. A progressive agenda is the only way that we're going to be able to actually resist fascism. And the neoliberal Democrats are fumbling the ball before our very eyes. Well, you, that's you always said, the case. Well, there's Dr. Harriet <laughs> Fraud joins us. She's the host that's of Capitalism Hits Home. Always the case, though. That was the case in Germany, where the bourgeoisie, feeling the threat from communism, which we certainly don't have, uh, decided to throw their money, the industrialists, the industrialists threw their money to Hitler, because that or communism. The part of fascism that's missing in the United States is there is no palpable communist threat against which they can organize and get huge corporate backing. Corporations gave more to the Democrats. They have a similar agenda and they weren't ready to go with Trump. So Dr. Prada, I'm glad you brought that up. And that's the reason why I will tell those people who are genuine progressives and still in the Democratic Party, stop kicking and fussing at the Green Party. You should actually, like we strengthen your position. Like actually uh, progressive Democrats should be cheerleading for the Greens in order to to be a viable exit strategy to actually build a a movement that can succeed. Uh, Again, I don't believe that it's possible to make the Democratic Party a vehicle for the working class. But if I'm wrong, then use me like use people like me. (laughs) <laughs> and, and it just it constantly yeah. amazes me uh, that that uh, uh, that that progressive Democrats spend so much time denigrating and, and infighting with Greens. Why do that? How does that help? Well, they have the same corporate sponsors. And so that they have to give, you know, the energy in their party is the progressives. But the money is from corporations. So they give lip service to the progressives and they follow through for the corporations. On on that correct note, I have to jump. As I told you, David Feldman, I I have a live radio interview, so I love coming on this program. I'll see you next uh, week, Uh, but I have to jump off to get on uh, because, you know, we don't get to be so so expansive and casual as we on this podcast. You know, know, Dr. Fraud, radio is a harsh mistress, and there's my call. I got to jump. Thank you. Thank you, David Cobb. Well, you're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Friend me on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Coming up at 8.30, Dr. Juan Cole, historian and editor of Informed Comment, he'll be joined by Professor Adnan Hussein. So that's that's exciting. And what's also exciting is Dr. Harriet Fraud joins us. She is the host of Capitalism Hits Home, and it's not just in your head. And welcome. Always great to see you. Thank you. Always great to be here. Thank you. Uh, I have this crazy idea right now. We were going over the stats for uh, Nina Turner, Howie Klein at Down With Tyranny published the results of a study that says 
nobody voted against Nina Turner in Ohio 11 because of her stance on Medicare for all. Nobody voted against her because she wanted Medicare for all. Nobody voted against her because she wanted a, a Green New Deal and an end to our forever wars. They voted against her because of the negative advertising. And because a black um, conservative leadership was against her. Given that the House is on fire, the House is on fire. It's, you know, you, you have to be hiding under a You can't even hide under a rock because the rocks are on fire. Eventually, you have to blame the American people for being this stupid. Well, you, I think if you want to ever win people over, you have to have some kind of beginning by finding out where people are. And then how did they get there? Because then you can find their way back. Okay, last week you taught me, last week, and I thank you for this, you taught me to have compassion for the unvaccinated. And, And there are people who deserve our compassion for not getting vaccinated. But when it comes to climate change, Medicare for all, uh, the forever wars, if you're going to vote against Medicare for all, if you're going to vote against curing climate change because what you don't you think somebody might not be supporting Israel strong enough for you, with all due respect, doctor, go F your, I mean, how, how could you be that stupid? I don't think they vote for or against anything that they consider. They think, who's voting on my side? Who's giving me money? It's so venal. I don't think it's ideological at all. You're talking about the voters, the people who cast their ballots? No, the, pe- no, the people in, in Congress. I think the people who vote really don't also they're not immersed in the issues. They get carried away with the emotions of it. And one of the emotions people really need to vent in the United States is anger. And they're at a point of saying no, like the British were when they shot themselves in the foot voting for Brexit. But they said no, and they really right. liked it. This is why we're ripe for fascism, because you have people like me going, Maybe voting. Maybe we can't trust these idiots to vote. If if you see the, the, the planet is on fire, people are dying in the streets from lack of Medicare for all. And you can get tricked into voting for somebody because he hates brown people just like you. You're willing to yeah, die because. because you, yeah, he makes you feel superior because at least you're white. At least you got that. And it makes you hearken back to that period of the 50s before the capitalists exploited and mechanized and robotized your jobs and computerized them. When you could support a dependent wife and have a full time servant. And they're very nostalgic for that period. Well, maybe democracy is a bad idea then. (laughs) And they listen to Fox News. I mean, it's an unregulated society and it's a pay to play society so you get the best democracy money can buy that's what you get and that's what we got and at least there's a movement against it and if that people who liked trump in the south also liked bernie 
because he expressed their anger and he wasn't the status quo. What we need is a strong enough socialist presence to capture people's rage and give them an actual solution for it. And then we will win. It doesn't seem to be. I'm just frustrated tonight. I just don't. Um, you know, I don't know why I'm being reminded of. I'm not going to even bring it up. Uh, let me play you. Is it infantilizing AOC to uh, understand why she was afraid of getting raped on uh, January 6? Of course not. They, they're constantly threatening to rape her as well as murder her. Right. And she knows they're capable of it. There's been an uh, somebody wrote me a letter saying, stop being so patronizing towards uh, Cori Bush and AOC, that they're they're adults and they can take care of themselves. You're uh, a chauvinist by worrying for their safety. Well, that's crazy. I mean, they're not Lauren Boebert. They're not walking around with uh, a holster with two guns in it. And these people are enraged and they'll take it out on her she's been made a target we can't forget that fox what they allow to call news on fox news is the most watched of all the news shows they shouldn't allow that because it's not news it's opinion right let me play you something tucker carlson said about this interview that aoc did where she said she was afraid that she was going to be raped and tell me what this says about Fox News and uh, Tucker Carlson, because I think it's revealing about uh, I can't find it now. Hang on. It would be great if I could find these clips. Someone on the chat just said, remember Joe Cox, the woman that was murdered in England, who was a progressive parliamentarian. Remind us who that was. Joe Cox. Right. Uh, this is, oh, I, of course I can't. It's, I'm looking at the wrong thing. This is Tucker Carlson trivializing. Well, I'm not going to pass judgment. You tell me what this says about Tucker Carlson, Fox, and the people who uh, are on the other side. Sandy Cortez wasn't even inside the Capitol on January 6th. But she and Lindsey Graham are on the same page. We know that because... Occasionally, Sandy Cortez tells us about her lived experience on January 6th. During a recent special on CNN, Sandy Cortez, did she ever stop talking about herself, by the way? She explained she wasn't simply afraid of being murdered by Ashley Babbitt. She was also worried about being raped. There's a lot of sexualizing of that violence. And um, I didn't think that I was just going to be killed. I thought other things were going to happen to me as well. So what sounds like what you're telling me right now is that you didn't only think that you were going to die. You thought you were going to be raped. Yeah. Yeah. I thought I was. Sexualizing? Get a therapist, honey. This is crazy. These people are mad because they thought the election wasn't fair. Now, you may disagree with that, but it wasn't about you. Surprise, surprise sexualizing the violence. I was going to be raped by Ashley Babbitt. Imagine some Republican lady saying that about a... Get get a therapist, honey. Yeah, well, (laughs) they're talking about a group of people who threatens to rape people. What she's talking about is not only are these people captured 
in corporate capitalism, they're also patriarchies. They're also patriarchs. And they believe that a woman's job is to serve a man at all costs and to serve him particularly sexually. So that that's just one of the services, just like Mar- just like Andrew Cuomo. Part of the way they were supposed to serve him was to write his pronouncements that sexual harassment is completely intolerable and should be abandoned, but never mentioned that he's doing it. They should work on his $5 million book for which he got in advance. They should collude with him, the good capitalist, in hiding the nursing home deaths so his donor from the nursing home chain would look better and so would he. You know. So his, he says, Tucker Carlson, who you have to pay attention to because he is the voice of the oh, Republican God. Party. He really is. And... He says that they stormed the Capitol because they had a legitimate grievance and they were upset because they thought the election was stolen from them. That's why they stormed the Capitol. There was no bloodlust. There was no animal energy there. They were going to just hang Mike Pence and kill Nancy Pelosi. But that would never bleed into raping somebody like AOC. That that's his that these men were thinking uh, rationally and have very healthy sex lives and no anger issues towards women. Well, they should say they should talk about their calm with the 131 Capitol Police who were injured, particularly Fanoni, who they almost killed. Right. They were screaming, shoot him with his own gun. Would you say the men who stormed uh, the Capitol on January 6th? had a healthy attitude towards women that they were they left the bed of a loving woman to go storm the Capitol. Not at all. If you look at some of their uh, biographies. Also, I think I told you they're incels. A lot of them are incels, right? Involuntarily. So are terrorists against women. Right. And I think I told you that um, I had a very clever client who's a busty blonde and put a picture of herself on Christian Mingle and said, I'm looking for a man, a real man, a man who doesn't take orders from anybody, send a photo. And she matched them with the Capitol Six, you know, January 6th photos and turned in 22 guys to the FBI. You didn't tell me that. Yes. She was very clever. It was very smart. Wow. That macho thing. Nobody could tell me what to do, particularly, of course, not a woman. But, you know, part of what they're angry about is they lost the pedestal of whiteness and maleness. Yeah. You know, it's not completely gone, but it's taken down many pegs. Well, this is uh, my favorite guy, uh, Jesse Peters and uh, Jesse Lee Peters. This is his take on AOC. And I don't think because he's African-American, I don't think he feels well, he hasn't lost his white supremacy. This is uh, maybe there's something else going on. This is Jesse Lee Peters or Peterson. He's a Christian broadcaster. I love him. This woman, Cortez, must be mentally ill or something. She seemed to be mentally ill all the light she's there but the lights are not on the lights are on but she's not there no one's home it was reported that she wasn't even at the building 
but she thought she was going to be raped? Is that wishful thinking or what? Maybe she wishes she was at the building so she could possibly get raped. Maybe. I don't know. That's crazy. What's the difference between him and Tucker Carlson? Not much. Not much. You know, they both need to put down an outspoken woman who doesn't take any crap, who denounced her abuser on the stairs and said, you know, you, you wouldn't talk to a man like that. You wouldn't call them a bitch. And that every woman, Republican or Democrat alike, has experienced that, the sexualization of violence and denigration. And they tend to be total chauvinists and male supremacists. If you look at the biographies that have come out, that's what they are. And there's a big incel prep, you know, presence and it's the incels believe that women's job is to have sex with them and if they don't they you know they can be killed right so i I got complaints from uh far left listeners who say uh, stop making excuses for aoc and corey bush uh, that you're being paternalistic and worrying about corey bush's safety she can take care of herself and then I get right wingers who call me a beta or that I'm virtue signaling. And uh, it, it that anyway, this is uh, this oh, is what the conversation has that. become as the planet burns. The yeah, planet. Because it's also, you know, it's like Yates said, things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Look. The American empire is going down. China is the leader in AI. It's the leader in cryptocurrency. It's the leader in new transportations. It's the leader in raises. It took 850 million people out of poverty. China is the leader and America's empire is falling down. All you had to do is look at the scenes that could have been from Vietnam with the choppers overhead and people running for their lives as we get kicked the hell out of Afghanistan, one of the poorest countries in the world, winning over one of the richest countries. No, right. the richest country in the world at the moment. The United States empire is going down. The only people who benefited from this are the biggest benefiters of our whole economy, the military. Right. 20 years of extra spending, and they could really mop it up. So you're one of the founding mothers of women's liberation. I remember before 9-11 hearing people like Jay Leno's wife warning us about the Taliban, that we almost had a moral obligation. This is before 9-11 to go in there and save the women. Uh, what are your thoughts about the Taliban and what, what do we owe the women of Afghanistan? Well, I think the Taliban got its first big boost because the United States funded them against the Russians. And one of the things that happened all over the Middle East is between the CIA and the Mossad, they killed off the sectarian left. And so that people's only rebellion against imperialism was religious fanatics. But it was the United States that got them started. And then bin Laden was really pissed at them. They dropped him once 
Russia was expelled from Afghanistan. Not that he had any excuse to do what he did and also plan it at a time when the most civilians would be there. That's disgraceful. And I, I don't, you know, look, women were best off in the whole area. They were the best off in Iraq. 40% of the jobs that were professional jobs were held by women because... They served in the parliament with Saddam Hussein. That's right, they did. And because Saddam Hussein didn't listen to the mullahs who told him, you know, women should be walking 10 steps behind a man, women rose in that society and we killed that society. We don't care about women. We smashed that society and destroyed it, the most advanced society in the Middle East. And we weren't there to save women. That was an afterthought to rationalize an invasion, which another one failed. That's every war since World War II. Right. Has not been a clear win, although Korea and Vietnam were partial wins. We lost in South Vietnam. Yeah, we didn't live. How did we live? I always say uh, with, with... with war, we can destroy a country. We can't win, but we could destroy. We, we can destroy a country, and in a way, that's winning. But we don't go to war to destroy a country. We go to war to create a, a business opportunity. Right. We, we bomb these countries so that they become our consumers, our financial partners. If a country is a threat to us, we can destroy it. And that's good to know. But that's not why we go to war. We go to war to win the hearts and minds. So they buy Coca-Cola and GM products and Ford products. We could leave. You know, Colin Powell said, you break Iraq, you own it. And I remember thinking, how about not owning it? How about break it if they're a real threat to us? Break, break them and leave. Uh, the Iraqis had nothing to do with 9-11. Right. That was Saudis, Bush's friends. Right. The fact that we have to stay and occupy these countries is not for those countries. It's for commercial reasons. And it's also because they keep it up for commercial reasons. And the governments they put in are betraying their own people. They sell the armaments that... Uh, the Americans give them or they give them over to the Taliban. Everything falls apart. It's incredibly <clears throat> corrupt and dominated by the Taliban, which won clean out. The United States wanted to have some kind of transition. They said, sorry, we won. That's it. Get out. Right. It's also where deals, are, global deals are made. If you have a failed state with truckloads, pallets of U.S. dollars, our government, uh, people who are freelancing in our government can make deals that involve players from all over the world. Meet me in Afghanistan and we can work this out. We need failed states like that to exchange uh, bad money. They, they want. Well, but we are shamed before the whole world. It was the same scene as in Iraq as the. The uh, Chinooks are circling over the buildings. People are desperate to get out. I mean, Americans are running. We're running. It's, you know, it it looks terrible because it is terrible. We're defeated. 
Right. And we've been defeated every time since World War II. If you think we've been lied to by our government, imagine the lies that were told to the interpreters, the people who helped our soldiers, helped our government in Afghanistan. You I think mean, if they have no problem lying to us, imagine what they're willing to say to those innocent Af Afghan Afghanis. In, including that we will save you if there's a problem. That's one of the major lies. But a lot of those people that they say were interpreters, how many interpreters you need, were informants for the United States. And so they are on target to be killed by the Taliban. We flatter ourselves into believing that we're the indispensable nation. And if it's not America, then nature pours a vacuum. Some other country will step in. Uh, OK, I don't believe we're indispensable. Is it true, though, that nature pours a vacuum and that if we don't stick our beak into everybody's business, another country will? Well, no other country is invading anything besides something that was their country. You know, we are the invaders going across the world to destroy a, a whole country like well, Iraq but is raised and kill their children because the water supplies are contaminated. Well, we do see. I mean, Russia sticks its nose in, in the Crimea, but that was part of Russia. Yeah, and China invade. You know, Hong Kong was promised to China in the in 1999 in their deal with the right. British. But I mean, we've had foreign adventurism uh, from the Russians and from China and from Castro. I mean, it, it, we're not the only country that invades other no, countries. We don't No other country goes way across the world to invade people. We are in 130 different countries. And look, the Russians aren't going to invade. They already tried that in Afghanistan. And Afghanistan brought down the British Empire and then the Russians and now the U.S. Right. But they fought. We fought proxy wars with China and Korea and Russia and Vietnam and you know, Cambodia. Uh, it's not like we're just the the only granted it's their backyard, but well, invading is one thing and funding is another. Russia funded Cuba for a long time until right. the Russian, the Soviet Union fell and the Cubans have somehow managed on their own. But I mean, really, to do we have enemies across the world to invade? is something that other countries don't do. Do we have enemies? Of course we do. And who? we're creating more every minute. Other than the people who we elect, who are our enemies overseas. <laughs> well, the more we exploit people, the more enemies we have. And there are a lot of people. For example, we made huge enemies in Iraq, killing millions of people. We are made. We made huge enemies in Afghanistan, in Vietnam, wherever we invade and we have to leave, we leave people despising us as their relatives and friends are killed and their cities are destroyed. Right. You have a lot of people who hate us. We'll go down in history saying uh, we lost Iraq, we lost Afghanistan. But the people who sent us in, it was a success. For, it was a success for Cheney and Bush and Halliburton and the oil companies because 
that's just the cost of doing business. That's right. These are these millions of people who are dead are collateral damage for them. And our people didn't speak up loudly enough to stop it because we didn't have enough of an alternative, a socialist alternative to promote peace. All right. Well, and, I think the know, war in Iraq, you marched against the war in Iraq. The, that was did. there uh, were a million people in New York marching against the war in Iraq. There's so many people that the police abandoned their cars. Because I know I was with my sister and she wrote in the dirty windows, gay police for peace in the back of their cars. Right. In the windows. But, you know, it was completely overwhelming. But once the government, once Bush continued, we did not protest, even when Bush stole the election. There was a, a columnist, I forget his name, in Barron's even, who said America is a land where you can steal an election in broad light, daylight. Americans make sheep look like rugged individualists. Right. People didn't pour out of their houses. And also, they didn't say, Bush stole the election. The Democratic Party didn't say that. Get out of your house. Get in the street. General strike until this a fair election is restored. No. You know, Why? We have Why? We're sheep? We're I mean, not organized. We're not organized. We're not organized. Once they broke the Communist Party, the Socialist Party, and the labor unions, they really took the spine out of protest. And they exported people's jobs. And people understood that these people who create vast fortunes in Asia then can come by, come back and buy our elections, which are for sale. And it took them a while to understand what was going on. Meanwhile, they're watching TV, feeling depressed and getting fat. Mm-hmm. That's what Americans did. And it took Occupy to reintroduce the concept of class, 1%, 99%. And that was in 2011. And Obama crushed them all on the same day. And all those people, some of whom became Trump supporters, who voted for hope and change, got debt and despair. And they gave up on the usual political system and were angry and acted out in some ways that are fascistic and stupid. However, that's what happened. Excuse me, that's what happened. And now we're still suffering the damage. People are only waking up now. Yeah. And we don't have an alternative party. We had uh, a conversation with Alan Minsky. He's the executive director of Progressive Democrats of America and Professor Harvey J.K. And I was teasing him. Professor Harvey J.K. about Raytheon. They're America's second largest defense firm. They did very well today. And uh, they are woke. They wrote a memo. The, The head of Raytheon wrote a memo to the Raytheon employees to identify your privilege and give those with marginalized identities the floor during meetings. You need to be anti racist, which is bizarre because if it weren't for race, right. Racism, Raytheon would be broke. I mean, we only fire our missiles at dark skinned people. So, uh, but Raytheon launched the Stronger Together campaign last summer and is urging 
Raytheon employees to develop intersectional allyship in the workplace and focus on equity rather than equality. And I don't curse on this show, but I mean, F you, Raytheon, how dare you? Yes, but they what they want to do is champion race and sexual equality. And as long as class is excised from the equation, they're right on it. Well, for equity's sake, why why don't their bombs start killing white people instead of people of color? I mean, why don't they're they're always invading people A who have no air force, B who can't really fight back, and C who are non-white because they're also experimenting by dropping their newest armaments to destroy these people. Right, just like they did in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Right, people. So, uh, Professor Harvey K was so disgusted, and he said something, and I can't for I just, I it just has stuck with me. He 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 was just disgusted. And he said, you know, all this infighting uh, among the left, all this internecine squabbling. He said it doesn't mean crap unless we have organized labor. He said, all this conversation is noise and all this conversation about organizing, unless we have a labor movement on the ground, all the other conversation is noise. I I think he's right. I think that is the the answer to all this. But I feel like we're fighting the previous war. It sounds like something I don't know, but it, it does make sense to me. Labor, the labor movement. The mass of working people, whether you want to call them labor or not, but the mass of people that keep this place going, identifying as an exploited mass of people. We have to remember that, you know, 44% American of Americans are low pay workers who can barely make ends meet. And often at minimum wage, what are we talking about? And that could, if you had a class-based movement, it wouldn't matter if you ate organic mushrooms or didn't um, have little microaggressions around race. You'd exploit the hell out of people. And the fact that essential workers, 66% of them are women, and they're mainly people of color. So while you're championing equality, you might think, well, who does usually work in essential jobs that are devalued by their paycheck? Right. So fantastic. You know, it's crap. It's divisive crap that was introduced in what is it called? Great Wurlitzer operation of the FBI and CIA to come into the movements that had started with the energy of the anti-war movement and make sure through Gloria Steinem CIA apparatus and a similar apparatus in their civil rights movement that the feminist movement was gender only not class and the civil rights movement was black power against whitey because that way everybody's fighting on the bottom and the class continues to get further and further so we are the most unequal of all the developed nations now yes and that's what they're they're fighting. So they eat organic mushrooms so they can feel, you know, virtuous. <laughs> but 
the cla- class is where the difference has to be made. Right. Thank you so much. Dr. Harriet Fraud is the host of Capitalism Hits Home, and it's not just in your head. How do people contact you if there's something well, in their head that they need help with? My website or at hfraud dot at gmail dot com. And um, I I have a co-host on It's Not Just In Your Head, and that's Max Golding. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I hope to speak to you next week. Thank you. I hope so, too. Great. Doctor. Thank you, Dr. Harriet Fraud. You're listening to the David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Coming up in 10 minutes is Professor Juan Cole, uh, Dr. Juan Cole. He is uh, a guest that uh, will be talking, who will be talking to Professor Adnan Hussein. He sent me a note. He's going to be 10 minutes late. So I was thinking of showing more clips from Jesse Lee Peters. Uh, no, uh, Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom. How are you, sir? Can you unmute yourself? I think I'm good now. You're good. Uh, there's Dr. Juan Cole, fresh off the bike. Okay, uh, I'm going to call an audible. Dan Frankenberger. We'll, we'll do the. We'll do the uh, community billboard uh, in uh, after Dr. Cole leaves us. Okay. Very yep. good. Thank you, Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom. Well, this is uh, very special. Dr. Juan Cole joins us, I would assume, from Ann Arbor, Michigan. If you're not going to informed comment, uh, you're you're not uh, you don't know what's going on in the world. And let us go now to uh, Queens University, where Professor Adnan Hussein is standing by to introduce our guest. Oh, hi, David. Um, I think our guest doesn't need too much introduction. He's been on the show before, but of course, people should know that he's a professor of history at University of Michigan and at uh, Ann Arbor. He's the author of numerous important books about uh, the Middle East, Islamic world, including uh, Muhammad, Prophet of Peace amid the clash of uh, empires from 2018, and more recently, uh, translated uh, Persian poetry, the Rubaiyat, um, and is working on a study on uh, Omar Khayyam and his reception. So, um, but most people will know uh, him from Informed Comment, the blog he's been writing since 2002 that has become an indispensable service of news and commentary on the Middle East and on the world. Um, so we're delighted to have a chance to talk with uh, Dr. Juan Cole. Thanks, Juan, for coming today. Well, it's my pleasure. Well, you know, it was already about time, I thought, for a roundup on what's been happening uh, in the Middle East, um, you know, with the uh, Afghanistan pullout. Um, But things have accelerated in the last week or so, and it's really timely uh, to have you today since over the weekend, essentially, the Afghan government has fallen um, after a 10-day offensive that um, really encircled Kabul, took the major cities of Herat, Kandahar, Mazar-i-Sharif. Um, the president, Ashraf Ghani, has fled the country. Um, 
And, um, you know, the entire situation has changed and everyone's wondering about how this could happen so quickly. Just last week, there were estimates that, um, you know, the government could fall within 30 to 90 days, turned out to be about three. Um, and so we're here now. Um, and I think uh, one point to begin on is um, uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was asked about these scenes of evacuating um, U.S. personnel um, and um, Afghan um, people, uh, Afghan citizens who had worked with U.S. forces. Um, and um, he was asked whether this reminded uh uh, him of the scenes of U.S. evacuation from the embassy in Saigon in Vietnam. And he said, let's take a step back. This is manifestly not Saigon. And I wondered if we might start with your reaction to Secretary of State Blinken's characterization. Well, as with all historical analogies, uh, any analogy to Vietnam would be highly inexact, but both were wars that the United States lost. And uh, American exceptionalism makes it hard for us to say those words. I know I'm speaking partly to a Canadian audience, but you know all about United States exceptionalism. And uh, so it's, it's hard for people to say those words. But the United States lost the war in Afghanistan and it lost the war a long time ago. Uh, really what's been happening is that enormous amounts of money and arms have been pumped into that place uh, to stand up a corpse. And uh, when when President Biden announced that the U.S. was leaving and that the money and the arms were going to dry up, so it's like one of those horror flicks where somebody who's you know, should be a mummy and is walking around, suddenly turns back into a mummy and turns to dust. Uh, so that's what happened to the government of Afghanistan. Yes, um, uh, I hadn't been following that closely any of the negotiations since uh, the uh, announced departure months and months ago. Uh, but it seems that in the intervening period, um, there weren't any successful attempts to broker some kind of political solution that would incorporate the Taliban into uh, the current government. Um, why did those fail? Were they really attempted or did the Taliban never really have any um, reason to uh, negotiate at all? I mean, obviously, you know, they have managed militarily to conquer, but it's happened fairly quickly in the last month or so. Before that time, there were months and months. Um, how do you assess what was happening in preparation uh, for the U.S. pullout? Well, you know, people people negotiate when when they have a weakness and they need to compromise. Neither the Kabul government of Ashraf Ghani nor the Taliban felt weak, and neither felt a need to compromise. Now, the Taliban did feel weak with regard to the United States, and did negotiate with Donald Trump's administration at Doha for a U.S. withdrawal. And what they gave Trump in the uh, lead up to the U.S. withdrawal, which Trump set on May 1st of 2021, uh, was that they uh, promised to refrain from attacking U.S. troops. 
So Afghanistan was off the front pages during the Trump administration because Trump more or less bribed the Taliban uh, to be quiet and not attack U.S. troops. They, they did go on attacking Afghanistan National Army sites, but they didn't attack U.S. troops. And the quid pro quo was that Trump promised to get out and let the chips fall where they may. But the Taliban did not feel weak with regard to the central government of Afghanistan uh, and its army and police because they knew that it was a paper tiger, that, that it had no reality behind it. And they were constantly in contact with those troops and security forces in the rural provinces. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were feeling them out. They were saying, well, you know, what would it take for you to take off your white turban and put on a black turban and, 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 and join us? And uh, the, the troops would either indicate that, you know, they did have a price or they would indicate that they didn't. But uh, they were feeling them out and they felt a softness there. They felt a willingness uh, and Ashraf Ghani appears to have been unaware of this. He wasn't in touch with his own grassroots. Uh, and so when there were possibilities of him talking to the Taliban, he refused. Mm-hmm. Uh, so both the Taliban and the Ghani government bear some responsibility for refusing to talk. Right. Well, uh, this brings up a question now about, um, you know, how has the Taliban metamorphosed in the intervening years? I mean, we all remember, of course, uh, the time of Mullah Omar and, um, you know, they had this very strict ideological you know, brand of Islam, imposed it brutally, um, you know, on uh, Afghan population. Uh, there are, seems to be some signs of possible pragmatism in their approach now, or I wonder if there really are. Um, it also used to be almost exclusively uh, sort of Pashtun, uh, ethnic, uh, ethno-religious movement, um, but now seems possibly to broaden its base or at least be able to incorporate groups from other ethnic uh, communities more readily. I'm wondering what you make of the Taliban, what kind of a movement it is now, and um, what kind of approach to governance might they uh, take if there are signs that you've been reading? Um, yeah, so uh, and I think it's still largely a Pushtun movement. Hmm. And I don't think, I don't think very many Pushtuns are invested in it, but those who are are very invested in it. Uh, and I don't think it has much appeal uh, to the Tajik Persian-speaking Sunnis north of Kabul, uh, who held out against the Taliban in the 90s. Uh, I don't think it has appeal in Herat, uh, where people are also speak a, a dialect of, of Persian. Uh, it doesn't have appeal in the north, where there are Uzbeks. Uh, and it is roundly despised and hated by the Shia Afghans, uh, the Hazara, uh, who speak Persian and are Shiite of the sort that you have in Iran, uh, and who were massacred by the Taliban in the late 90s. In fact, Iran almost went to war with the Taliban over uh, their massacre of, of Iranian diplomats in Mazar-e-Sharif in 1998. 
so I don't think the movement is broadly based. Uh, it's 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 got a narrow constituency, but it has the spirit de corps. It has guns. I think it probably has money from somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can speculate from where exactly, but somebody's sending money. Would it be Saudi uh, Arabia? They are Sunni, right? You no, know, they say in the in the Middle East, Allahu Alam, God knows best. Uh, I, I don't, you know, I don't have a security clearance, and I don't. I'm not a hacker, so I, I can't trace the money going to the Taliban. In fact, they probably use the old Hawala system, so you couldn't. It's not electronic uh, transfer, so you probably couldn't trace it anyway. Uh, but it is rumored uh, that uh, the Pakistani military uh, supports them. I do not know. Uh, if that's true or to what extent. Uh, And you have to remember, there are a lot of um, millionaires and billionaires in the oil gulf, uh, many of whom have an ideology that uh, is supportive of the Taliban. And individuals can send a lot of money. And this happened with ISIL in Syria and northern Iraq. Uh, Three Kuwaiti businessmen were indicted for giving money to ISIL. Uh, So... um, I, I'm not in a position to specify, but I, I, I mean, it seems clear to me that they have more money than they ought to. Uh, they, they're from these rural Afghan provinces, which are poor as, as dirt. Uh, and uh, uh, how, how do they pay 70,000 fighters and uh, buy weapons and, 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 and bribe police to come over to their side and so forth. Uh, but, I don't think the money is the important thing. Uh, the important thing is that they're united, that they have a, a a strong esprit de corps, a strong ideology. And they had some advantages uh, with regard to the rest of the Afghans. Uh, they portrayed themselves as fighting an American occupation of the country. And again, I think it's really hard for Americans to think about themselves as having militarily occupied Afghanistan. Why they have trouble understanding that, I couldn't tell you, but it's it's not a discourse that we hear in our media. Uh, and uh, it is, however, very much how not only the Taliban, but a lot of Afghans saw it. I guess so. I wasn't sort of thinking that they had actually broadened, but I wondered if there was some pragmatism in order to achieve international recognition of the government, whether they might moderate some of the worst excesses that we remember from the late 90s, for example, like the massacre of the Hazaras. If they don't want Iran to take up or sponsor some kind of counterinsurgency to the Taliban control, they might have to you know, accept that there are, uh, you know, ethnic and religious differences in in the country. And I noticed that uh, there are some statements uh, from China, from Russia, um, even from Iran, suggesting that um, there might be the possibility to work with the Taliban. In fact, actually, even, you know, the U.S. government has just said, Biden has said something uh, to the effect of that if they recognize people's basic rights, um, 
you know, and don't sponsor terrorism and allow terrorism to take root, uh, terrorist organizations to have a haven, that it may be possible to work with them. So I'm wondering, what are they seeing? Is it just merely they have no other alternative or choice or are the Taliban themselves making overtures that suggest that they're prepared to do business um, and recognize um you know what it might take to rec- receive some kind of legitimacy for for their conquest essentially of the country yeah well you you may well be right adnan that uh, uh, that that there may be more pragmatism this time around um a, a thing to emphasize is that the word taliban has by now become fairly meaningless uh, you and I remember the old Taliban, uh, and that's what they're called, the old Taliban of Mullah Omar, uh, who were uh, largely formed in those Pakistani seminaries, the madrasas, which were Deobandi madrasas. They, they followed a school of Indian uh, Islam, which had an enormous emphasis on um, minute obedience to the uh, tiny details of uh, the uh, sayings and doings of the prophet and the companions. Uh, and they had these enormous, the Deobandis had these enormous uh, collections of hadiths or sayings and doings of the prophet in the early community and accepted many of those as legitimate that mainstream Sunni Islam has tended to view as weak. Uh, and uh, so, uh, you know, Comparative religions-wise, it's, it's, it's sort of like very, very orthodox Jews, the uh, the Haredim uh, and the Talmud. And um, that was the school in which they were brought up. And, of course, the Saudis had given money to those madrasas. And so they were inflect, inflected with the Saudi hardline Wahhabi ideology, which is somewhat different from the Deobandi, but they kind of melded the two uh, in those seminaries. And uh, they formed an old school tie. They they had an esprit de corps as like they'd all voted for the same soccer teams. And uh, uh, they've it, it just, the Pakistani constabulary discovered that they could be deployed uh, against uh, the robber barons who had grown up on on the Afghan Pakistan border. And so they gradually evolved into a military force. Uh, the people who call themselves Taliban today, clearly most often the younger generation, did not come up through those seminaries. Uh, and, uh, and so are they really Taliban? Because Taliban mean, means seminarian. Uh, they, they adopted a kind of outlook of the old Taliban. And then there are groups that joined in once the Americans uh, invaded Afghanistan uh, so that you have... I'm sorry. Uh, you have the uh, the Hizbe Islami or the Islamic Party of Golbadin Hikmetyar, who was America's prime ally against the Soviets in the 1980s, but who turned on the United States once it came into Afghanistan in, in, in 2001 and joined the Taliban. So the Hizbe Islami people are often now called Taliban, but they're not. I mean, they never had any, they, they were never in Pakistan and they were never in those seminaries and, and they're just. Eastern Afghan Pashtuns uh, with a Muslim Brotherhood kind of outlook. Uh, and uh, uh, then uh, the Haqqani group uh, joined uh, the Taliban, and the Haqqanis were, again, uh, 
Jalal al-Din Haqqani had been an ally of the United States against the Soviets who turned on the U.S. Uh, in 2001 and after, and who were based in uh, the federally administrated tribal areas of Pakistan in uh, in in North Waziristan, uh, and they are extremely now anti-American, uh, and they are often called Taliban. But again, they've never had anything to do with seminaries, or, or and they're not actually what, what one might one might think of as Taliban. Uh, and then there's a new generation of people calling themselves Taliban. There are tribal groups like the Mahsud in northern Pakistan who declared themselves Taliban just because they like the ideology, although I think most of them have never been anywhere near a school. So um, uh, there's a lot of groups here that were lumping under that rubric of Taliban. And uh, it's not clear who's going to come out on top. Uh, Golbadin Hekmedyar, for instance, has announced that he's going to try to negotiate a, a transitional government with the current Taliban leadership and put himself in it. Uh, so he seems like not to be in the inner circle anymore uh, and is having to plead to be let in uh, to the new government. Right. Well, um I guess looking forward, you had a piece in Informed Comment that talked about the winners and losers, uh, you know, in this situation. And I'm wondering if maybe you could give us a little bit of a rundown of what you think the main consequences of the Taliban takeover will be geopolitically, um, especially since there could be a risk of um, regional powers, other groups content, contending for influence within Afghanistan now that the U.S. has has, has pulled out? Sure. Uh, well, I argue that Iran is, is, actually all of these countries are winners and losers, but uh, Iran is a winner to this extent that the U.S. military is no longer surrounding it. Uh, back in the zeros, the U.S. had 130,000 troops in Iraq. They had uh, nearly 100,000 in Afghanistan. The Iranians were in a vice. Uh, the U.S. has applied severe economic pressure to Iran. Uh, and so now there are no U.S. bases uh, near Iran, and th th there are only 2,000 U.S. troops left in Iraq, uh, and, and those are trainers. So uh, I think the Iranian leadership is breathing easier uh, after this has happened. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Iran can suffer some negative consequences from the rise of the Taliban, a hardline hyper-Sunni group that hates Shiites, not a pleasant uh, uh, neighbor for Shiite Iran and its ayatollahs. Uh, there's, going, there's already a big refugee rush into Iran from Western Afghanistan, which the Iranians are allowing. Um, Iran has a labor shortage, and, and, and the Afghans kind of help to fill it, so the Iranians don't really mind, I think, letting them in. Uh, but that's a burden on society. Uh, and uh, uh, so there's, there's danger of hostilities uh, with the, the Taliban on Iran's part. There's danger of Taliban attacks on Afghan Shiites, which would put the Iranians in a difficult position, as you, as you said, Adnan. Uh, and, um, and then... Uh, the Taliban weren't usually very good about cracking down on the poppy trade. Uh, and that could see a big in, uh, resurgence. Uh, there are a lot of addicts uh, uh, to heroin in Iran, Pakistan, uh, Russia. Uh, and that problem could resurge and, and grow. 
Um, Pakistan is a winner. Uh, they have good relations diplomatically with the Taliban. They may be backing them behind the scenes. Uh, the Taliban delegation is coming to Islamabad. Pakistan will recognize the new government. And uh, from Pakistan's point of view, or from the point of view of the Pakistani military and political elite, uh, they were not happy with the Ashraf Ghani government and its predecessors. They saw those Kabul governments that the U.S. had installed as pro-India. Yeah, and, yeah. and Pakistan has severe conflicts with India. It has a long border with India. India is a much larger uh, country with more allies. So Pakistan felt, you know, if you have a pro-India government in Kabul and, and then you have India on the other side, that it's kind of squeezed and uh, uh, insecure. So Islamabad, I think, is pretty happy about these developments, even though, again, they may face a big refugee uh, influx. And they, they did take in 3 million refugees during the 1980s Soviet war. Uh, about half of those families had gone back in recent years, but they could come right back. And that's a big burden on Pakistan's economy. Uh, and uh, and again, the, the drug problems are there, uh, trafficking and so forth. Um, I would argue that uh, Russia is a beneficiary of this in the sense that Uzbekistan and Tajikistan uh, the immediate neighbors uh, of Iran, of Afghanistan, that are former Soviet socialist republics, are terrified of the Taliban. Uh, their post-Soviet elites are secular-minded people and don't like political Islam at all. Mm-hmm. They're afraid of Taliban influence in their countries. Uh, the last time the Taliban came to power, the uh, uh, Uzbekistan closed the only bridge. The friendship bridge between the two countries was closed. There was no friendship. Uh, and um, uh, people are fleeing across that bridge from Mazar. In fact, the apparently a good deal of the Afghanistan army fled across the bridge into Uzbekistan. So uh, the Russians are telling the Uzbeks and the Tajiks, uh, uh, never fear, Moscow is here. Uh, and offering them more Russian troops, more Russian bases uh, to protect them from the Taliban. And ordinarily, you know, the Uzbeks and the Tajiks finally got uh, free of the Soviet Union. Uh, They might not be so eager uh, for a big uh, Russian military presence, but under these circumstances, they might be welcoming it. So uh, Putin could well reassert himself in Central Asia. Uh, So some of those are some of the winners and losers here. What about China? I mean, I think they've been among the first governments to say that it's possible to work with the Taliban. And obviously they have some strategic relationship with Pakistan and rivalry with India. So they also seem to have had an interest in a pro-Pakistan government in Afghanistan simply because of their close relations with with Pakistan. Yeah, um, I think. China, first of all, wants stability. Uh, It's like 19th century Britain. It's a status quo power now. And it has these big plans for uh, building out the infrastructure of transportation and trade in Central Asia. Mm -hmm. And the instability in Afghanistan was a, a drawback for these Chinese plans. So I think it could go either way if the Taliban advent in Afghanistan provokes more instability then it will be uh, an obstacle to the one belt one one road plans uh that that China has 
if on the other hand the uh, the Taliban are able to make the trains run on time uh, uh there there aren't any trains I don't think but uh, some may be created uh then uh, uh then China would be happy enough with that situation the Chinese don't like successful democracies the Chinese government uh they they keep wanting to say that it's not a universal model that the United States puts forward or the NATO puts forward. Uh, and so I think uh, uh, any time a democratic government falls, as just happened in Afghanistan, to the extent that the any government was elected, which it was, and there was an elected parliament, the Chinese take a certain amount of uh, satisfaction in that. On the other hand, the Chinese are uh, really afraid of political Islam. And uh, they, of course, have been rounding up uh -huh. uh, and re-educating their own Muslims, uh, the Uyghurs of the of the uh, Northwest, um, sending in Chinese settlers amongst them, diluting their political power, uh, uh, rounding up large numbers of them, apparently, uh, to re-educate them. Uh, and some Uyghurs had gone to fight with the Taliban. I mean, there are Uyghurs among the Taliban. So that's not going to make Beijing very happy. And the possibility of a Taliban blowback on Xinjiang, on the northwest uh, part of China, has to be in Beijing's mind. Right. Um, you mentioned the problem of refugees. Um, already, of course, there are three million or so that had come to uh, Pakistan. Some, as you pointed out, returned. There also were millions um, in uh, Iran and there could be uh, even more. Um, but um, Turkey has made some interesting um, pronouncements about the need to stabilize the situation to prevent refugees from coming into Turkey via Iran. And it seems that uh, Erdogan is um, in mini-me style uh, building a wall uh, along the border to prevent refugees coming from, well, to prevent people coming from Iran into, into Turkey. Um, but they've also been suggesting that they want to stay, unlike um, many of the other NATO, gov NATO uh, governments. They haven't pulled out their uh, diplomatic personnel. They've maintained their troop presence and are uh, claiming that they would like to negotiate uh, a way for them to stay and control or protect the airport. I'm wondering what you think of this um, kind of overture. What is uh, Turkey's interest in this? Um, and why, um, perhaps you can explain why it seems so fundamental to control uh, the airport once you have evacu the evacuations, you know, taking place, you know, in the next several weeks, if all the U.S. troops and all the European um, diplomatic uh, missions and so on are out uh, of Afghanistan, what's at stake really in control uh, over the airport? Yeah, well, Turkey has a long-standing Central Asia policy. Um, I don't think anybody's very invested in pan-Turkism anymore, but, you know, the Uzbeks and the um, Kazakhs, uh, the Turkmen, do speak Turkic languages. They're about 50% mutually comprehensible with uh, Istanbuli Turkish. Uh, and uh, Turkey has tried to uh, parlay that linguistic similarity into trade relations and diplomatic relations. 
without tremendous success, but it's it's one of the features of the uh, Justice and Development Party that has been ruling Turkey uh, since the since about 2002, uh, that it's very invested in expanding Turkey's foreign trade. Uh, and uh, Central Asia with uh, gold and oil and cotton and so forth is is uh, an area that the, the Turks have their eye on. So I think, you know, their Afghan policy is an extension of their Central Asia policy. They'd like, and there are Uzbeks, uh, Turkic speakers, about 10% of of Afghanistan is Turkic speakers. Uh, So um, I I think probably they want to keep the airport open uh, uh, partially so that Afghanistan doesn't become isolated from uh, world trade and, and, and world relations. They would, they would like to keep the country available for these investment projects and so forth. Uh, and uh, and have Turkey play Big Brother to some extent, uh, which it's very happy to play in, in a number of countries. Uh-huh. Uh, so I think that's that's part of what's driving all this. Uh, the other issue is the refugee problem. Turkey uh, uh, suffered enormously from the Syrian civil war and has taken in, oh, I think they say three and a half million uh, uh, Syrians. Uh, and um, a lot of Turks are done out about this because they do take service resources. On the other hand, Turkey, again, uh, had a labor shortage uh, compared to the potentiality of the growth of its economy, uh, and the Syrians have filled it. So there's a lot of small businesses, a lot of farms uh, that suddenly could expand. Uh, they couldn't before because now they have uh, Syrian labor. Uh uh, but it's been a controversial subject in Turkey. Uh, those three and a half million people for a country of 82 million, this is this is big. Uh, or it might be 85 now. Uh, and um, then large numbers of Pakistanis, Afghans, Syrians, and so forth used Turkey as a transit into Europe, which in, 19, in 2015, 2016 caused uh, uh, a crisis in Europe. Uh, Turkey pledged to Europe that it would crack down on those flows, the refugee flows, uh, if it were given the resources by Europe to do so. So basically Erdogan shook shook down the European Union for about $3 billion a year. Uh, I think he has to be a little bit afraid if if hundreds of thousands of Afghans show up in Berlin uh, through Turkey that uh, the European Unions will cut off the 3 billion. Uh, and then some of them may stay in Turkey, adding on to the Syrians and, 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 and cause him political domestic problems. Yeah. Well, I guess we should come to the U.S. So domestically speaking, I mean, what do you think are the real implications or how do you think uh, Biden has been handling uh, the sort of quick collapse of the Kabul government? Um you know, it seems like many on um, in the Republican Party are trying to uh, pin, you know, all of the ignominy upon Biden and his policy. As you pointed out, uh, the roots of this were deep and far back in history. This has been a failed war for a really long time. And, you know, Trump policy, this is really in some ways the fulfillment of the Trump uh, policy to remove the U.S. from active military involvement and in propping up the government. But how do you think he's been uh, handling and what do you think are the domestic uh, consequences 
how might this fit into uh, uh, Biden's policy in in the region in general and other kind of continuing conflicts that the U.S. is involved in? Well, this is very personal for Joe Biden, as I read him. Um, Biden uh, was an advocate as vice president uh, way back in 2009 for uh, abandoning the Bush administration projects of nation building in Iraq and Afghanistan. And Biden negotiated the U.S. withdrawal from Iraq in 2011. And uh, he, he felt that uh, the issue for the United States in the Middle East, aside from Israel and oil, uh, was security. And the security issue was a terrorism issue. And what you do about that is if you have a terrorist cell, you hit it. And Biden has been around the block. You know, he was chair of the powerful uh, Senate Select Committee on Foreign Affairs for many, many years. And he was a minority uh, leader when, when he wasn't chair. Uh, and uh, he's been to most of the countries in the world. He knows the world very well. He knows that 99.9% of people in the Muslim world are not terrorists and, and don't hate the United States, uh, that, that, that the terrorists are a fringe. So his argument has been, and this is uh, 20 years he's been making this argument, that, that it's wrong to misuse American resources to occupy countries and try to build up governments and uh, reshape the world and, and, and play master of the universe. It is very expensive and, and, and costly in treasure, but also in U.S. military lives. When, you know, you're using the wrong tool for the wrong project. If, 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 if terrorism is the nail, then you use the hammer of, of counterterrorism. Uh, and uh, he, he clearly was at odds with the Pentagon, where you had these big think uh, generals like uh, General David Petraeus and Stanley McChrystal, who wanted to do what they called counterinsurgency. And their idea of counterinsurgency very much was a matter of nation building. Uh, a lot of counterinsurgency thinking uh, goes back to the British uh, uh, campaign against the communists in, in colonial Malaya, what, what later became Malaysia, uh, without Singapore. Um, and uh, uh, the British uh, had a problem in the 1940s and 50s with, uh, with communism in Malaya, and uh, they rejiggered their colonial apparatus and they used their military in Malaya to put down the communists. Uh, and uh, it's been pointed out, and, and people kept referring to the Malayan model uh, during the Vietnam War, for instance, and this is, runs deep in the U.S. military intellectual history. Uh, but it's a, it's, a, it's a wrong model. It's completely inappropriate. Uh, th there are many things to say. I was once on the radio with John Mearsheimer, the realist uh, thinker from Chicago, and Max Boot brought up Malaya. And, uh, and and John was was it was it was so funny it was deadly. John looked John John looked at, at Max Boot. He said, "Max, the British aren't in Malaysia anymore." <laughs> it wasn't that successful? 
uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, but, but the other thing to say is that the British had been in Malaya since the 1850s. Uh, they went there for, for tin and rubber, and uh, they knew their administrators knew local languages. They had uh, been there for, for decades and, and knew local leaders. And communism didn't have a, an appeal to the majority or the or the or the uh, the fifty percent of the of the population that is ethnic Malay. It was only the uh, sum of the Chinese Malays who uh, went communist. So the British just rounded them up and isolated them. They put them in camps and things. And you you know, Afghanistan is not like Malaya, and the United States didn't know Pushtu and it, it didn't know the people, it didn't know the names of the tribes. It, it, it couldn't have done in Afghanistan what the British did in Malaya. Uh, and Talibanism obviously is much more popular than, than communism was in Malaya. So, um, but I'm arguing that Petraeus and these uh, big think uh, military thinkers had that model of nation building, of doing, of, of, of colonizing Afghanistan. And uh, Barack Obama, when he came into office, uh, was, you know, we forget, you know, was very young and naive. He really didn't know the world. And uh, he he went to the Pentagon and said, well, I want a withdrawal plan. Uh, in fact, I want three plans. I want a, a minimalist plan where we just, you know, what would happen if we got right back out? Uh, I want a medium plan if, if we have to do something to stay in for a while. I want a, a, a big plan if, if we're going to have to do something major there. So the Pentagon said, yes, sir. And then nothing happened. And, and Obama didn't hear from them. And, you know, Washington's very catty. So by fall of 2009, there were op-eds in the Washington Post that what's, what's Obama's Afghanistan policy? Does he know what he's doing? He's dithering here. So he goes back to the Pentagon and, and says, uh, well, where are the three plans? And they said, well, uh, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but they said, uh, Mr. Obama, we, we've just really been able to do the one big plan. We don't have the minimalist one for you. Uh, but the big plan would be to do a counterinsurgency. Uh, so you give us extra 100,000 troops and we'll take care of the country for you. And so Obama fell for it. Uh, I don't know if he felt he had little choice but to do something. Uh, of course, everybody was afraid all along that if you just pulled up stakes, uh, I think this goes back to Bush, that what what would happen in Afghanistan is what, what just happened. So he didn't want to do that. Uh, so he, he let Petraeus and McChrystal run wild in Afghanistan, gave them all these uh, billions of dollars, and uh, and they did what they called counterinsurgency. But McChrystal actually at one point said, we're going to bring down a, a, a government in a box from Kabul down to some of these provinces that uh, the Taliban were in. We'll chase out the Taliban. We'll, we'll establish security. We'll establish good relations with the locals. And we'll bring down a government in a box from Kabul. I, I mean... I mean, McChrystal revealed himself not to be the brightest bulb in the chandelier later on uh, when he mocked Biden and uh, to the Rolling Stone uh, and um, got himself fired. But uh, uh, that he thought that there was a government in Kabul for Kabul was a sign of how clueless he was, much less that expertise was in Kabul that could be brought down to Pushtun areas in Helmand province. So... Um, uh, I don't mean to be glib, but I would. I, I think it's fair to say that this counterinsurgency project, uh, which involved uh, nation building, was was a, an enormous failure. 
And Biden didn't want it. He, he told Obama, don't do that. And uh, he fought against it. I, I do some consulting in D.C., so I used to hear from the congressman that, that Biden was unhappy. Uh, and uh, when he became president, he finally had a, an opportunity to say no. No more nation building, no more counterinsurgency. If there's a terrorism problem, and you know, if, if Qaeda's cell grows up in, in, in Logar province in Afghanistan, by God, we'll send in special ops guys and we'll send in drones and we'll kill them. But we don't need to spend trillions of dollars on occupying this country. Yeah, it seems that he's um, been rather direct in saying um, that, you know, if uh, Afghan military won't fight for the country, why should we? Um, so we have to actually take a much more realistic approach. Um, and um, we'll see if that politically, um, you know, uh, preserves his, you know, prefer, preserves his uh you know, uh, congressional majority and, and so on in the upcoming midterms. But um, it seems like there's an attempt to try and uh, uh, pin, you know, the failure of Afghanistan on him. So I think it's an interesting political move uh, on his part to simply own it and say that it doesn't, um, you know, there's there's no reason to be staying staying in, in, in there and that this this collapse of this government proves that it was uh, a failed policy that you can't continue to 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 prosecute. Um, so we'll see. That's. Um, I wondered also if we have a bit of time. I wondered if uh, for a few minutes we might look beyond Afghanistan into other parts of the. Uh, Can I ask East just region? a quick question? Yeah, this is so. In, this is so fascinating. I'm a little confused. Uh, thank you for coming on the show again, Doctor Colin. Thank you, Professor Hussein. What is the Taliban offering the country of Afghanistan? There, there are about a thirty some some odd million people. Are they winning the hearts and minds of this eclectic group? I mean, I was reading you over the weekend. It's a demographic nightmare. It's so split. Nobody speaks the same language. What are the what does the Taliban offer other than fear? Is what George W. Bush would say, but what do they offer the people of Afghanistan? Yeah. Well, for the people who might be won over by them, uh, they offer national independence, pride in country, pride in self, standing tall, no longer occupied by foreign Christians. Uh, and um, I think if you don't know Afghans, uh, it, 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 it may be hard to understand, but they're very, very proud people. And uh, they if, you're, if you're a Pashtun, are you proud of being a Pashtun and being a part of Afghanistan or is it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, actually, the, the word Afghan probably means Pashtun. OK. Uh, and uh, uh, the Pashtuns are the backbone of the country. They're very proud Afghans. Uh, there, there isn't really much in the way of a separatist movement among any of the ethnic groups in Afghanistan so far. And um, what do the Taliban want other than foreign intervention to disappear? What are they? Can they govern? Have they shown that they can govern? Can they can they collect the garbage? And what 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 does their government look like twenty you know twenty years from now? What what do they anticipate? 
Yeah, well, I, I mean, those are good questions. I, I think uh, we don't know the answer to many of them. Uh, they, they, they weren't very good at, at collecting the garbage in the 90s. I can say that. But then they were wet behind the years and they were these young seminary students who'd never had to organize anything. Whether they've learned something while they've been in the wilderness uh, or a new generation has come that's uh, uh, more canny, I don't know. Uh, but I think, you know, just what they offer um, is what people say in Afghanistan is this. First of all, they offer security. Uh, a lot of Afghanistan under the Americans was being run essentially by warlords. And they were often the same warlords that had run the place in, in, in the late 80s and early 90s uh, when the Soviets withdrew. Uh, Ismail Khan of of Herat, for instance, uh, Abdul Rashid Ros uh, Dostam in, in, in Mazar. These are brutal men. Uh, and um, um, Ismail Khan is not very different from the Taliban in his views of women's rights or, or, or that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you, are we going to be surprised by their misogyny? How bad is it going to be for women there? No. Again, we have to see. Um, I think to the extent that this new generation hasn't grown up in those all-male seminaries, you know, the first generation of Taliban were sociologically distinct. They, they, many of them didn't know any women. They were a lot of them were orphans, so they didn't know mothers, and they, they didn't know have sisters, and they they were brought up in these uh, all-male schools. Uh, so I think they were the ultimate nerds. You know, they were. Uh, very much afraid of, of women's autonomy. Uh, and uh, uh, so uh, th this new generation didn't grow up under those circumstances, uh, and, and many of them have families. Uh, we'll have to see if their attitudes will be different. Um, but uh, uh, the other thing is, again, it's very hard for a Western audience to understand this, but uh, the Taliban are seen as holy men. And uh, in, in Afghan society, uh, people have a great deal of loyalty to clan, uh, to, to, we often say, tribe. Uh, and it matters. You know, I had friends who lived uh, in, in, an, uh, in an Arab American community, and their children uh, got into a school, schoolyard fight. And the children came home mad at their mother. They said, you didn't tell us about the cousins. Because when they got into a fight with one kid, all the kid's cousins came and helped him. Uh, and, you know, industrialization and mobilization and those things have broken up a lot of these ties in, in the United States. I often ask my class, you know, how many of you could get a $5,000 car loan if you needed a new car uh, from your first cousin? And... I would say maybe 10% of the class raises their hand. And I say, you guys have tribe, the rest of you have no clue. But these tribes, uh, uh, the, the, the kinship networks support each other, but then they're in conflict with other kinship networks. There are feuds going on, Hatfields and McCoys. And you need a, ma a mediator. Who's, who do you trust to come in and settle the feud? Who's gonna be really just? You need a holy man. So one of the things that the Taliban 
does for people is that it'll settle their feuds. They're bringing them. justice. The leader, their leaders are judges, chief justices. And then they will stop the warlords from looting you and from raping your daughter. They will stick a gun in the warlord's face and, and cut, say, cut it out or else. And so people like that. Uh, and I think, you know, and, and what do they have to lose? Uh, the, the poverty rate in Afghanistan in the last five years has soared. Uh, and um, there's a small sliver of society that's raking up all of these development dollars coming in from the United States as strengthening some clans against others, as heightening the feuds. Taliban promised to end all that. So, you know, at the granular level, down at the village level, there are things that the Taliban, the people hope the Taliban will do for them. Now, whether they follow through or not, I don't know, but this is the hope. I mean, I'm an American. I can't imagine anybody being immune to the blandishments of capitalism, but uh, I, they can't be bought is what we're hoping. They, uh, that's been their reputation, right. and uh, it is that reputation that makes them attractive to people. Again, whether they get corrupted now that they're in power, I can't tell you. Right. Please continue, Professor Hussein. Well, I just was going to say that that's kind of what they offered in the 1990s during that period of warlord factional strife and war post-Soviets, um, you know, it was just tearing the country apart and the Taliban managed to impose a ruthless uh, peace, you know, that people appreciated for a brief period of time before they started suffering terribly under this draconian oppressive rule. But, you know, the Afghanistan, the Afghan people, they were exhausted by not just decades of war now it's generations of of war i mean you know it's 20 years of this latest uh conflict that is now coming to an end uh but there were two decades of war you know that preceded it so i think people are probably exhausted um it'll be interesting to see you know what happens and whether well um, they have peace you know, the, it doesn't feel like they're gonna that the that it's over does it? It doesn't feel like it's over. Well, I mean, they control basically the country now. I think the real question, and I wonder what uh, Professor Cole thinks, um, you know, whether some of these warlords might reemerge, particularly as proxies for, um, you know, other powers nearby, uh, say Iran or, you know, other countries that have a, a stake in particular communities and so on. Um, you know, that might uh, fuel a bit of a counterinsurgency uh, against the Taliban uh, government. I mean, that'll be interesting to see. But if they're able to establish a peace, um, it might survive for a while. Yeah, I, 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 it's, it's very unpredictable at the moment. Some of the warlords have been captured. So Ismail Khan in Herat is in jail. Uh, and uh, Rashid Dostam, uh, who massacred the Taliban at one point uh, mm. uh, in, in 2002, uh, has fled and his whereabouts are unknown. Uh, he, he had fled when, uh, the Taliban the, the first time and went to Turkey. Uh, so uh, this is the second time he's had to flee. Uh, so uh, whether, you know, some of the warlords uh, uh, in the countryside have managed to escape, um, you know, some of them will negotiate with the Taliban and they'll just say, as I said, you know, 
the Taliban like those black turbans, so all you have to do is take off your white one and put on a black one, and you're Taliban. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, the reverse of what happened in 2001, 2002 in the U.S. back the Northern Alliance, the Taliban took off the black turbans and put on white ones. Um, but uh, others may foster covert operations and uh, uh, strike at the new government. Uh, and um, I think it, it, it depends a great deal on how, how the Taliban treat people. If, if they're brutal uh, to people, then there will be resistance. Yeah, that's sort of what I had been wondering before, whether they'll moderate, um, you know, if they've learned anything or if the movement has changed, uh, you know, especially with the influx of some of these other groups that were absorbed into the Taliban. As you say, it's a pretty elastic uh, category, so um, it's hard to know. Has the ideological orientation developed or changed at all as a result of um you know, previous history and the absorption of um, new groups of, of people outside of that original seminarian core. Um, I guess there are a lot of questions, so we'll we'll see. I don't know if we have time, David, for other, uh, you know, topics or if Professor Do you, you want to take the Q&A from our audience? There's oh, some, wow. some Q&As in the if you if. If yeah, I, get... I can answer a few questions. I, I, let's let's say I, I could stay as much as another fifteen minutes, then I have to go. Great, thank you, Professor Hussein. You want to address the Q and A in the? Sure. I mean, we've got some uh, questions from Joe in Norway um, that have been posted. One of them is: Are there any legal threats and travel restrictions the living architects of the global on global war on terror are facing? Any new war crimes lawsuits at the ICC uh, that the Taliban are facing? I think he means um, uh, the American, American architects, architects, but we don't. Oh, we're not yeah, signatories well, there's a, there's to the ICC. Case, uh, there, there is a brutal case against. Uh, uh, U.S. military at the International Criminal Court, uh, and um, um, the Trump administration actually placed Treasury Department sanctions on the ICC judges uh, to attempt to prevent them from going forward with that case. Uh, the Biden administration has backed off that threat, uh, but I, I don't have details of where the case now is. So we're not only not signatories to the International Criminal Court were actually trying to punish the judges. We, we have threatened the judges that they should never come near us or Israel. Right. We're not under international law, apparently. Why do they hate us? What is the next question? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a global question from Dan uh, Hagert. So what does Dr. Cole think the role of the West should be in the greater region? Well, um, the thing that I would regret is if the rise of the Taliban government should result in the the new government and the people of Afghanistan being placed under sanctions. Uh, I think uh, the, the U.S. has gone wild with the sanctions business uh, since the 1990s uh, and uses it uh, instead of diplomacy uh, and in ways that are ruinous to the lives of ordinary people. Uh, and uh, uh, we can see this in Iran. Um, the, 
Secretary of former Secretary of State uh, Pompeo used to say that the U.S. financial sanctions on Iran and trade sanctions didn't interfere with humanitarian aid, uh, and this is simply not true. And Madeleine uh, Albright was okay with the humanitarian disasters created by the sanctions against Iraq. Um, she said it was she, worth it. She told me she deeply regrets her phraseology in that regard. Oh. Uh, but in any case, yes, I mean, these kinds of sanctions that have knock on, I, I think, the, to be fair, the, the sanctions on Iraq in the 1990s, um, uh, one of them was that since chlorine can be used to make bombs, uh, they stopped chlorine from going into the country. But chlorine is essential to water purification. Uh, and I don't know about you, but I really wouldn't want, want to drink the Tigris after it flowed by Baghdad without having the water purified. Uh, and uh, so adults can survive uh, uh, those, my, uh, those bacteria, but uh, babies don't do well. Uh, they don't have immunity. So uh, there, there was a, a spike in, in infant mortality uh, from us not letting the chlor chlorine in on the grounds that it had it was dual use, it had military uses. That was, I think, not foreseen uh, and, and, and was genuinely regretted. Uh, the, the UN and other studies of the 90s have now suggested that maybe s some of the uh, fatality statistics were exaggerated. But anyway, you, you make my point, uh, um, uh, David, that the... Uh, the U.S. has for a long time now engaged in sanctions that have a deleterious effect on ordinary everyday people, not just on the governments that are being targeted. Uh, and in Iran, the Trump administration actually uh, made the Iranian Central Bank a terrorist organization. So you can't send money to Iran if you're an aid organization without being charged with material support of terrorism. Uh, and uh, it's it's interfered with them getting the vaccine. I think the Biden administration is trying to take off that sanction. But uh, I, I would hate to see the poor Afghan people now again punished by the international community uh, just because the Taliban came to power. I, I think, in fact, if we're hoping that the Taliban will moderate, uh, the best thing would be for the country to be able to develop and, and have some prosperity. Uh, I think most prosperous people don't want to live hyper-Puritan lives. Uh, and uh, um, so anyway, and, and, any, and since they are very poor and they've been under war all this time and many are refugees, uh, it, it just would be horrible for us to sanction the whole country. Yeah, I mean, that reminds me that I think Germany announced that um, they would be ending their aid operations um, as a result of the Taliban takeover. And that's exactly the kind of counterproductive, you know, even if you don't have sanctions, if nobody is willing to make any investments to help the people who have been suffering so much, uh, it certainly will worsen, worsen the situation. Um, uh, Professor Marianne Cummings um, may be getting at something from a different angle that I was asking about. What was the effect on the character and conduct of the Taliban by their association with Al-Qaeda? Have they changed post-Al-Qaeda? So I guess that's getting at like whether the Taliban have developed ideologically in any different sort of direction, perhaps. Yeah. I, I think it's a mixed picture. Um, I think... Uh, 
there are some, uh, well, well there, were, there were a lot of Taliban who were furious with bin Laden for 9-11 because he brought the whole weight of the U.S. military down on them and cost them the rule of the country. Uh, and, and they maintain he didn't tell them that while he was their guest, he was planning to hit a superpower from their territory. Uh, so, and by the way, there were a lot of Al-Qaeda operatives who were upset with bin Laden over it as well. He put a big red target on their backs. Uh, so, um, it could be uh, that uh, the, the current leadership will be un, unwilling uh, to put up with uh, uh, hosting active terrorist cells. Uh, and they are, by the way, the Taliban are America's best friend in fighting ISIL. Uh, if what you're worried of is about the so-called Islamic State and its uh, plans for caliphate, uh, they do have a, a branch in Afghanistan. It is small. Uh, but the Taliban are brutal towards it. Uh, they, they have fought it uh, effectively. Uh, so there could be counterterrorism, you know, positive implications of, uh, of Taliban rule. But there are Taliban who are old buddies with some of those Al-Qaeda guys uh, and uh, uh, who will bring them back and pal around with them. Uh, we, should, we should have our eyes open about that. Maybe a last question uh, here, uh, again, from Joe in Norway. And uh, I'm glad that we have listener questions because I wanted to ask about some of these other topics that we didn't get a chance to discuss. But uh, Joe in Norway writes, news from East Jerusalem has been quite, uh, I guess, present in the Western media. What has the new Israeli administration been doing about the ethnic cleansing going on there? Well, the new Israeli government is itself uh, extremely divided, uh, and uh, it uh, is headed by Naftali Bennett, who is more dedicated to the settler cause uh, of Israelis uh, uh, squatting on Palestinian territory uh, than his predecessor was. Uh, and uh, Bennett seems to be getting his way in the cabinet. Uh, and so more squatter settlements have been announced by Israelis uh, in the Palestinian West Bank. And um, more Palestinian families have been expelled uh, from their homes, uh, to which they got title typically uh, during that period when Jordan was uh, ruling the West Bank uh, uh, before 1967, and whose title would stand up in international law. Uh, but the Israelis have uh, abrogated the, those titles, and they're expelling Palestinians from the neighborhoods of Silwan and uh, Sheikh Jarrah. Uh, ultimately, some tens of thousands of Palestinians are in danger of being made homeless in this way. Uh, some of them for a vanity project uh, that Israelis uh, dream of, of a vast uh, uh, kind of museum of the city of David. Uh, and um, some of them uh, so that Israeli squatter settlers can come over from Tel Aviv and kick Palestinians out of their homes and, 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 and dwell in them. 
Uh, that situation is unfolding. Uh, more uh, people were kicked out of their homes uh, this past week uh, in Sheikh Jarrah and uh, uh, maybe it was Salwan, I can't remember. And and then uh, there's no sign of the Bennett government backing off of this policy. Um, if uh, listeners would like to learn more about Afghanistan and its its history and the situation, do you have any recommendations for reading besides, of course, people regularly following uh, analysis uh, in uh, informed comment? Where else should they go uh, to learn more about Afghanistan? Well, there's a great book by Thomas Barfield of uh, 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 Boston University, a uh, real old time, old, old Afghan hand. Uh, and uh, there is a series of books uh, by Edward Williams, uh, uh, which are excellent. Uh, so um, the, there are anthropologists, uh, mainly anthropologists, who have uh, written really spectacular works about Afghanistan. I always tell people when they ask me for recommendations for reading on a subject uh, that um, um, look to see whether where the person teaches uh, if you can't answer that question, then don't bother. Uh, of course, there are also some good journalists. I, I shouldn't be too glib. Uh, um, no, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. especially now with all this disinformation. That's a great question to ask. Yeah. Rashid Ahmad uh, is another uh, a great uh, Afghanistan expert who has a number of books uh, on the Taliban. In particular, he's a journalist based in yes. Pakistan, uh, but uh, but a journalist of very high uh, standards and with academic type expertise. And I want to thank you for informed comment because you're you write for people like me. You you don't try to you you try to explain things in in a simple language. It's accessible. Uh, I, I don't want to bring up Paul Krugman, but he writes about economics in a way for the simple-minded and i find uh you're a great uh a writer and i thank you for making uh, such complicated such complicated issues uh somewhat digestible so th thank you for informed comment uh, I appreciate well, well, thank you, David. That means a lot to me coming from you and coming from a simpleton. I, I know. What I, oh, no, no. <laughs> from a journalist yourself. I, well, I, I actually worked for, for a newspaper in Beirut. Uh, and uh, I also did some student journalism. So I, I kind of got we used to say in the old days, that you get ink in your blood. I guess that doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Uh, but uh, academic uh, writing tends to push people away. And yeah. a professor who has some journalism in his blood, it's more inclusive. It's important. You have to, to try to, you can't be right. writerly, you have to be readerly. You have to right. try to think about the reader. I, I once used the word lacrimose, which means tearful, in one of my stories. My editor came to me and said, Cole, that's a 25 cent word. <laughs> you give me a five cent word and I'll give you 20 cents change. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's excellent. Well, you've been really generous with your time again, uh, Juan. We really appreciate it. And um, I think listeners have a really good handle now on what's been going on in Afghanistan and, and beyond. So thanks so much for, for Thank you. coming to talk with us.
Well, thank you. It's, it's always a good stop for me. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Adnan Hussein, for bringing Dr. Cole back. And please, everybody go to informed comment, com. I promise you, you will, uh, you'll, you'll thank me for that. Thank you, uh, Dr. Cole. And thank you, uh, Professor Adnan Hussein. I think what we're going to do now is bring in the professors, Professor Ann Lee. And we promote her to uh, a panelist here. And we have Professor Jonathan Bick and Professor Marianne Cummings. And, uh, and we should, uh, what am I doing here? Uh, where's Professor Ann Lee? Let me bring her in. Th uh, Professor uh, Adnan Hussein, thank you. That was just a great interview. That was just well, amazing. He's, he's a font of uh, information, analysis. You know, he's been doing it a long time, you know, paying attention. So he, he gives you a real sense of um, patterns, you know, that uh, that other people wouldn't have right at their fingertips uh, simply because he's been analyzing what's been happening in the Middle East for a long time and because he's got this very historical perspective as well from the 19th century and so on. So it's always a pleasure to, to well, talk with him. You did a great job. Uh, any of you people, professors, want to ask Professor Hussein a question about, about this? I was kind of surprised. I, I always thought that the Taliban had cracked down on the opium trade. He said during the interview that they were lax when it came to. I think I think initially they did crack down. I mean, there was um, a kind of uh, moral puritanism, you know, a sense that uh, this is undermining the integrity of society. It's a vice um, like many other things, um, many things that, that they cracked down on. So I think initially they, they did suppress the uh, opium trade. And I think there was actually a UN yes. report soon after. I remember when uh, Colin Powell had given the Taliban like $43 million to just crack down on, on opium. That was early in 2001. Yeah. So they, they had a relationship with the Taliban but I think at other times and uh, other circumstances, um, you know, I don't think uh, they necessarily uh, held up the same policy. And they also had to fund, I think, their own operations, uh, you know, during the period uh, post 2001. And um, so their record may be patchy subsequently, but I do think initially in the mid late nineties, they were pretty effective at suppressing, you know, opium production and the, and as a result the, the heroin trade. And I don't think any other uh, government in Afghanistan has been as successful, right? <laughs> I mean, that's been a, a constant uh, that opium has been produced and sold. Yeah, they. Uh, I think they still maintained a certain leadership in the in production, um, and of course, it's very hard to keep statistics about illicit the illicit drug trade. Um, but my my question would have been if you had made 
uh, opium or the poppy, uh, because it's all concentrated in, I think, one province. If you'd made it a state industry, that would have changed the uh, Afghan economy. But that's sort of a counterfactual. And I, I, I don't know if there's any numbers for it, but it, I think it would have changed the nature of uh, the post 9-11 uh, Afghanistan to create more uh, state industries. Um, you mean like have the Sackler family go in and, and run the trip? <laughs> well, I mean, how, well, can, can you well, have a legitimate yeah, actually, opium trade? Ac actually, you know, if there's a, the equivalent American of, uh, warlords. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Could there no, be a legitimate that, opiate trade? Well, you know, I, I think there will be since the Russians are going to have greater influence. You know, the Russians, um, the Russian embassy uh, uh, released a an account of the fleeing of the president. And, and they're the ones who fronted that story on the pallets of, ca of cash left behind. So I think they were trying to, to put a little disinformational dig in the U in at the U.S. Why doing that? And and also the Taliban is protecting the Russian embassy uh, in 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 Kabul. Yeah. Do we have do we have any official presence now, or are we just completely in a? Is there is there an embassy? Is there a consulate? Is there any U.S. office? I mean, I'm sure we're talking. We means somebody in the government is talking with the Taliban. I'm sure they've been talking with the Taliban all along. Yeah, I, but I was I, surprised I, to read that that there was a Russian embassy in in, in Kabul. It's not. Uh, it's not. It's being guarded, but but the Russians can come and go, whereas. Uh, uh, CNN uh, interviewed the Taliban guarding an empty U.S. embassy today. Uh, but everyone was very friendly, even though they cr criticized uh, uh, that uh, uh, the CNN reporter was not covering her face or her hands. But anyway, I mean, it was really interesting to, to actually see that happen in real time uh, where they were criticizing that no, we. You may be all dressed in black, but but you you're not covering your face or your hands. So, the by the twentieth anniversary of nine eleven, it looks like the Taliban are going to be back in charge. Take the military-industrial complex off the table. We know why it's in our best interest to be in a permanent state of war. But that can't be the only reason we were there for 20 years. Was there a massive intelligence failure or did we know all along that we couldn't prop up the government? Is there another reason we were there other than feeding the gigantic maw that is our defense industry? Other than that, did did oh. go ahead. We didn't want a loss. 
I think that's a big one. We didn't want to admit defeat. I think it was clear, you know, after the first year or two, or it certainly should have been, that there was no way we were going to create a democratic government in Afghanistan. I mean, uh, when the U.S. was there, it never the Afghan government never controlled the entire country. You know, and, and for many years, it was essentially the government of Kabul, you know, the larger Kabul. They did not control large parts of the country. Um, and to expect that that was going to turn around without a another massive uh, commitment from the United States, which was never going to happen, things were not going to change. Well, where did all that money go? I mean, um, Biden was telling us about, uh, about a week ago that there were 300,000 Afghan troops in place and they were going to, like... <laughs> ensure stability um yeah so who got that money pallets and pallets yes of unmarked american dollars going to god knows where it, I mean, everybody is being so cynical. The obvious reason in front of us is it was for women's rights. Yes. Yeah. It was obvious. <laughs> you know, this was like trotted out from the very beginning. And even now, um, you know, and it is going to be horrific, but it's a very conservative society. I don't think, um, you know, I don't think it's just the Taliban, obviously, um, where there's it's a patriarchal uh, conservative society. Um, but I think the use of a kind of imperial feminism was just so tragic. I mean, from the very beginning um, and we've been seeing some of these um, statements being made uh, now putting people on the media um, almost as if uh, there was any chance or possibility uh, to get involved again and to ramp up. Um, I, I don't know. I, I just I, I just found this. It's so utterly depressing to see 20 years of devastation, cynical exploitation of humanitarian ideals, claims about attempting to establish democracy. And, you know, clearly it had nothing to do with any of that. Um, and this poor country has just suffered so much devastation. Um, it just I can't I think it's very interesting that, you know, September 11th was chosen to have some sort of fanfare, I think, about the U.S. pullout. I th I think they didn't feel, of course, that um, they had won. This is obviously a loss, but they thought that they could manage the situation in such a way to claim certain kinds of victories with Anthony. Oh, Blinken yeah, I think they might, have, they might have thought that, you know, like Nixon, there was kind of a respectful interval between us pulling out yeah. of Vietnam and eventually the South Vietnamese government collapsing. It actually took like two years. Yeah to do that so i thought that they they thought so biden was might. right this isn't anything like the fall of saigon <laughs> <laughs> that's right <laughs> they were but but i but i think that they were committed they got boxed in by by trump wanting to you to use september 11th because he had proposed to do that in 2019 that's <laughs> when he had invited the taliban to show up at camp david and that got got screwed up by a uh 
an attack where some Americans got killed, because otherwise he he might have pulled pulled it pulled it off relative to 2019. Could we win over the Taliban? Could we bestow upon the medicine and food and pallets of cash and they become our friends and they oh, we do. go ahead professor we were sort of doing that before i mean i don't know you can go ahead professor i i think the russians got there first that's all i i truly believe that there there's just simply more russian influence floating around there uh in some ways at a very simplistic level uh, uh, Afghans, regardless of their tribal affiliation, just don't like the fact that the Americans were there twice as long as the Russians were. I mean, just just simply looking at it from a generational point of view, that alone may influence just daily lived experience. You know, those suckers have been here twice as long as the Russians and we hated the Russians. So, you know, whatever. Right. And Zbigniew Brzezinski used to take pride in tricking the Russians into attacking Afghanistan. And he said, you know, before he died, I gave them their own Vietnam and uh, they were in a quagmire. Well, <laughs> look at what we ended up with. Uh, why did we go in there? I mean, the, as Professor Cole said, the Taliban wasn't behind 9-11. They were hosting Osama bin Laden in the mountains next to Pakistan. They probably didn't want the, the wrath of the United States government. Why did we have to punish the Taliban? I remember 20 years ago, there was a pipe, Unical, somebody was building a pipeline. Mm -hmm. But... Really, I mean, you know, remember that the that the Taliban had offered to surrender early on, surrender uh, the Al Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. They'd offered to you know withdraw their protection, and uh, maybe President Gore might have acted differently. But as Wesley Clark had explained to us, that they had already had plans at that point that they were they meeting the Bush administration had about five or six wars they were planning to do in succession. So, uh, you know, I think I think ideology, I know old Saul has been lecturing us on ideology, but there is something about ideology, just, you know, thinking, maybe because you surround yourself by people who think similarly, that, hey, this is all a great idea, and why hasn't this been done before? And we could just take this over, and we're over the Vietnam syndrome, and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Now well, we have the Afghanistan syndrome. You have to remember, you know, the time here, uh, the, the triumphalism uh, after the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, that mm -hmm. the United States was the hyperpower of the world. And they wanted to prove that they were. But we defeated the Soviet Union without spilling any blood with Russia. I mean, I know we had proxy wars, but we... The lesson from the fall of the Soviet Union is we, we didn't have to go to war with them to defeat them. 
No? Yeah, but, but then once they were gone, we could do whatever we wanted. Right. Right. So, I mean, the project for the new American century, you know, I, I'm not sure if Afghanistan was on their target list, but they figured, hey, you know, we obviously got to go in here. Might as well add it to the list. Uh, we'll take over this place, democratize it, uh, make it a client state. Um, and then we can move on to the other countries in the Middle East, you know, Iraq, how can you be Iran. That, how can you be that arrogant and that stupid? Well, you know, that's so interesting that um, uh, Juan Cole mentioned uh, this conversation with Max Boot being put in his place. <laughs> he hates Hunter Trump. Shiner. He hates Trump. Yeah, that's the thing. Oh, well, I was going right. to say one of the most depressing things of uh, the last uh, several years has been seeing some absolute cretin like Max Boot <laughs> recovered uh, neocon warmonger being recovered uh, in MSNBC and polite democratic corporate centrist circles mm -hmm. simply because he hated Trump and one of the reasons he hated Trump was really because Trump threatened to pull back from um, you know, imperial engagements, new American wars. Of course, uh, you know, he, he bombarded many countries and it was all a hoax. But discursively, it was a reversal of the very unpopular neoconservative ideology. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that had so much to do with our involvement there. Uh, people do forget what uh, Marianne mentioned, that the Taliban actually did offer to hand over to enter negotiations and to hand over Osama bin Laden. They said, present us the evidence that he's the one who did it. We will, you know, you know, negotiate for, you know, his extradition. Um, so, but of course we didn't want that. There were these nefarious neocons, of course, but that was married to some sense of uh, outrage um, in the public, we needed to have blood. You know, there 3,000 people had been uh, killed in 9-11 and Americans were baying for blood. You know, a, a negotiated uh, uh, extradition of the ringleader would not have satisfied, you know, the bloodlust for vengeance of the American public at that time. Um, and when Afghanistan didn't provide the large scale set piece uh, bombardment with lots of targets and, um, you know, it was a, in, in, an insurgency, you know, uh, that had to be fought. It's not easy to portray that, you know, in cameras and live on, you know, television. Remember what made CNN was the first Gulf War right. was, you know, all of these wonderful smart bombs uh, exploding. And the pictures, you know, of devastation and all that. Americans needed to see that in order to feel that they had achieved vengeance and that people had paid for, you know, well, uh, this attack. There, there was also the residual feeling, I think, from certain hawks that they didn't go far. You know, this should have gone farther after liberating Kuwait. I mean, you know, it, it, the only reason why they they took back Kuwait was just that there was no satellite, you know, coverage to see that there was this big, you know, sort of end run, this hook being being made, um, you know, around the Iraqi forces. I mean, it was, 
I mean, if they bought satellite time from some, some commercial satellite, it, it would have turned out very differently uh, in terms of the first Gulf War. And the second Gulf War, uh, they wanted to do that on the cheap anyway, aside from the, the absurdity of being uh, welcomed as liberators. Uh, I mean, they totally screwed that up as well in terms of the the, the run to Baghdad. It, it was, you know, uh, it's amazing. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, the, uh, Professor Ann, remember that uh, President Cheney was pressuring and purging <laughs> the ranks of, of the military of any leaders who were dissenting. Shinseki. Shinseki. Yeah. Well, famously, and he wasn't even dissenting. He was just, you know... He, he was just advising that the, uh, the costs of these wars were going to run, you know, a tad higher than what they were touting. And he got he, he got drummed out. Yeah, the, the, that's the backstory of, of um, I was reading a, a book on, uh, I think it's the first Marine Division uh, uh, approach to, you know, running up the highway to, to Baghdad. And it was very clear that there was some real problems in, you know, they'd they were outrunning it was very much like uh world war ii you know they're outrunning their logistics they it, there was greater resistance uh they weren't being honest about uh, about certain military losses uh and, you know but like we lost a whole ton of helicopters actually in the second second gulf war then they never talk about it uh i mean there's just it, it was really problematic, but we got into it and WMDs and all that idiocy. I think because you know it, it was as as, uh, as as John is saying, it was arrogance. There's a certain arrogance about being able. Well, we knocked off uh, Afghanistan. Why don't we get a twofer and and grab Iraq? You know, this is. I, I mean, it is that, that and unfortunately. At, at the very base level, everyone can see what's going on. I think that was more than incidental, though, Anne. I, I believe that that was a plan all along of the Bush administration at the time, that there were several, and it came out of the PNAC, you know, Project for a New American Century uh, manifesto, that, you know, basically we, could, we were the world's sole superpower. We could go in there and reshape the world. And, uh, yeah, I'm a chief. David, can I? I'm oh, sorry. Yes, please. Go ahead. Uh, can I go back to the 1970s? I think. Yeah, let me just go get the time machine. All right. <laughs> okay. All right. The wheel, oh, I love you. Can I join oh, you? Join you. <laughs> when do we all could go back? Get their bell bottoms out. <laughs> um, well, I, I think that, uh, you know, many Americans don't know the history uh, that took place in Afghanistan in the 1970s and 80s in particular. Uh, in 1973, Mohammed Duad Khan, excuse me, Khan, overthrew the constitutional parliamentary system of King Zahir Shah and declared a republic with himself as president. In 1977, Daoud created a new constitution that established a presidential one-party system, again with himself as president, uh, after he killed a leader of the People's Democratic Party, or PDP, of Afghanistan, arrested all of its leadership, and purged all party members from government posts, 
the PDP revolted and took power in April 1978. And this was the government that stayed in power uh, until 1992. So, and let me tell you just a little bit about the social and economic situation in Afghanistan in the late 70s. Uh, less than 10% of the population was literate. The average life expectancy was 40. Infant mortality was over 25%. The country had no railways. It had few highways. Most people identified with local ethnic groups rather than a national identity, and most lived as impoverished farmers. So the new government of the PDP under President Noor Mohammed Taraki, I believe that's the way you pronounce his name, uh, brought socialist reforms while retaining private property, such as land reform, strengthening the public sector, separation of church and state, eradication of illiteracy, legalization of trade unions, and the emancipation of women. President Taraki declared a commitment to Islam under a secular state and to non-alignment in foreign affairs. In other words, he was not aligned with the U.S. and he was not aligned with the Soviet Union. Uh, he maintained that the PDP regime came about organically without foreign influence, was not communist, but rather was nationalist and revolutionary. However, because of its reform programs, its anti-imperialist rhetoric, its signing of a friendship treaty with the Soviet Union, and the presence of civilian uh, Soviet advisors at the time, although there were fewer than were uh, in Iran, uh, than, than the U.S. had in Iran at the time, uh, it was labeled communist by the world's media and its domestic opponents, which were fundamentalist Islamic elements in the country. So this government was trying to bring Afghanistan into the 20th century, and that was no easy task. Uh, peasant debts to landlords had been canceled. The system of usury was abolished, where it was a system where peasants had to borrow money against future crops, and this kept them in a permanent state of debt and under the control of the landlords. Um, hundreds of schools and medical clinics were built in the countryside. The reforms also encro encroached on the um, sensitive area of the Islamic treatment of women by outlawing child marriage, the exchanging of women into marriage in return for money or commodities, and teaching women to read. The Afghan Mujahideen, or holy warriors, objected to these reforms, and especially to land reform, since, money, since many of the Muslim clergy were, in fact, wealthy landowners. Mujahideen rebels concluded a BBC reporter who spent four months with them at this time. He said they were fighting to retain their feudal system and stop the Kabul government's left-wing reforms, which were considered anti-Islamic. By the spring of 1979, guerrilla fighting was taking place on numerous fronts, and the U.S. State Department's Hodding Carter warned the Soviet Union that, quote, we expect the principle of non-intervention to be respected by all parties in the area, 
including the Soviet Union, unquote. Now, he said this while the CIA was arming Afghan exiles in Pakistan and the U.S.-backed Shah of Iran was supporting them from the west side of Afghanistan. Uh, in March, Taraki went to Moscow to request ground troops to help the Afghan army put down the Mujahideen. Now, I think we have all heard many people say the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. Well, maybe. But I, I think that a government that invites troops into its borders, can you really call that an invasion? I don't know. But the Soviet prime minister at the time told President Taraki, quote, the entry into Afghanistan would outrage, outrage the international community, triggering a, stream, a string of extremely negative consequences in many different areas. Our common enemies are just waiting for the moment when Soviet troops appear in Afghanistan. This will give them the excuse they need to send armed bands into the country. Well, later that year, 19, in September 1979, Afezullah Amin ousted and killed President Taraki and began instituting the reforms much more forcefully, disregarding entirely traditional and tribic and ethnic uh, autonomy in the country. So he really imposed it with an iron hand. And this, you know, brought up uh, more indigenous uh, resistance um, because of the way he was implementing it. And the Soviets were outraged and considered a mean dangerous and unsuited to their main concern, which was preventing an anti-Soviet Islamic state in Afghanistan. The country shares a thousand mile border with the, or shared a thousand mile border with the Soviet Union, specifically along the uh, republics of Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, home to some 40 million Muslims. On December 8th, 1979, Soviet troops began to arrive in Afghanistan. It's unclear whether or not Amin had wanted them to come in. Um, but on December 23rd, the Washington Post commented, there was no charge by the U.S. State Department that the Soviets have invaded Afghanistan since the troops apparently were invited, end quote. But December 27th, the Soviets removed Amin from power and he was replaced by Vice President and former Deputy Prime Minister Babrak Kamel. Now, 1980 was a presidential year in the United States, and Jimmy Carter was not shy about pumping up the uh, Cold War rhetoric. Uh, he declared that the Persian Gulf area was now threatened by Soviet troops in Afghanistan, that the area was synonymous with U.S. interests, and that the U.S. would defend it against any threat by all means necessary. He called it the greatest peace to the greatest threat to peace since the Second World War. Uh, a bit hyperbolic if you consider some of the incidents we've had in the, they had uh, during the Cold War prior to this. But um, 
Afghanistan at this point became embroiled in 12 years of horrifying warfare. Now, why was this? Well, one was the Soviet Union was determined to keep its borders non-threatening. They felt that Islamic fundamentalism could spread to their Muslim-dominated republics. And whether or not that was true or not, or they were you know, overly afraid, that was motivating them. Uh, the Afghan government was committed to its goal of a secular reformed Afghanistan. And third, the U.S. was determined determined uh, that this should be the Soviets' Vietnam and that they should slowly bleed in Afghanistan the way the Americans were bled in Vietnam. And related to this last reason, a senior official in the Carter administration said, the question here was whether it was morally acceptable that in order to keep the Soviets off balance, which was the reason for the operation, it was permissible to use other lives for our geopolitical interests. This was quoted in the Washington Post in 1985. They think this was uh, likely uh, CIA Director Stansfield Turner who said that. But any moral concerns were easily overpowered by cold warriors because they had placed in front of them essentially a wet dream situation here. The CIA and the Pentagon now had a proxy army directly confronting their arch nemesis, the Soviet Union. There was no price too high to pay for this game. A million Afghan lives, millions displaced, billions of American dollars. The U.S. Congress was also fully on board. Representative Charles Wilson of Texas expressed a not uncommon sentiment at the time. And uh, if you've ever seen Tom Hanks. Yes. Tom Hanks says Charlie Wilson in Charlie Wilson's war. Uh, I didn't see it, but I assume it characterized him in a. As a hero, he got the weapons. Right. Right. So Charlie Wilson said at the time, quote, there were 58,000 dead in Vietnam and we owe the Russians one. I have a light obsession with it because of Vietnam. I thought the Soviets ought to get a dose of it. So Tom Hanks does eat babies. (laughs) Well, Charlie Wilson may have, I don't know. But I mean, he didn't he deify in, in that movie? I remember watching the movie thinking, is this right? Is Meryl Streep in that? No, no, no. no. Julia Roberts. Yeah. She played played Charlie's uh, rich, wealthy friend. Right. Who was, uh, I think, uh, uh, yeah, Joanne Herring. I remember seeing a picture of her in one of my covert uh, ops magazines, you know, those grainy black and white, you know, publications in the 1980s. Now, all I just remember seeing was this white chick with Afghan hat and Afghan garb holding up what looked like an AK-47. <laughs> what's that white chick doing in Afghanistan? You know, I thought they didn't like let girls like fight or something. But yeah. But I wanted to uh, I wanted to just interject briefly that this whole thing was being pushed by Zbigniew Brzezinski. Hmm. And even when I was in high school. I remember thinking, not a good idea to like have someone who grew up, 
you know, in the Iron Curtain country was a personal issue with the Soviet Union. You know, being head of our national security operation, he was the, uh, the national security advisor at the time. So bright guy, I mean, super smart guy. But, you know, his priority was something other than the ultimate security of our country, even though I'm sure he justified it in his head. As yeah. he bragged 10 years ago on the Diane Moon show, that, you know, that was all his idea, Operation Cyclone. I mean, they were spending, back in the 1980s, over like 600 billion, 600, what was it? A billion dollars a year. It was like close to a billion dollars a year back in the 80s when, you know, a little bit more money. Oh, yeah. We spent an enormous amount of money, you know, building up the Mujahideen. And, you know, eventually the Soviets did pull out. They started to pull out in 1988. Uh, They withdrew completely by February 1989. And the U.S. continued to support the Islamic rebels until 1992 when the mujahideen took over the country now this was three years after the soviets withdrew so there was more support in that country then for the uh, government the afghan government than there was obviously now for the u.s backed afghan government which collapsed in what a couple of months if if that um so the Afghan people, you know, they, they suffered uh, about a million dead. Estimates range from 550,000 to 2 million dead. 3 million disabled, 5 million made refugees, and 2 million made internal refugees. Um, so after the Mujahideen destroyed the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan, they turned on each other. Um, and whatever wasn't destroyed in the 12 years prior was destroyed by the warlords attacking each other in the 1990s. And Professor Cole mentioned Golbuddin Hekmatyar, um, who was one of these rebel leaders that the US was supporting. Uh, He was very insistent on a military solution to this civil war. Robert Newman, a a former US ambassador to Afghanistan said at the time, Hekmatyar is a nut, an extremist, and a very violent man. Now, remember, this fact did not prevent the U.S. from lavishing this guy with aid. Right? The, U- the U.S. also knew that Hekmatyar hated the U.S. almost as much as it hated the Soviets. Right? And his followers, those were the guys, people going around throwing acid on women's faces uh, because they wouldn't cover themselves in public. Kind of guy we're dealing with here and he's still around today yeah that's what's amazing is that he's still around and even more amazing it wasn't just that the u.s was willing to work with someone like him they picked people like him out and chose him because he was the most extreme and they thought these are the people who will stand up most violently to the the russians and the soviets and that was part of their strategy typically was to use extremist religious movements and groups the most violent types possible for forms of terrorism against leftist governments around the world it wasn't just in afghanistan 
I put in the chat that people should look up Mahmoud Mamdani's Good Muslim, Bad Muslim. Uh, it gives a really good review of how the U.S. with Saudi money, uh, you know, uh, you know, supported and helped create uh, basically radical Islamic terrorist groups in Africa um, to fight against, um, you know, pro-Soviet uh, backed regimes uh, on that continent in the 70s and then perfected it with this Zbigniew Brzezinski uh, policy trying to lure the Soviets into their own quagmire by using these jihadist groups. So it wasn't just that they were willing to use them, it's that they looked for these as the natural allies for their policy to roll back leftist socialist popular governments. Yeah. You know, um, and I, I'm not sure of the year, but I remember reading an article by Juan Cole, because I used to regularly go to inform Commons in the early 2000s, you know, on background. And he was describing how the Taliban, when they came, you know, when, when they came to power, were actually welcomed because they, they were able to establish a certain order and stability from all this, you know, warlord fighting and people who were more extreme. And what I really wanted to ask him about, because, uh, you know, he did give a good, yeah, I think he did give a good description of just how multifaceted and complicated and how, you know, the, you can't fit Afghanistan in a very convenient cultural box. That, you know, just how different their um, idea of, of Islam is from the Wahhabi school that uh, Osama bin Laden represented and, you know, his Saudi people represented. Right. And I don't know, Professor is saying if you had, um, you know, if you know a little bit about this. About um, the Soviet, uh, about, sorry, the Saudi involvement. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean the Saudi version of these, this extreme uh, oh, yes, of Wahhabism course. versus what the Afghan version of uh, Islam is. Well, I mean, see, that's the, an interesting point. Uh, Juan Cole was making uh, the point that there are a lot of wealthy people in the Gulf who are ideologically quite sympathetic to the Taliban approach to Islam. They might be somewhat distinct movements based in South Asia versus these, you know, Arabic speaking areas. But what they do share is this kind of radical literalism of okay. interpreting the religious texts uh, as literal documents that have to be implemented. And we talk we call it the Wahhabi uh, movement when we're speaking about, um, you know, in Saudi, other parts of the Gulf. Uh, to a certain extent, you could characterize the Muslim Brotherhood as being somewhat sympathetic, but there are different strands within that. And then there are South Asian versions uh, of this as as well, of this kind of radical literalist approach to these religious texts and the idea that it has to be imposed literally without interpretation, without circumstance, without social conditions but just literally this is what the text says let's let's implement it um 
And so that's what we see with the Taliban is this Deobandi Salafist orientation. It's a school of interpretation that developed in India um, as a one of these kind of modernist uh, movements that tries to roll back modernity. It's a response to modernity um, that tries to go back to the seventh century texts and say any of that intervening interpretation that developed slowly over time and was adapted to different societies and cultures for a century, for centuries upon centuries, all of that needs to be uh, tossed aside and we have to go literally to the text and, and impose that. Um, and so when people say, oh, you know, Islam needs a reformation, it's like, well, it got one. And that's what, you know, what is really frightening is because it was this like, like the Protestants said, let's get rid of the Catholic kind of church and this interpretation of the medieval church and go literally to the text. Well, this is what these folks were doing in the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, so, yes, there is a lot of ideological uh, symmetry and sympathy, you might say, between extreme fundamentalist and literalist approaches to Islam that were birthed in some ways in the Gulf, in, in Arabia, and um, movements like uh, the, the Taliban um, in other parts of the world. And these oppose what were kind of traditional, um, culturally adapted forms of Islam that emerged over centuries, right, through uh, institutions and cultures that developed and why you can have such variety between forms of Islam from West Africa to, you know, Indonesia. There will be some things that are very common, but other things that are very local and are relevant to that society and that culture. And one of the things that has happened with this modernist orientation of the fundamentalist modernism is attempting to universalize a kind of common literalist form of interpretation globally that has been somewhat ascendant, partly because the Saudis have promoted it with you know, the oil wealth that they have. So it became popular, you know, globally in other Muslim societies because people would, students would be invited to come to Saudi Arabia and train in their, you know, religious colleges and then go back to their countries and promote and spread uh, this particular version of Islam that was antithetical so why, to traditional. So why your hostility toward ISIL, which is like, is sort of like a super, like going back to the past, like my caliphate model of Islam. By whom? Uh, no, by the Taliban. Oh, I think this is more factional rivalry than it is particular. See, I think one of the things that Juan Call pointed uh, pointed out that we could have brought out a little yeah. bit more is that the Taliban are kind of a nationalist. They're not a, you know, uh, internationalist sort of movement like the Wahhabis and the Salafis from Saudi Arabia, like Al Qaeda, like ISIS. They are a very local kind of Afghan. Um, cultural, culturally nationalist version of a radical literalist form of Islam, right? It's very unique to their environment and they are about kind of freeing Afghanistan and reforming Afghan society. They don't have the kind of aspirations of a global caliphate. And in fact, actually, they never adopted that kind of 
Islamic uh, kind of religio-political title of being a caliph. They call themselves an emirate, which is just a military commander, which has local resonances, like it's a small part within the broader Muslim world. They didn't have that kind of ambitious aspirations for an internationalist kind of movement like you would see in Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And, but but yet isn't wouldn't Afghanistan be the largest physical geographic emirate? Because uh, we're only familiar, I guess, with the smaller Gulf emirates. I mean, I'm yeah. just thinking of of the scale of, of their I mean, not that they have great ambitions, but that they see themselves physically as that large entity. The, the other question I wanted to ask Adnan was if and this was just reporting today that 15 or so of the provinces have a strong al-Qaeda uh, influence. I'm not sure, you know, how they measure these things, but is that is al-Qaeda stronger now in Afghanistan than it was around 9-11? I guess that's the, the kind of question that I think is is being sort of fostered. At least in the media. Does Al-Qaeda yeah. even still exist? Oh, well, or yeah. is it like is it like the Taliban, just a name, but the whole movement has changed? Well, we gave, didn't we name it Al-Qaeda? Didn't the CIA name it Al-Qaeda? Well, I mean, actually, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think they did use that term, um, but it might have been not as the name of the whole organization. It may have been for the base. I mean, it means the base. Right. But I think the CIA gave them that name. I think the CIA probably took this term that they were using to talk about a particular part of the like operational command of this movement and organization that was dispersed and thought that's the name of the organization. And then, you know, as a dialectical sort of thing, then that becomes sort of the name that people rallied around and adopted and used as a franchise, you know, to say that, you know, we are an affiliate of this um, organization, Al-Qaeda, subsequently, you know, like Al-Qaeda in Iraq and, and, and so on. Yeah. Well, we're we're pretty much out of time. This was fantastic to have uh, this follow up conversation. Is there anything pressing? Anything that has nothing to do with Afghanistan? <laughs> I, I, I'd like to horse race the 2022 midterms. How does this affect the Democrats? I'm kidding. Uh, the, the, the news is lousy with how this affects Biden and the Democrats, like 30 some odd million people in Afghanistan. And it all gets down to did Biden drop the ball? Should he have seen this coming? And what does this mean for the midterms? It's stunning. I kind of my gut gut is, is that people aren't even paying much attention to this. Doesn't he deserve some credit? It's like Vietnam for me growing up. It's just like does he deserve no. some credit for standing firm and, and just saying we're out? I don't know. What is this capacity to even make decisions? I'm not being glib here. I mean, seriously, he, like Trump made the decision to pull out and the whole world creaked and was chaining through a, like a hissy fit and got a bunch of Democrats to join. How dare he end my daddy's war last year? Yeah, so... 
I don't know. We, we were supposed to pull out when they were negotiated. We were supposed to pull out by May 1st. They just did a bunch of bombings this past week in provinces. They killed a bunch of civilians, apparently hitting a clinic in a school. I have no idea what that latest round of bombing was, except to maybe soften the ground for someone to do something. We haven't even mentioned the uh, contractors that are still supposedly in Afghanistan. Right. I, I have no idea what happens. Um, you know, like Biden is up telling everybody that 300,000 soldiers have been trained and, you know, they'll be left the country and then a week later, um, you know, they're collapsed. Is anybody going to pay attention to that? Where's Eric uh, Prince? Ooh, now there's a good question. What's that little scamp up to? <laughs> well, he wanted to uh, be the viceroy, essentially, of Afghanistan and privatize the U.S. Uh, war occupation, right. the state building project. He said, you know, I think he, you know, he said basically, hey, the British had a good idea in the structure that they ruled uh, India with. You know, if you make me essentially the viceroy, I can you know, manage this situation, um, call me the East Afghanistan company, you know, mm -hmm. leader. Oh, wait I mean, a minute. We did. Didn't we actually like, wasn't one of the uh, Bush Coast people actually declared himself viceroy? Yes. Iraq? Yes. The guy who, the guy Remmer. from Kissinger Associates, the guy who released yeah, yeah, the, uh, the one who sent the elite Republican guard home. Yeah. 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 Paul Bremer. Kissinger, he was Kissinger's associate. Well, well, we know we know how the viceroys worked out for for the Raj, you know, in India. So it never really works. No, but I mean, as John Mearsheimer might have said, I guess, as he said to Max Boot, the British are no longer in India. So it, it wasn't that successful. <laughs> and Winnie Mountbatten got to sleep with Nehru and it was all worth it just for that. <laughs> Lord Mount, let's uh, wrap it up on that. Uh, thank you, Professor Ann Lee. Thank you, Professor Jonathan Bick. Thank you, Professor Marianne Cummings. And uh, thank you, Professor Adnan Hussein, for bringing Juan Cole in tonight. And everybody, please go to Informed Comment. You'll uh, you'll be grateful that you're that you went over there. It's great writing. Oh, bring him on again, please. Yes. Yes. Now we'll do that. Yes. Thank you. Great job, everybody. I, it's uh, I appreciate it. Dan Frankenberger, I'm being rude to you. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. I apologize. Well, I was here last week. I should have lots of energy. I know. We haven't seen you. Uh, I apologize. Juan Cole was our special guest, and I thought we had 10 minutes. Uh, he sent me a note saying he was going to be late, and then he showed up. So I apologize to you. How are you feeling? I'm doing great. You were stung by some bees. I got stung in my forehead by a hornet. By a hornet? Yes. How many? Just one. Apparently, I'm allergic. It looked like somebody looks like the police in Rochester, which they're wont to do, <laughs> used your face for batting practice. It I've never you look like you had been in a boxing match with Sonny Liston. 
my dad always used to say they had to use forceps on me when I was born. He's like, you look like you came out, you did 12 rounds with Ali. Right. <laughs> and I was like, oh, shit. Look at this. Did they, did they <laughs> use forceps on you? Yeah. You and Sinatra. Right on my big stupid head. Pull yeah. them out. They needed forceps on Sinatra. He wouldn't come out. That's true. Uh, so you're feeling better? Yeah, I'm doing good. Swelling's gone. Over the weekend, probably around Sunday, I started feeling around 100%. But Saturday, the, the swelling was still going down. And you know, we did good. How dangerous is it to get stung by a hornet? Well, the, the, I went to urgent. Well, I got stung at 530 in the morning. I went to work at 7, 730. I was like, I'm going to try to squeeze a couple hours out of this and, and see how it goes. And by nine o'clock, I was like, oh, shit, it's time for urgent care. So I went there, got a shot of Decadron, some some kind mm-hmm. of anti-inflammatory. I think it's Decadron. And I had taken Benadryl immediately because I knew that from the past couple of years. And then, uh, yeah, they, they gave me some prednisone scripts to take over the next four or five Prednisone days and, can make you crazy. Can make you very aggressive. Well, I was fine. I was uh, drinking vodka with it. Yeah, that was mellow. <laughs> All right. Uh, let us do Community Billboard. Dan Frankenberger covers the beat that is the David Feldman show. He has been spying on members of our community. And as soon as I can find the presentation, did I lose you? No, I didn't. No. No. Uh, we're adding all this new technology. To you want to skip it today or you want no, to? No, no, no. I got it. I got it. I okay. got it. Uh, here we go. Share. And boy, I don't know who this woman is, <laughs> but she filled in for you. I think it's Ma Frickett, uh, Jonathan Winter's old character. But she did such a great job filling yeah, in. Yeah, Scarf is a beauty. Great. Is that a scarf? Yeah, it is. And is that is that a shower cap? It, it looks like a perfectly fine uh, masculine bonnet to me. It was very funny when, when Tom Weber. Thank you, Tom Weber. And thank you for Peter B. Collins. This is you. What? Two days after you were stung, right? Yep. Yeah, it doesn't look all that bad. But I won't show the pictures. The, the really bad pictures are very upsetting. You're a very handsome man. Don't be shy. You could put the bad ones up there. No, nah, but you have to do it. I can't. It's just so disturbing. You, you, it looks like something, you know, after a 911 call. <laughs> this, uh, is, this is the picture I texted to David to say, oh, look, I'm getting better. You're getting better. Yeah. There's, there's Whoa. Dan. Yeah. How's the pool? It's in rough shape. The side is caving out again. I got to fix it. I'm, I'm trying to squeeze one more year out of it. Now, do Next you use it? Question mark. Do you yeah, use it? I, yeah. I've, I, I spent all this time and money and the family used it once, but I get in it. <laughs> once. Yeah. I, I get in it three minutes at a time, uh-huh. four times a week <laughs> when I'm sweating too much. Wow. Well, this looks like a, a, a charcoal sketch from Tom Weber, correct? That is true. 
Who is it? This is um, it's Tom Weber, and he posted this uh, just today, saying this is a balding man. It's a quick sketch. Like you and I night. need to look at that. <laughs> look at, yeah, I can right? go look in the mirror. Tom, let's get some other pictures. <laughs> yeah, tell me something I don't know. So, is there just a balding man? A balding man, charcoal, fourteen by seventeen inches, and he seems thrilled about it. Yeah, it looks like a man who's going bald and is. Very happy. Very happy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, who did this? This is Tom Weber as well, and he posted wow. this uh, today as well. But this was from a live profile, and it's a repost of a portrait he did from uh, back in 2012 ish, wow. 13. And uh, Pastel? And pastel, after he'd been. Uh, uh, he started doing art again after 18 years. So this is like one of his first uh, getting back into it uh, sessions. But it, wow. was, it was a live model and Shazam. Hmm. Awesome. All right. There. That's from Glenn Costick. Looks like he has a new, uh, what, do you, what do you call it? I, what do you call Cast it? Iron Cast iron. Yeah. Yep. So it's a stir fry of broccoli, garlic, cabbage, onion, basil, and ginger. Right. And what is the story? Because I just found the new cast iron pan that I bought. I had two. One that was irredeemable. Yeah, we've never settled how to clean them, right? You can use a Brillo pad on them. There's different methods. And uh, it's almost never irredeemable unless you break it and you have to weld it. No, this one There's, was this one you've. I scrubbed it and scrubbed it and smoke. It was still smoking. Yeah. I'm, I'm in a, a group on Facebook where totally rusted shit from 100 years ago. They fix it. What about bleach? What would bleach do to it? It doesn't help the situation. Bleach doesn't help. The rust. No, you got re to remove the rust and then season it with oil and heat. There's a process. There's a few different ways. The, the big debate on cast iron is whether you can use dish soap and water or not, which you would think by works. now a, a a style of cookware that Paul Revere, Paul Revere worked with. They would figure out how to clean this. You would think, right? Yeah. And there is methods and there is debates and arguments about it, but. What I was told by the person who introduced me to cast iron is don't clean it too much. Just kind of leave it. Well, after you're done cooking, you, you kind of want to rinse it, dry it, and then get oil on it and just put it away. Yeah, I was told just take a, a paper towel and clean yep. it, but don't take too much from it. Right. But then uh, using using salt as a, the abrasive with a paper towel is, a, is another method to get oh, really? if there's any if there's any gunk on it. Salt is an abrasive. Oh, OK. Ooh, that looks like salmon. Yep. It's salmon and scallops. This is also from Glenn. And uh, last week uh, we heard from uh, John Hayes with a picture. This is the same setup where he was doing uh, corn on the cob right in the sheath mm -hmm. right in the, in the husk still. And, uh, yeah, th this is a cool technique um, that I've had in restaurants a few times, but I've never done it myself, where you use uh, rosemary as a skewer. Interesting. And, and it works awesome. It's so tough to do when we go on our crime, but when we go yeah. on our crime spree, I think we break into Glenn Costick's home first, don't you? 
maybe we make him cook for us. Make first. him cook for us. Yes. Then now, now you're how we talking. take all the good stuff. Yeah. yeah. Now you're talking. <laughs> all right. We first we go to Glen Costics, and then we hide out here. Look at that. Right. That looks. That's Dave and PA's B and B. Yep. So this is a. Uh, like you said, uh, Dave in Pennsylvania and his wife run uh, Bed and Breakfast. And you can uh, go check it out at tinyurl.com slash birdies country cottage, B-R-T-I-E-S, country cottage. And uh, this is a picture at sunset where the, fo the fog is rolling in. And uh, yeah, Beautiful. I, I mentioned before, the, 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 pri the, price, the prices are, are reasonable for the area and everything, uh, the, the, uh, like weekend cabins that I've experienced and yeah it's gorgeous. I think Hannah is going up there she had such a great time yep. going up there with uh, Sarah and Andy are, are, are they still married I'm not sure we're gonna find out soon okay uh, that is so beautiful well you and I should drive up there and refuse to leave yeah that'll be good that'll be good he has to call the sheriff to get us off the land well, it's on the B&B website, so we can also tell when the next person is supposed to be coming. Right. That make it really fuck them. Yeah. <laughs> I think I could live there forever. I think he built that, didn't he? Knowing Dave, yeah, probably. Yeah. I know who did that. That's Lane, right? This is Lane. That's amazing. Yeah. He does these freehand in office hours all the time, uh, explaining how um, the aeronautics of airplanes work and the, the different styles of planes over the years. This is a, a freehand A3 charcoal sketch for a future painting uh, he's doing for an insane Canadian drunk. <laughs> he said wow. his granddad is a mossy pilot in Operation Jericho. He said, look it up. Operation Jericho. What was that? I'm not familiar. Well, how do people uh, send you stuff? Well, you can send stuff to uh, dentfeldman at gmail.com. And uh, I also wanted to mention a couple of things. Arjun Hundle sent in a message. He um, should be on the show. We have to have him on the show. Yeah, he said he's, he's working on his next episode of his podcast, Deep Into History. Right. And he sent in kind of like a political still comic. And I thought throwing it at you on the spot would be a little bit too deep because it's got a few lines that you have to read and think about. So I, I didn't put it up there, but I just want to give him a shout out deep in history. Okay. Um, and Ricky. Yes. Um, he sent in a message. Uh, hey, Dan and David and FU students and professors. We celebrated one year of Good Morning Marks on Twitter. And And this is from last week when I wasn't on, but he said that they uh, celebrated it that past Sunday. And uh, they began the Marxist readings on the 9th, 9th of August in 2020. They began with a capital volume one and have read uh, a great volume of Marx, Engels, and other Marxist writings. And uh, you can check them out on Saturdays at 2 p.m. God, we've, the, the community has accomplished so much in about a year. When you think about it. Yep. It's pretty incredible. Well, uh, I have another one from Office Hours uh, All-Star Chloe. Yes. She sent in an email a day or two ago that um, 
she is promoting an event uh, relating to uh, people who are nervous about uh, schooling and their children in COVID. Yes. So she writes, if you know anyone who is worried because children are being forced to go in-person school and um, back to normal in some places with a little mitigation, um, there's an online event that is addressing those concerns, including experts in, in a infectious disease control, answering questions and making recommendations for schools. Um, and there's an Eventbrite link. I'm not sure if you're going to be able to search or not, but I'll put it in the, the YouTube and uh, the Zoom link here, but discussion on concerns of U.S. school reopenings. So I'll, I'll get that link Great. in here. You know, hey, what, one of the things I want to make a regular staple of your segment is encouraging people to join Ralph Nader's Congress Club. Everybody should join Congress Club. Go to Nader.org, hit Congress Club and apply. You got to apply to join the Congress Club. And it's great because they they contact you from the Nader organization and send you letters to write to your local officials. And it's kind of what Chloe has done. And this is what Ralph is doing. You sign up and then whatever is on Ralph's mind, whatever he's upset about and what you should be upset about, you will receive a template, a letter that you can alter with your congressperson's address already provided for you. And you can write to your congresspeople, which is very important to do. So go to Nader.org, hit Congress Club and apply to join the Congress Club and whatever Ralph Nader tells you to do, do it. You'll be happy. That's definitely in the spirit of Chloe, because she's definitely a in the spirit of Chloe. Pain yeah. person. That's the yeah. In office hours, she's an awesome person in general. But that's kind of like her thing. What she's known for. Yeah, it's really sweet. Well, it's the uh, middle of August. This is everybody is hot and lethargic and terrified of the future. And I really appreciate everybody who showed up in the Zoom room. You lift us all up. We we do lift each other up. It's important to have a community. So I thank everybody for coming to the show today in the virtual uh, studio audience. You had great questions for Juan Cole. I was very proud of everybody. And uh, I really appreciate it. it, it uh, the show is so much better because of uh, the people who come to the to the live tapings. If you would like to sit in our virtual studio audience, go to my website, hit the attend a live taping menu and I will send you a link. And of course, office hours and discord, our discord group. We have to talk about. Well, anyway, we have to have a meeting and start, there are many things that it's the dead of summer. I can't call too many meetings i uh but uh a lot to talk about please visit us at office hours and meet better people meet a better class of people at office hours all right is that it i got, I got one more thing one oh more thing. good good um la is declaring august 18th brody stevens day L.A. is declaring. I was just thinking of Brody Steve. Who was I talking about comedy with? Somebody must have said, enjoy it. Yes. Enjoy it. Yes. 
push and believe. You got it. I was thinking about Brody yesterday. Yeah, you might you might have seen a headline. No, when you're no. Really so it's Brody. It. It's Brody Stevens Day. When did he die? It was uh, two years ago, I think around February. And, you know, he had depression issues. And um, August 18th is because one of his famous uh, tagline was 818 till I die. <laughs> 818, 818. Wow. He was so funny. So yeah. funny. Yeah, we love Brody. But I, was, I, thought, I thought it was cool. I seen that L.A.'s, uh, you know, a, a comedian. I'm not sure how popular people are and stuff, but they're like, they're doing it. Yeah. Like, holy cow. That's awesome. What's great about Brody, I was I was talking about him on somebody else's show. And it was I think it was yesterday that the funniest comedians are the ones who are pissed off that they're there. And they're pissed off at the audience <laughs> from the get go. Just, the, you know, it's just they show up and nothing's right. And I just think that's the funniest thing. It's That's what Brody was. Brody was just <laughs> just turned on the audience uh, and himself all the same. He was such a great comedian. Is such a great comedian. Thank you, Dan Frankenberg. You shave mine. I'm sorry. What? <laughs> I'll scratch your back. And you shave mine. <laughs> I wrap it up. <laughs> uh, Brody. Mm. All right. Where'd Dan go? Thank you, everybody. Uh, office hours this Friday night. I think uh, spirituality and activism, activism and spirituality Wednesday night with Tom Weber. I think I've covered everything. I want to thank our guests. We had uh, Peter B. Collins at six o'clock. Let me see if I can do this. And do you have a Sopranos uh, quote or a Goodfellas yeah, quote? Yeah, I got Sopranos if you want it. Yeah. All right. I'll start trying to remember who was on the show. Six o'clock, Peter B. Collins. Six thirty. Jesus. What was it? Liam? It was Liam McEnany. It was Liam. And it was tough because it wasn't in the schedule. Right. It's questionable whether he was coming or not. How great was Robert Smigel's Julia? That was freaking amazing. How perfect (laughs) was that? I love it. Oh, Smigel. He's he's just so, so funny. It was perfect. Then uh, Howie Klein, David Cobb, Harriet Fraud, and then uh, Professor Juan Cole, Adnan Hussein, Professor Marianne Cummings, Professor Jonathan Bick, Professor Ann Lee, and Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom. Professor Faluna is taking some time off to enjoy nature. Who does something like that? Enjoying the weather. Enjoying the weather. <laughs> Give me a Sopranos quote. She was part of that generation who grew up during the, pres- the, the Depression. But the Depression to her was like a trip to Six Flags. Oh, so that would be, I'm going to guess, that is uh, Melfi talking to Tony about Livia. No, that was Tony talking about his mother. To his sister, Janice. I'm not sure who he was talking to, but I think it was too, I think it was too Melfi. I watched the clip a, f- a few minutes ago, so I think he was, he was talking to Melfi, but it was season one, episode one. Okay, I've been pretty good about not watching The Sopranos. I'm doing a fast. I, I'm doing like a two-year cleansing 
uh, I can't stop watching The Crown. Uh, I hope you're on The Crown. I'm on The Crown. All right. I love you, buddy. I'm glad you're back. Thank you. Thank you so much to John Hayes and Tom Weber for filling in for the great Dan Frankenberger. All right, everybody. Let me see if I can do this. Uh, thank you to all our guests. Thank you to everybody. I'm vamping till I can find the clip. Here we go. All right. Sign up for my newsletter. Come to office hours. I'm David Feldman. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy, too. To tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show to get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. God's about to bring the whole house down, ladies and gentlemen. These bunch of sex trafficking mongrels are about to be exposed. These bunch of pedophiles in Hollywood are going to be exposed for who they are. I don't care what you think about fraudulent Sleepy Joe. He's a sex trafficking, demon-possessed mongrel. He's of the left. He ain't no better than the Pope and Oprah Winfrey and Tom Hanks and the rest of that wicked crowd. God is going to bring the whole house down. I said he's going to bring the whole house down. He's going to burn the whole thing to the ground. He's going to expose all these bunch of pedophiles. I'm telling you, he's going to expose Kamala Harris for the Jezebel demon that she is. Do not come. Do not come. Uh, critical race theory is very good, very informative. Thank you, Mark. For Thank you, Mark. On the, on the Princeton point here, you and I have discussed it, it at the college level. This is it's fair game. Not Go ahead and do it. Right. I mean, I remember 20 years old going to Trier, Germany and trying to find the home of Karl Marx because, you know, 1848, he wrote Mein Kampf. I want to know what it was all about. So that's part of the education in America, if you so choose. So uh, that's that. More to come. Hey, Liam McEnany. Your friend David told me about how you thought you had to pass gas on the number four bus. But it turned out to be more than gas. Man, Liam McEnany, that has to be tough. Wearing white shorts on a Manhattan scorcher smack dab in the middle of rush hour with your girlfriend standing right next to you. I feel you, Liam McEnany. I really do. But it's a reminder of how precarious life is. One moment you think you're taking your lady downtown to your favorite Korean barbecue, and suddenly one blast out of your leaky balloon knot and poof, everything changes in a second. 
Poof. It's all over. Poof. Ronnie Bilge. Dripping down your legs, Liam McEnany. You look for your girlfriend. Poof. She's gone. In the blink of a balloon knot. Won't even return your phone calls. I feel for you, Liam McEnany. Reminds me of 9-11. Beautiful fall day. I was planning a walk in the park with my second wife, Judith Nathan, who turned out to be a voracious harpy. And the next thing you know, well, I don't have to tell you what happened that day. It's all in my book, Leadership. I guess the point is, Liam McEnany, never take anything for granted. Cherish each moment. You never know. You just never know. One day you're with a woman who you can't figure out where you end and she begins. And then poof, intestinal air completely betrays you by turning solid. Poof, she's gone. Poof, all that's left is a memory. Okay, take care, Liam McEnany. And next time you're riding the bus in white shorts, remember to exercise constant vigilance because things don't always turn out the way you planned. Bye, Liam McEnany. You sound like someone I would like to get to know. 9-11.